My Years with Ludwig von Mises by Margaret von Mises Read by Amber Cathy Acknowledgements to the First Edition I want to thank the many friends who helped me, in however small a way, to get the information I needed for writing this book, as well as those close friends and members of my family who lived through the writing with me. I only wish I could have mentioned all those who, in the course of the years, have been part of our lives, but I know they will understand that it was not possible. First, I want to thank Friedrich von Hayek, the most illustrious among my husband's many distinguished students, for his permission to print here a hitherto unpublished speech he gave in 1956 in my husband's honor. My special gratitude goes to our very, very dear friends, Bertie and Larry Fertig, who advised, helped, and comforted me throughout these last difficult years. My warmest thanks to Bettina Bianrives, who generously provided me with any information I asked for, although she was herself busy on a book about my husband. I am particularly grateful to Ruth I. Matthews and to Otto and Fanny Collier for their unfailing interest and steady encouragement. Eugene Davidson's stimulating advice with regard to Chapter 8 was particularly valuable to me, and I have a special debt of gratitude to John Chamberlain for his enthusiastic reaction after reading several chapters of the manuscript. My thanks also to Hans Senholtz for translating from the German the letters that appear on pages 165 and 166. It was George Kotter who did the original editing of my book, and I am grateful to him for having kept his promise not to do any ghostwriting, for this should be and is my own story. George gave me the benefit of his great journalistic experience, his superb command of the language, and constant encouragement and enthusiasm. When I once told him, George, you are doing so much for me, how can I accept it? He replied, Margaret, when your husband died, I told my wife, how can I ever thank this man for what he has done for my mind? This is my opportunity. Preface to the Second Edition A German version of my book, Ludwig von Mises, Der Mensch und sein Werk, Ludwig von Mises, The Man and His Work, was published in 1981 by Philosophia Verlag in Munich. This second English edition has become necessary because the first one is completely sold out. The many letters I have received show a continuing demand for the book. With permission of Professor Hayek, I include here the English translation of the letter he sent me after he read the first edition. My readers may be interested in the reaction of the most prominent student of my husband. My dear Mrs. von Mises, when I returned the day before yesterday from a short trip to Germany and Switzerland, I found your book and letter. Though I actually had no time, a mountain of correspondence was waiting to be answered, I had to do some very important writing, and besides this, I have to make my preparations for moving to Freiburg. But when I started reading your book, I could not resist and had to continue until I got to the end. I must confess that I was somewhat apprehensive about this book. Books by widows of famous men who were not collaborators of their husbands can be dangerous. But you did a perfect job in relating what you, and only you, could say. You told a great deal completely new to me, and even surprising. But in its totality, it fits the perception I had of your husband. It fills existing gaps without conflicting with my conception and with the mental image I had formed of your husband. 
I had, for example, no idea that you entered his life at such an early age. One thing we students noticed lightly smiling, and which was incomprehensible to us, was that the old man, that's how we called him, for he was at that time almost twice as old as we were, took dancing lessons with El Mayer in Bronner Street. Even you may not know about this. But otherwise all of us, especially Maklep and I, who were the only ones who knew his home, thought him to be a confirmed bachelor, and we never even imagined the possibility of a female relationship. Once in a while we speculated that it might make sense for him to one day marry Lena Leiser, but no one ever implied that there might be something like an engagement. Even his love for the mountains we discovered only by chance, when Maklep and I once made an excursion with him to the higher Austrian mountains, most probably somewhere in the Oster or Maria Zeiler environment. On this occasion, he hurt his hip when standing on the outside gallery of an alpine hut, which suddenly broke down so that he fell approximately two meters down to the ground. We owe our thanks to you for having written this book. Thank you also for sending it to me. I would write more about it if I were not so pressed for time. But in those ten days that I was away, an unusually great amount of correspondence has accumulated. I am supposed to finish some urgent, important writing— and before the end of the month I must be ready to move. The exact day has not yet been fixed, but by latest it will be March 1st. Our address again will be Freeburg. Devotedly signed, F.A. Hayek. Professor Fritz Machlub suggested that I add another appendix to the book, containing impressions and memories of still-living former students who had attended the Vienna Seminar. I followed his suggestion, and, according to Philosophy of Verlag, who published the book in German, this is the first time that a comprehensive survey has become available about the activity of Ludwig von Mises, the great scholar of the Austrian School of Economics, and his legendary private seminar in Vienna. My warmest thanks to Professor Machlup for his advice and contribution to the appendix, as well as to the other contributors, Professor Martha Steffi Brown, Dr. Herbert Futh, Professor Gottfried von Habeler, Dr. Rudolf Klein, and Professor Paul N. Rosenstein-Rodan. Chapter 12 of this edition, Epilogue and the Centennial, is completely new and brings the book up to date. My special thanks to Professors Israel Kirchner and Murray Rothbard and others who supplied information. In preparing this enlarged edition, nothing has been changed in the description of my life with my husband though personal experiences since his death in 1973 may have changed my perception about some people mentioned in this book. As time goes by, I am more and more grateful for the friendship of those who stayed by my side. John and Ernestine Chamberlain, who so enthusiastically encouraged me. Richard Ebeling, who was always there when I needed him. John and Marion Exter, who helped not only with personal advice, but saw to it that I, with my obsession for work, would not forget that my life should be enjoyed once in a while. I am deeply indebted to my close friend, Dr. Roxana Lyabarsky, for the care, love, and affection with which she helped me to survive one of the most critical times in my life. My special gratitude belongs to my dear friend, Dr. Ruth I. Matthews, who not only read the manuscript of this edition, but made valuable suggestions and prepared part of the index. In closing these lines, let me express once more my hope and wish that my husband's followers may become legion, 
and will put into practice his ideas for the betterment of the world. I also hope that the readers of this book will not only admire Mises the scholar, but come to understand Mises the man. If, through my work, I have contributed in a modest way to spread the words and teachings of Ludwig von Mises, I have achieved what I set out to do from the beginning. New York, 1983, Margit von Mises Chapter 1, My Youth Many readers will be astonished that the author of this book, the title of which is My Years with Ludwig von Mises, writes a whole chapter about her own youth. Others, however, would like to know more about this woman, whom Professor Mises met when he was forty-four years old, asked to marry him the next year, though he did not sign that scrap of paper, as he expressed himself, before he was fifty-eight years old. It is not easy for me to talk about myself, but I think the reader has to know more about me, because otherwise Ludwig von Mises' decision to marry so late in his life would not be easy to comprehend. A knowledge of my own life will also explain why our marriage was happy. From my book, the reader will get an insight of what each of us brought to our marriage. I was born in Hamburg. Hamburg was then, and I believe it still is today, one of the most beautiful cities in Germany. While the city was elegant and refined, life in the harbor was noisy, full of energy and color. Hamburg was one of those three Hansestadt, Hamburg, Lübeck, Bremen, whose life differed greatly from all other cities in Germany. Hamburg had its own senate and its own judiciary, and its people had the reputation of being haughty and arrogant. They admired England and the English people, and they displayed a great similarity to the English in their living habits and customs. Whereas most Germans ate their main meal at noon, the Hamburg citizen followed the English custom and dined after business hours, when the day's work was over. At noon, the well-to-do merchants and bankers, dressed in their frock coats, top hats on their heads, walked along Alsterbasen, on Jungfersteig, the most beautiful street in Hamburg, to attend the stock exchange. Then they went home to their elegant houses, all surrounded by park-like gardens, to enjoy their money, and sometimes also their families. I did not know my maternal grandfather, and I do not remember much of my grandmother. My mother's family was well-known and rather wealthy. Two stories were told about them. One story was that my grandfather owned a mill and made his money with it. The second story, which interested me far more since it captured my imagination, was that my grandfather, for some time at least, was a co-owner and administrator of the Hamburg City Opera. What I know for certain, however, is that my grandmother was an opera fan, and that one night she went to the opera in a far advanced state of pregnancy to hear Giacomo Meyerbeer's La Fraquine. The same night her third little girl, my mother, was born, and she rewarded the baby for arriving promptly by naming her Celica, after the heroine of La Fraquine. My mother did not resent this name as much as I did. On the contrary, she was very proud of it, and felt obliged to study music as a career and become a pianist but she never played in public. My father's family lived in Hanover, Germany. My father and his family were not very close, so I know little about these relatives. Father, whom I adored, died at a very young age. He was restless, gay, very intelligent, witty, and enterprising. My parents had married when young, and the first baby was a boy. When I was six months old, they went to America, and my father studied orthodontics in Chicago. 
He intended to stay in the United States, but my mother got homesick, and after almost five years, they returned to Hamburg, where father became one of the first dentists ever to work exclusively on children. So it was that I learned English before I learned German. My mother, who was ambitious for her children, my older brother died in the First World War, insisted that we speak English at home and employed an English governess for us. She did not want us to forget the English language. That proved to be one of the wisest things she could have done for us. I was sent to one of the best private schools in Hamburg, Elizabeth Goethe Texter School in Harvesterhood. My mother was convinced that it would be necessary to learn foreign languages, and when I was about twelve or thirteen years old, she engaged for us a French mademoiselle. But apparently, she did not choose very well. Once in spring, my parents traveled to Brussels to see an exhibition. They came back unexpectedly, wanting to surprise me in the park with Mademoiselle. It was a welcome surprise for me, but not exactly for Mademoiselle. Every afternoon, she had left me sitting on a bench with a book while she went shopping for one or two hours. So it was on the day when my parents came. I seem to remember that was her last afternoon with me in the park. I loved school and became a fanatical reader. This surely was a heritage from my father. At night, when my parents had retired, I went into the living room and took the books he had read that day and brought them to my bedroom. I read them by candlelight, putting a blanket at the bottom of the door to hide the light. My parents never found out. When I was through with school, my father wanted me to study medicine, in which I had always shown a great interest. At that time, there were no special high schools for girls. So my parents discovered the quickest way for me to get a degree was to attend the teacher seminar and study Latin privately, which I did. When I was seventeen, I was invited to take the junior lead in an amateur performance, and by chance a reporter attended the play and wrote about me. That decided my future. From that day on, nothing interested me but the stage. I dropped out of the seminar one year before the final exams and refused to go back. My father had always been a great enthusiast of the theater. He knew his Schiller, Goethe, and Shakespeare by heart. Almost every Sunday, he attended a performance of a classic, and I was usually allowed to go with him. So he was not surprised by my decision, but my mother objected strongly. In those days, a bourgeois family looked upon an actress as a lost sheep. One admired actresses, that was at that time as it is today. But certain narrow-thinking bourgeois were convinced that actresses were a better class of call girls, whom one envied on account of their elegance and their appearance, but to whom one felt morally superior. It was different with singers, perhaps because one knew that they received higher wages. Strangely enough, their private lives were not so much discussed as they are today. Home life became unbearable. My mother made life so difficult for me that one day I secretly put an ad in the newspaper and got a job as a tutor for an eleven-year-old girl, the daughter of a banker in Cologne. I left home, but that was too much for my father. I assumed there must have been some high words between my parents. Anyhow, some weeks later, my father wrote and asked me to come home. He said he would not object to my following the career of my choice. The first thing for me to do was to see Carl Hegemann. Who at that time was the director and chief manager of the Deutsche Schauspielhaus, the foremost theater in Hamburg. He took a liking to me and accepted me as a student actress without pay, even though I had no formal training. 
I was allowed to attend all rehearsals and performances and was promised small parts when they would come up. Hackman also made me take speech lessons with the official instructor of the theater. I attended rehearsals from morning to night. At that time, and I think it is most likely still today, all the theaters in Germany and Austria were repertory theaters, and young actors and actresses had to study about 12 to 15 leading parts that came up regularly at certain intervals in every theater. My honest enthusiasm excited the interest of one of the leading stage directors, Ludwig Max, who also acted in classics. He was a tall, beautiful, white-haired old man, adored by the public. As is so often the case with comedians, he was a rather serious and reflective man. He studied with me once a week, never asked for a fee, and no one in later years was prouder of my success than he. He also regularly cast me in small parts in the plays he produced. Carl Hegman was the first personality who really influenced my life. He opened my eyes to everything that was beautiful. He gave me books about art. He made me visit the old painters who were sources of ideas and colors for his productions. He showed me the close connection between music and the spoken word. Later, shortly before the Second World War, he conducted operas in Berlin. Every Sunday morning, Hagman worked with me. For months, we studied Rahel in Juden von Toledo, one of the foremost plays by Grillparzer, Austria's most beloved dramatist. In later years, I played this role on every stage I appeared. There were two or three young actresses in whose future Hegemann was interested. He used to call us his children. He himself had no family. Nothing concerning us was unimportant to him. He even tried to improve our taste in fashion. If a young woman has talent, he used to say, she does not need to prove this by fancy clothes or makeup. Harmony in colors and taste is the main thing. Without knowing, Hagemann did even more for me. He showed me the way to a second career, which I took up later in Vienna after the death of my first husband. He knew about my upbringing and my knowledge of English, which he could not speak. And since he was interested at that time in a new adaptation of Oscar Wilde's Lady Windermere's fan, Oscar Wilde was one of his favorite modern authors, he asked me to do a rough translation of it. That was a big task, and my work must have been to his liking. He corrected and adapted it, and twenty years after its first publication, Lady Windermere's fan was printed in a new translation. Hagemann gave me a leather-bound copy inscribed to Greta. Greta was the name I was called as a child. For her intelligent and sensitive help, the publisher. I still have the book. One of Hagemann's most brilliant productions was Oscar Wilde's Salome, and one of his greatest discoveries was a young Polish actress, Maria Orska. She claimed to be, how the relationship came about I never knew, the niece of the late Justice Felix Frankfurter, who was Austrian-born. This young woman had the most beautiful eyes and most delicate and expressive hands I have ever seen. But she was far too heavy for her height. Hagemann wanted her to play the lead in Salome, but three weeks before her debut, he told her he would not let her go on stage and dance unless she lost 15 pounds. Maria went on a diet, and she was a sensational success on opening night. But it was the beginning of the end. She had taken to drugs, and one love affair followed another. A well-known banker, who was married but in love with Maria, committed suicide. He could not stand life without her. Maria Orska played a big part in my life. 
Because of her frequent indisposition, I got my first chance in the theater. Hagemann was producing a new play, Gudrun by Ernst Hart. It was the old story of Gudrun and Siegfried seen from another angle. Originally, I had a small part in the play, one of Gudrun's maidens. Maria Orska played Singend, the supporting lead, a young woman full of passion. One afternoon, my telephone rang. Deutsch Schaswellhaus, Orska is sick. Could you take over her part tonight? Of course, I said. Be here half an hour earlier, came the reply. We'll give you a short rehearsal. We are sure you know the part. I came through all right. The next day I got a letter from the theater and a check for fifty marks. It was the first money I had earned in my life. I knew now that the world was open to me. Hagemann advised me I would do better at a smaller theater where I would have the opportunity to play all the parts I had been studying. My agent looked around for an opening and, as a start, made a contract for me with the Stadt Theater in Bremerhaven. The summer before, however, I had a job with Leopold Jesner at the Talia Theater, the second outstanding theater in Hamburg. Jesner was one of the three producer stars famous at that time all over Europe, Reinhard Hagemann Jesner. He was the original founder of the People's Theater, first-class literature with a good cast at popular prices. Among the actresses he had under contract was a young beginner whom I had met before. She was the daughter of the superintendent of the building where Hagemann lived. One day, when the superintendent took me down in the elevator from Hagemann's apartment, he asked me to meet his daughter, who wanted to become an actress. Her name was Emmy Sonneman. She was a slim, shy, blonde girl with regular features. Her talent never impressed me, but I shall always remember her wearing a starched white blouse and a blue pleated skirt. We spoke to each other frequently, and I liked her. She later became a well-known actress, but even better known when she became the wife of Hermann Göring, and as such, Germany's first lady during the Nazi regime. Bremerhaven, where I spent the next winter, is a small seaport near Bremen. Most of the big transatlantic vessels of the Hatburg, Hamburg American line, landed there or in Cuxhaven, the seaport of Hamburg. I was very busy that winter, on stage almost every night. I played Desdemona, Julia, Gretchen from Faust, Ibsen's Nora, and more. I only stayed one year, then went to Lübeck, which had a beautiful new theater, its interior all paneled in cherry wood. It also had a keen-minded director. There I was allowed to play almost every part of my repertoire, and the director even had me play the Henriette and Strindberg's Rosh, or Ecstasy, and the emotionally complicated Clara Hunerwadel in Weidekind's Music. This little treasure of a theater was burned down during the Second World War when struck by a bomb. From Lübeck I was called to Vienna, with a very good contract for the Deutsche Volkstheater, which at that time, after the Berg Theater, was the leading stage in Austria. When the public in Lübeck realized that a young actress from their provincial town was called to Vienna for leading parts, the theater was sold out whenever I played. My debut in Vienna was as Rahel in Grillparzer's Juden von Toledo. I had a great success in this part, although one or another critic was disturbed by my North German accent. That would change, though, they said. My second part was Princess Eboli in Schiller's Don Carlos. I was the youngest Eboli ever on the Austrian stage. With me in this play were Fritz Kortner, King Philip, who later went to Hollywood, and Erika von Wagner, Queen Elizabeth, 
who a few years later married Fritz Steidry, conductor of the Metropolitan Opera. One of my favorite roles was the gypsy girl Masha in Tolstoy's Living Corpse. Another was Regine in Ibsen's Ghosts. Both parts I played with Moisey, the most famous actor of the time. Through friends I was introduced to Professor Emil Reich, the well-known Ibsen and Grillparzer expert. When he heard that my stage debut in Vienna would be Rahel, Judin von Toledo was the opening performance of the season, he offered to study the part once more with me. But you must never tell anyone about it, he said. As a trustee of the Volkstheater, it would be considered a conflict of interest to study with an actress of the same theater. I promised it, of course, and I kept my word until today. Professor Rice was a small and, it seemed to me, very old man with a long beard. He was recently divorced from his wife. He gave me much useful advice, and I was very grateful for his interest. But actually, I did not like him very much. He was always in a bad mood, always negative about everything. But he worked with me on every part I played and explained and deepened my understanding and feeling. During my first weeks in Vienna, in 1916, I met my first husband, Ferdinand G. Sereny. He was Hungarian and much older than I. He was a man of the world and had a wonderful way with women. This and his intelligence, combined with his great concern for my well-being, made me fall in love with him. I called him Ferry. We were secretly married in Budapest in February 1917. This secrecy had good reasons. In those days, every actress had a clause in her contract which forbade her to marry without consent of her director. As I had not thought of marriage, I had not taken any notice of this paragraph when signing my contract. But now this prohibition against marriage seemed to me almost indecent, and I rebelled. I did not ask Director Wallner's permission to marry, and so my marriage had to be in secret. But very soon I got pregnant. Yet I had to go on acting. My roles were mostly young, innocent, seductive women, and I had to represent them with the knowledge of a swelling tummy. But I must have carried my baby well, for no one noticed anything. At least they made no remarks. I was six months pregnant when the theater closed for summer vacations. Barry and I went to Carlsbad and later to Budapest, where my little boy, Guido, was born. From that very moment I changed. It was as if a cover had fallen from my soul, and love became another meaning for me. I felt the mystery of love a mother feels for her child. It came with the first cry of the baby, and will stay as long as I live. Shortly after Guido's birth, I wrote director Volner, was forgiven for my marriage, and asked to return to the theater immediately. And from then on I had to work as usual. It was hard on me. There was the baby who gave me so much warmth and happiness, and there was the theater of my work, which I loved and could not and did not want to neglect. The living conditions did not soothe my inner conflict either. It was the last year of World War I, and the economic situation in Austria was very bad. People stood in line at bakeries, meat shops, and groceries. Even milk for babies was scarce. In the restaurants, more and more ersatz was being served, and the Austrian people, always great lovers of good food, began to revolt. In Budapest, I had not noticed the misery so much. Hungary, though still part of the great Austrian Empire, was better off, since it was an agrarian society, and there was always plenty of milk and butter. And all the time I had no real home. Ferry and I could not live together. 
He had to stay in his apartment, which was too small for a family. The baby, the nurse, and I lived in the Hotel Bristol. I nursed the baby myself, and when I came home from rehearsals or performances, the nurse and the baby were always waiting for me, the nurse scolding, the baby crying. My physician was Dr. Ludwig Adler, who later became the director of the Elizabeth Hospital in Vienna. He also was my doctor later in New York. He often recalled to my memory how he met me for the first time. It was four weeks after Guido was born when we returned to Vienna. I got ill and my husband asked him to come to the Hotel Bristol. I shall never forget, he told me. In the fireplace a wood fire was burning. An elegant nurse with a blue veil and cap received me in the living room. All over the golden chairs wet baby diapers were hanging. At that time one had to wash thirty to forty diapers every day. A difficult task, for soap was scarce and so were coal and wood. It was impossible to get a good apartment, as hard as Fairy tried. There was no peace in the world, no peace in my heart, and other events added to the inner turmoil. That season a rather sensational charge was brought against Director Wallner of the Volkstheater, and without any intention of mine I became involved in it. For personal reasons, certain older actors and actresses felt animosity toward Wallner and accused him of morally questionable behavior toward young actresses, me among them. He was, so they said, directing Judin Fontolito in a morally offensive and improper way. When the case came before the jury, the old actors and actresses were not allowed to take the oath. I was sworn in. I declared that I never felt any misgivings about Director Wallner or his manners, and whatever he said and whatever explanatory movements he may have made during rehearsals, it was done, I said, in the keenness and enthusiasm of artistic work. I never felt offended. He was acquitted, but my position at the Volkstheater became very difficult. The older actresses, especially Claire Valentine, Countess Metternich, could not forgive that I had defended Director Wallner. They conspired against me, and I had to submit my resignation. Why do I tell this story? At that time, I did not know Professor von Mises, who was still in the Austrian army. But when later, after the death of my first husband, Ludwig von Mises and I met in Vienna and became friends, I told him about it. Some time later, he surprised me by telling me that he had gone to the archives of the Neue Freie Presse and looked up all the records about the case. He had to assure himself that I had spoken the truth. I did not renew my contract, and the newspaper said that I had resigned for reasons of health. I was, of course, in perfect health, and was offered immediately an excellent contract for the Talia Theater in Hamburg. Barry asked me to stay, but I was still too selfish to be able to give up my career. I accepted the offer, though I realized I would have to leave my child also, at least for a while. The war was over, the Austrian Empire was torn to pieces, Germany was defeated. Traveling from one country to the other was now very difficult. There was not even a direct train connection between Vienna and Hamburg. One had to change trains at the border, and the trip took 29 hours. The cars were not heated, there were few train personnel, and there was no food, no milk at any of the stations. I could not subject my child to that. I first had to find suitable quarters before I could have him stay with me. I left. In Hamburg I played the same roles I had played in Vienna, again with Moisey as a guest. But one evening there was trouble in the theater. 
Moisey, in director's garb, had attended, with permission of the resident physician, a child's birth in a hospital, and students and women revolted against him. There was such a commotion at the end of the performance that the actors could not take their bows. The stagehands did not dare raise the curtain, and Moisey never again came to Hamburg. I was very lucky. I found a furnished apartment, modern, heated, in a good neighborhood. Ferry was so hurt and unhappy when I left that he could not work in Vienna. I felt guilty about it, but I was not yet ready to give in. When the train situation improved, it was around Christmas. He came with Guido and the nurse to Hamburg and stayed with me for four months. When he left, I soon discovered that I was pregnant again, and now Ferry implored me to come back to Vienna when my contract expired. He finally had found an apartment, and it was to be ready by the time we returned. The apartment was beautiful, located on the sixth floor of one of the few buildings that had central heating, at that time still a great luxury in Austria. From the windows we looked far over the roofs of the old buildings to the tower of St. Stephen's Cathedral. At all times we heard the big clock chiming, and on Sundays and holidays the bells were ringing. I loved that apartment. For the first time I had a home. Finally I was at peace with myself, for some time at least. When my daughter Gitta was born, I took care of her myself, and when I caught our cook cheating us by selling our eggs and groceries, which were so hard to get, for lots of money to other people, I dismissed her and started cooking myself. I had plenty of help in the house otherwise. We traveled a great deal, but always in Austria, and the children were with us wherever we went. Ferry was a wonderful father, happy and proud about his family. In the summer of 1923, I took the children to Travamunde, a bathing resort on the Baltic Sea. Ferry could not get away immediately, but was supposed to come a few weeks later. That was the worst year of the runaway inflation in Germany and Austria. I carried a suitcase with me, containing money for one day. Every evening my husband had to cable fresh money, for the value of the krone decreased daily. One day I got a telegram from Ferry's secretary telling me to come back immediately. Ferry was seriously ill. I rushed home and hardly recognized him. He died at home a few weeks later of a lung sarcoma. He was a chain smoker. His physician was Dr. Rudolf Streisauer, a second cousin of my future husband, Professor von Mises. I was 27 years old when I became a widow for the first time, with two small children and the inflation raging. Ferry had left a letter in which he begged me to stay with the children and not return to the stage. The letter was surely meant for the best interest of the children, but Ferry could not foresee the outcome of the economic situation. Inflation had consumed the value of all savings. I remember how I found, some months after Ferry's death, a wallet of his containing large sums of Austrian Kronen, the old currency that had since been changed into shillings. The time allowance for exchanging Kronen into shillings had expired. The value of the money was totally lost. Though we still had some real estate, it was not the right time to sell. I knew I would have to work to earn our living. One day that winter, the Deutsche Volkstheater called. Maria Orska was supposed to perform that night as a guest Rahel in Juden von Toledo. She was in such a bad state, they said, that she was incapable of going on stage. Would I take over? I could not. I had to let them down. Ferry's letter haunted me. I tried various times. I got interesting offers, but I never had the courage to go on stage again. 
I could not forget that letter. Today I know that he never should have written it. Chapter 2. How We Met Recently I found a handwritten letter of recommendation, signed Ludwig von Mises, which my husband had written in 1943 on behalf of Fritz Kaufmann. Fritz Kaufmann was, about twenty years ago, a student of mine at the University of Vienna, Austria. He has well succeeded in acquiring a broad knowledge of economics, and especially of the problems of currency, banking, and finance. After his graduation, he worked as a journalist with various newspapers and periodicals in Vienna and in Berlin. His editorials and articles were highly appreciated by the most competent experts. It was with Dr. Fritz Kaufmann at a dinner party in 1925 that I first met Ludwig von Mises. Lena, Kaufmann's wife, was the daughter of our beloved pediatrician, who, as long as Ferry was alive, used to come to the apartment every Saturday morning to have a look at the children. These visits were the basis of a yearly honorarium, an arrangement one could not even imagine today. There were six guests that evening. One of them, as mentioned before, was Ludwig von Mises, a 44-year-old professor of economics, a bachelor who also had a law degree from the University of Vienna. But that evening I had no idea who he was. What impressed me about him were his beautiful, clear blue eyes, always concentrated on the person to whom he talked, never shifting away. His dark hair, already a little grayish at the sides, was parted, not one hair out of place. I liked his hands, his long, slim fingers, which clearly showed that he did not use them for manual work. He was dressed with quiet elegance, a dark custom-made suit, a fitting silk necktie. His posture indicated that he must have been a former army officer. He sat next to me, and the conversation was mostly about economics. I did not add much to the discussion. How could I? I did not know anything about the subjects discussed. After dinner, he stayed at my side, and we talked. That is to say, he made me talk, listened attentively, and when we left, he offered to take me home. But on the way, he proposed to go to a bar opposite my house to have a drink and dance. He did not dance well, so I preferred to sit and talk with him. The next day, when my hosts told me that he was considered to be the greatest living mind in Austria, it gave me quite a shock. He seemed so unpretentious and simple, so easy to talk to. That day he sent me a wonderful assortment of red roses, called me soon afterward, and asked me to have dinner with him. From then on we met frequently, and it was not long before we were meeting almost daily. When he had no time to meet me, he would always call. He met my children and tried to make friends with them. He never came without bringing them a little gift, mostly books that were carefully chosen. And one day he brought me a tiny flask of perfume, also carefully chosen, but not at all to my taste. I soon felt he was in love with me, but within me there was no fire burning. I was interested, I liked his company, I was flattered by his attention, but I did not love him. It took quite a while before I responded, and it was a special event that made me realize I cared for him. This was a time of political unrest in Vienna. Two socialists had been murdered by members of the Nationalistic Party, and the killers were acquitted. This led to riots in the streets. The Palace of Justice was burned down. Ludwig von Mises called me and warned me, Don't let the children grow out today. The streets are not safe. 
We lived at the center of the city, as he did, a few steps away from Kartnerstrasse and Graben. It was this telephone call that made it clear how important he was to me. He cared not only about me, he cared about my children. He worried about them. In 1926, he went for the first time to America as a representative of the Austrian Chamber of Commerce, and as soon as he returned, he asked me to marry him. I cannot describe what I felt, but I know I was happy. From then on, I always called him Lou, and this abbreviation of his given name, which seemed to me much warmer and more affectionate, was something quite new to him. He must never have been called by a pet name. When we came to the States and made new friends, they all very soon called him Lou. I think he liked it. Shortly after his return from America, he got very sick. He had appendicitis and could not be operated on, as his appendix was already infected. It took him weeks to recover, and since I did not know his mother, it was very difficult for me to get news about his condition. I would have loved to know everything about him, starting with his childhood, but he did not talk much about himself. He remembered well his maternal grandfather and talked often about him. When Lou was two, his grandfather accidentally let him fall from his arms. As a consequence, Lou broke his collarbone and had to wear a neck brace for a long time. Lou spoke very little about his youth. Once, however, he told me that he had started reading newspapers at the age of seven, and that at the age of ten he wanted to write a history of the Crimean War. He wrote one page, and then discovered in the newspaper that an English historian had published a ten-volume history. That was the end of that book. Lou greatly admired his father, who had been a prominent railroad construction engineer in the Austrian government, and who died, tragically, after a gallbladder operation at the age of 46. Lou revered his father and never forgot his birthday. On August 13, 1941, he told me, On this day, my father would have been 86 years old. The early loss of a beloved father was not the only sad blow Lou suffered. His youngest brother died of scarlet fever at a very tender age, when Lou was only 12 years old. It was a heavy blow for the whole family. Lou, as a grown-up, still lives with his mother, whom I never met. He rarely mentioned her and never said a word of criticism for her. I soon realized that this silence was the result of a long and bitter struggle with himself. He must have suffered in his youth, though he never complained. Three of the many letters he wrote to me around this time, which I have translated into English, show how clearly lonely he was. Vienna, July 29, 1927 My dear sweet Greta, many, many thanks for your dear letter. Since Tuesday I pondered much about you and your love. You have renewed in me what I lost a long time ago, the belief in the possibility of happiness. Do you know how much I have to thank you for, you, my beloved? I am sorry to say, I was so rushed the last days, from early morning to late at night, that I could not carry out my wish to go to Middling to look after the children. I would have wanted to send you their love and their greetings. I have some egoistic reasons, too. I wanted to touch Gitta's hair and think of you. That is all for today. I still have to do my packing and take care of various matters. I leave tomorrow morning. I love you. I can't say more, and I believe it is the most important thing. Thousand kisses. 
Badgestein, July 31, 1927 My dear Greta, when I arrived here last night and found no letter of yours, when even today there was nothing in the mail from you, I realize fully how much I miss you and that I cannot live any more without you. Now only do I know what longing really means and that I have only one wish, one thought, you. I have gone through bad experiences, and again and again I suffered severe disappointments. Your hands tenderly touched my cheeks, and every remembrance of past harm has gone completely. I wish I could have had your slim hands here to kiss them and hold them forever. Write to me again and again that you love me and want to give me happiness. I cannot hear and read it often enough. Are you thinking of me sometimes in Hamburg? Can I win the battle with the remembrances of childhood and home? Isn't it true that the one who is absent is the losing one? I promise you never to be jealous. Now you can see the value of my promises. I am jealous even of the river Alster. Don't forget me and do love me. I kiss your mouth and your hair. Badgestein, August 14, 1927 My dear Greta, Many glowing thanks for your letter of August 11th and for your Sunday telegram. I found both when I came home from dinner. I deserved your reproaches, but I cannot change the facts. I told you before, you know you have to change me to get me to be the one that you want to love. It won't be easy. I would like to make a proposal. One always should start work as quickly as possible, and one should not delay the start. What about leaving Norderney two days earlier than planned, and this way come two days earlier to Badgestein? That means on the 26th. We talk better face-to-face -face than by mail. We have to discuss a great many things. Please do say yes and come earlier than we originally planned. I feel more for you than I can say in writing, and if you knew me better you might read behind my clumsy sentences the real meaning. Please don't be angry. Don't punish me by not writing and think of me without any anger or resentment. I believe in you and I love you. You are now everything I have. I know how rich and happy you make me, but I don't know how to thank you. I will try to become more worthy of you than I am. Thousand kisses. People who knew Lou's mother well told me she was a highly intelligent woman, but with the attitude of a general and a will of iron, showing little warmth or affection for anyone. But I know she did a great many good things. She was president of the Institute for the Blind and gave much of her time to it, and most probably also of her money. Professor Hayek told me that while he was attending Lou's seminar in Vienna, Lou sometimes invited him to his house for lunch or dinner. The long table was always set immaculately, Lou sitting at one side and opposite him Mrs. von Mises. She never spoke a word, said Professor Hayek. She never participated in the conversation, but one always felt she was there. When the coffee was served, she quietly got up and left the dining room. She must have been a woman of distinction, otherwise she could not have brought up two sons, who were both distinguished scholars. The only one for whom Lou's mother was said to have shown some affection was Richard, her second son. This might explain partly why the two brothers were never really close to each other. The situation changed, though, after Lou and I were married. 
I met Richard in Geneva in 1939, and I liked him immediately. There was a certain charm about him. He had the same unpretentious manner of speech that Lou had. When Lou and I came to the United States in 1940, Richard, who was then professor of aviation and mathematics at Harvard, immediately arranged a lecture for Lou, and never failed to come and see us whenever he was in New York. Sometimes two or three times a month. I saw him for the last time in 1953. Lou was in California lecturing when Richard arrived from Zurich. A friend of his, the famous professor Hermann Nissen of Zurich, had advised an immediate and urgent cancer operation. But Richard refused to have it done, returned to the states, and a few weeks later died in Cambridge. I never really understood why Lou stayed with his mother until he left for Geneva. There was no financial reason for it. The only explanation I could find was that his mother's household was running smoothly. Their two maids had been with them for about twenty years, and Lou could come and go whenever it pleased him, and could concentrate on his work without being disturbed. There was certainly no inner need for him to stay with her. The First World War, as much as he hated the loss of time, was a duty he had to fulfill. And not for a minute would he have ever disregarded it. On the first day of the war, he had to travel to Premitzel to join his regiment. He foresaw the consequences of the war for Austria and for the world. He lost almost five years of his life and his work, but he never complained. The last two years in the Carpathians, those icy winter days, brought real suffering and hardship to everyone. Often they did not even have water to wash. For some time in the mountains, Lou had as comrade in arms his second cousin, Doctor Rudolf Streisauer, an army doctor who also had the rank of captain. For a while, they had their lodgings together. One morning, when it was bitter cold, they peered through the ice-covered window and saw the ten-year-old daughter of the farmer's wife with whom they lived take a completely naked baby of perhaps one year outside and hold her up until she had relieved herself. Lou was horrified, but the child will die. He said, "No," replied Streisauer. "If she is healthy, she will survive. That's how it is here in the country. Only the strong ones can survive." Lou was proud of his ability to provide for his men. By chance, a first-class cook from a good Austrian hotel had joined his company. This man was able to bake the famous Viennese pancakes. They are like the French crêpe Suzette. For all the men, while the company was marching, and the kitchen, of course, was on the move too, he adored Lou and proved this by always giving him an extra portion. But he was never satisfied with Lou's appetite. The first lieutenant is eating like a woman in childbed, he complained. To please Lou, he also fed a little colt, which had been born during a battle and was loved by all the men of the company. They often went without food for themselves. But they still fed the colt. Then one day the army took the colt away. They needed meat. That was a black day for all of Lou's men. Lou got typhoid in 1917, and after a few months was called back to Vienna, where he worked, still in uniform, with the general staff in the Ministry of War until the last day of the war. In the first years of our relationship, Lou was almost an enigma to me. I never had seen such modesty in a man before. He knew his value, but he never boasted. Different from all men I had met before, he felt deeply without the need to talk about it all the time. 
I had never trusted the feelings of actors. Men who love professionally every night project their feelings constantly to the outside and have to tell the whole world about themselves never seemed real men to me. Their only steady love affairs with themselves. I think it was the extreme honesty in Lou's feelings that attracted me so strongly to him. Those feelings were so overpowering that he, who wrote thousands of pages about economics and money, could not find the words to talk about himself and explain his feelings. Before we married, this love must have been a very distressing factor in his life, so upsetting that he knew he could fight a battle in the Carpathian Alps, but he could never win the battle against himself. He became frightened. I was the only woman he wanted to marry from the first moment he met her. He never changed his feelings or his mind about this decision. I knew that there were many young women who were desperately in love with him. His private seminar in Vienna had several female participants who tried their best to get his attention. He was interested in their careers, in their intellectual development, but completely indifferent toward them as women. Once he chided me, If you would not have been, I could have married a very rich heiress. Why didn't you? I asked him. We both would have lived very happily after. He rejected both my flippancy and my proposal. Another time I told him, Do you know that people revealed to me that you at one time were engaged to marry Dr. Lena Leister, a former student at his seminar? He laughed and said, Did you really believe it? Could you ever imagine me married to an economist? I really could not. Though I know many happily married couples who have the same profession. The wish to have me near him was constantly in him. He knew I needed a father for my children. He was aware of the fact that I gave them all the love and affection I was capable of. But children need more than a loving and doting mother. They need guidance and direction for their development. And I, as a mother alone, was well aware that I was not strong enough to give them what they deserved. Lou thought of the task he had set himself, the tremendous work that was ahead of him, all the writing he wanted to do. He bore the burden of making a frightening decision, the choice between his work and duty to his intellectual ideals on one hand, and a life of love and affection on the other. Soon after we became engaged, he grew afraid of marriage, the bond it would mean, the change that the children would bring to a quiet home. And the responsibilities that might detract him from his work. So it was a stormy relationship, the old problem of Adam and Eve. But we did not live in paradise, far from it. We never had a fight between us. Lou fought himself and then made me suffer. I was deeply in love with him now, a love so different from what I had ever felt before that I hardly knew myself anymore. Until then, I had always taken, I had been spoiled. Now I only wanted to give, 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 and I deeply felt it was exactly what he needed. We spent most of our vacations together. I usually rented a cottage in the country for the children and my mother, and Lou and I went mountain climbing. Other sports did not mean much to him. He played tennis, always with a trainer, but without enthusiasm. Once I watched him, when the ball was easy for him to reach, he returned it, otherwise, he did not bother. When I asked him, why don't you put a little more effort into your game? He replied, why should I? The fate of the ball does not interest me. He was a member of the athletic club in Vienna and dutifully went fencing once a week. 
but mountain climbing was the sport he really loved and excelled in. Before he went to Geneva, he also did some skiing. He had grown up in the mountains, and he spent four long years of war in the mountains, while I came from the sea. But I shared his love for hiking and climbing, and we were never nearer to each other than when we stood together at the top of a mountain. He had the correct training for climbing. Sometimes the sun would burn so hard that I would get tired and thirsty, but Lou allowed me no rest until we reached a certain goal or even the top. The beauty of the view, the wide open spaces that lay before our eyes, the difficulties of climbing we had overcome together, the loneliness around us that never seemed depressing when we were together, gave us both a deep inner feeling of completeness and happiness. It was then, he told me later, that I first knew what a good comrade you would be, but he was still not able to set a date for our marriage. Sometimes I did not see him for weeks, but I knew very well that he was in town. At least twice daily the telephone rang, and when I answered there was a silence at the other end of the line. Not a word was spoken. I knew it was Lou. He wanted to hear my voice. I also knew I should not make the first move if I really wanted to help him. I longed for him. His silence hurt me. I was miserable. But I did not call. And finally, after a while, without any explanation, he came to see me again. I knew by then that if he could not decide, I had to take the initiative. I had to act since he could not. It was necessary also on account of the children. I was so tormented, so torn to pieces that the children must have felt it. I urgently needed to find work that would take my thoughts away from myself. About this time, George Martin, the publisher, who was always interested in my work, I had done one or two translations for him, advised me to go to London for a while to get better acquainted with authors and writers, to get new plays for him, and to start translating as a career. At the same time, I could refresh my English. I followed his advice. Martin got the necessary letters of introduction, and in 1929 I sublet my apartment and left Vienna. I took Geta to Hamburg to stay with my mother, and left Guido with a professor's family in a suburb of Vienna. It was hard on the little boy, and he suffered under the separation as much as I did. In London, I lived all alone in a bleak, second-rate boarding house, which always smelled of food. That winter I experienced for the first time what it meant to be hungry. Often I didn't have the money for a sandwich or for a cup of tea for lunch. To save money, I walked to most of my appointments. Once I walked all the way from Bayswater to the Tower of London. When it was cold, I went to the National Gallery or into another museum to warm up. All the time I met new people, was introduced to writers and publishers, and succeeded in laying the groundwork for a future for the children and myself. But I never succeeded in forgetting Lou. I never wrote to him. But one day he came to London as the Austrian representative of the Chamber of Commerce to open an exposition of graphic illustrations on the progress of production in Austria since 1922. Lou himself had brought about this exhibition, and Hayek, as director of the Austrian Institute for Economic Research in Vienna, had compiled the tables. How Lou found my address I never knew. He immediately called me after his arrival, and the same evening we met again. From the first look, from the first moment, everything was as it had been before. We both knew it never would change. 
After a few months, I went back to Vienna, relieved to have my children staying with me again. I found that the work, together with my children, filled my days so completely that I had very little free time. I translated and adapted one or two plays a month. The work was always terribly urgent, and afterwards the plays were shelved, and the poor authors had to wait for months, years sometimes, before the plays were produced. I had a contract with Martin for every play, royalties in advance of production, and immediate cash for every rough translation I finished. I now needed a secretary to help me, and things looked better for the children and for me. Among the plays I translated were Mary of Scotland by Maxwell Anderson, Distaff Side by Van Druten, and Rebound by Donald Ogden Stewart, which was produced by Reinhardt at the Deutsche Theater in Berlin and at the Vienna Academia Theater. In 1932, I also wrote short stories for newspapers, which were printed in Der Weinertag. Work was in every way a lifesaver for me. This is a fact that I found to be true all through my life. Now it helped me to take care of my children, it helped me to keep hold of myself, and it helped me to regain my pride, which had suffered greatly during those years of uncertainty in my relationship with Lou. Maybe, once in a while, I should have refused to see him. But what would this have changed? My stay in London was proof enough that there was no way out for me. I loved him, and the longing to be with him was so strong I could not fight myself any more, and I knew only too well that he needed me also, in the way that a man dying of thirst needs a drink of water. Not that I could not have married again. There was Oscar Lovenstein, the always cheerful, elegant owner and publisher of the New Weiner Journal, whose sister-in-law was Gitta's godmother and who was in love with me for years. There was Sir Leonard Costello, then Chief of Justice in India, whom I had met in London and who came to Vienna to see me as often as his time allowed, waiting only for my word to get a divorce in spite of his high position. But I had told him how the situation was. He understood, and we stayed friends for life. After Lou and I were married, Sir Leonard flew from India to Paris to meet Lou. Both men understood each other very well. Though I liked these other men, there was nothing I could do. I just had to wait until Lou was ready. He had given me his books, Gemein Wirtschaft, later translated as Socialism, and Theorie des Geldes und der Umlaufsmittel, The Theory of Money and Credit, and I tried my best to get familiar with their content. It was difficult for me. I had lived in another world. It took years and much reading and many tears, intermingled with feelings of inferiority, before I understood the meaning of his teaching and his writings. But his most devoted students could not have been more convinced of the advantages of free enterprise and of freedom for the individual than I became. In those years, Lou traveled a great deal to foreign countries as the representative of the Austrian Chamber of Commerce. Never did he leave without first coming to see me and sending me the most beautiful arrangements of flowers. And as soon as he returned, the first thing he did was to see me. All those years he had held a secret superstition, which he later confessed to me, He must see me, he must be with me on January 1st each year, for that gave him the assurance that he would not lose me that year. Housing conditions in Vienna after the First World War, and even before, were especially unfavorable. To help people who were looking for an apartment, they introduced a new law, 
No family was to occupy more rooms than there were members of the family. The kitchen was not counted. If the apartment was too large, people were forced to let some rooms. Therefore, we who owned a large apartment faced the danger of having people living with us, people whom we did not even know. In my case, living alone and working at home, it would have been a special ordeal, but I was lucky. A friend of mine, coming back by boat from a visit in the United States, met Myra Finn with her little daughter Alice, age 11. Mrs. Finn had just been divorced from Oscar Hammerstein, wanted to travel, and was looking for a suitable place in Vienna for Alice to stay and learn German. My friend recommended me, and Mrs. Finn called on me. We liked each other, and after a while she left Vienna and Alice stayed on with us for more than a year. Since she was the same age as Gitta, I arranged for her to be in Gitta's class. The two girls became inseparable. A friendship developed that has lasted all through the years. Alice had suffered greatly from her mother's divorce. She adored her famous father, and it took all my love and care to make her smile again and relieve her from her depression. The summer after Alice left to join her mother in Switzerland, I sent Gitta to England to a boarding school in Kent, where she stayed for almost 18 months. When she came back, she wrote and spoke English as fluently as she wrote and spoke German. At that time, Gitta could not know how important the knowledge of languages would be for her future. One day, Lou told me that he had been offered a high position at the Credit Anstalt, the foremost banking institution in Vienna, but that he had decided not to accept it. When I asked him the reason for his refusal, he told me that a great crash would be coming and that he did not want his name to be in any way connected with it. He preferred to write and teach. If you want a rich man, he told me, don't marry me. I am not interested in earning money. I am writing about money, but will never have much of my own. I did not need to answer. He knew how I felt. It was only him who I wanted. When the stock market crashed in New York in October 1929, the effect was worldwide. An international depression followed. World trade was seriously affected. And in 1931, on May 11th, the Austrian credit on Stalt went into bankruptcy, exactly as Lou had told me beforehand. The Austrian government tried to save the bank and appealed for help abroad. France promised support, but under impossible conditions. At the last moment, England helped Austria with a loan of 150 million Austrian shillings to the Austrian National Bank, but the credit on Stalt could not be saved. This newest crash led to a financial crisis and a panic in all Central Europe. It was the beginning of the end. From then on, there was hardly a quiet day in Vienna. Hitler had used the fear, the despair, the insecurity in Germany to follow his own devilish purposes, and he succeeded so well in his evil designs that in January 1933 he became Chancellor of Germany. The consequence was a growing anti-government movement in Austria. In March 1933, Engelbert Dolfus, the Austrian Chancellor, whose government consisted of a coalition of Christian socialists and agrarians, prohibited parades and assemblies and restricted the freedom of the press. In spite of this, the Austrian Nazis, who now, unsuppressed, dared to come out in the open, staged a great riot in Vienna. The city looked like a fortress. The streets were full of soldiers. Shops and schools were closed. No one dared to go out.
The entrance doors of all buildings had to be closed at 8 o'clock p.m. After that hour, no citizen was allowed in the streets. There was Standreich in Vienna, which meant that the police had the power to shoot anyone who did not obey orders. Lou was very concerned about us. He called three and four times daily and asked me not to go out. But he himself went out, in spite of everything, and came to see us. I never knew how he found the time for all the work he was doing. He was, by then, the full-time legal advisor and financial expert of the Chamber of Commerce. He had his lectures at the University of Vienna. He had his seminar. He had conferences and luncheons with visiting authorities. He had to travel. He did a tremendous amount of reading and writing. And he always had time for me. He was so interested in my work. He read every play I was doing, constantly urging me to do some writing of my own, proposing one idea after the other. In later years, when I attended his seminar at New York University, there was not a single meeting when he did not suggest to his students the title of a new paper or an idea for a thesis. I remember I once advised Bettina Bien, take the titles down, they will make a book one day. In Vienna, he just poured out new ideas to me. He once told me to write a film of one of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales. Even today, only one or two of these beautiful stories have been filmed, and they certainly would be a delight to children all over the world. Early in July 1934, Lou went to Gastein, as he did every year, to take the baths. Shortly after he left, a group of Nazis in Austrian uniforms seized the radio station in Vienna and forced the commentators to broadcast the resignation of Dolphus, which of course was a lie. Then they entered the chancellery, shot Dolphus, and refused medical help to him until he died. Dolphus was immediately succeeded by Dr. Kurt von Schuschnigg, who fervently tried to keep Austria independent. Lou followed the political situation in Germany and Austria with passionate interest. He saw the slippery road the Austrian leaders were forced to take. He knew Hitler's rise to power would endanger Austria, and he knew exactly what the future would bring. Only the date was unknown to him. Lou was a typical Austrian. He loved his native country, the mountains, the city of Vienna, the beauty of the old palaces, the crooked streets, the fountains. But this, too, was something so deeply embedded in his soul, he rarely would talk about it. But I knew how he felt and how deeply he was hurt. In August 1934, I met Lou in Ferleiten, Tyrol. From there we took excursions into the mountains. One beautiful morning, it was August 23, 1934, we took the autobus into Hochmeis and then climbed via the Tuscher Torl up to Edelweisskopf, a mountain about 8,000 feet high. On top we rested and enjoyed the beautiful view, the wide range of the Alps before our eyes, and the peace and quiet around us. The sun was shining brightly, but we did not feel any heat. The strong wind cooled us. I had trouble keeping my wide dirndl skirt from blowing over my face and had to use both hands to keep it down. Lou laughed about my efforts. Then suddenly he said, You asked me recently why I am working here so much, against my habit of not working while on vacation. I want to tell you the reason. And he told me that he would leave Vienna in the beginning of October, for he had received an invitation from Professor William Rappard to join the faculty of L'Institut des Autitudes, the Graduate Institute of International Studies, in Geneva, Switzerland. 
Since this meant a great opportunity for him, he had accepted the appointment. When I heard him say that, it seemed as if the sun had suddenly gone down. My hands dropped. I could not speak. This was a blow that hit me harder than any chilling wind. I never thought he could leave like that. He took me in his arms, held me firmly, and went on. I'll see you often. Give me time. Trust me. I love you. I love you so much. Stay as you are. I need you. It took a long time before I could pull myself together. I felt the tears rushing to my eyes. I did not want to cry. I knew how unhappy it made him to see me crying. For Lou, this had been an unusually quick decision. He was usually so slow in deciding important matters that I once jokingly called him Fabius Concuctor. In taking leave of absence from the Chamber of Commerce, the University, and of me, he found the courage to tell me about it only after he had decided. But I believed and trusted him as I always did. He had never lied to me. We were never more in love than we were that summer. From Fairleiten we went to Hallein to see the Salzburg and before returning to Vienna we spent a week in Salzburg attending the Fest Spiele. Every day was a special day, and I tried to forget what I knew would be coming. In Vienna we met every day until the day he left, October 3rd, 1934. He wrote often from Geneva, telling me about the new apartment he had taken, the friends he had met, and his work at the Institute. He returned to Vienna at Christmas, and, as always, we spent much time together. The years went by. He came very often, sometimes in the middle of the week, for only a day or two. It was a blessing for me that I had so much work to do. Kurt Boas, the well-known Austrian actor, had acquired the rights for a play by Massingham, The Lake. He planned to produce the play himself and play the lead, and he asked me to do an adaptation for him. He was very happy about my work. Martin was also satisfied about another play that I had adapted from the French. It was done from Sardou's play Dora, and I called it Diplomacy and Love. It was accepted by the Académie Théâtre in Vienna and came out in a very good production with excellent reviews and, most pleasing for me, of course, commendations for the translator. On April 18, 1937, Lou's mother died. Lou came for the funeral and left soon afterward. That summer we spent again in the Austrian mountains. Everywhere we felt a change. When we were climbing a mountain near the German border, the villagers, who usually greeted us with Gruß Gott, may God be with you, now raised their arms and said Heil Hitler. At the top of the mountain, Germans and Austrians would not dine in the same room of the restaurant. It was a frightening experience. Earlier that summer, Lou had given me a wonderful birthday present, one that made me happy for the rest of my life. He had arranged with an auto driver's school in Vienna for me to take a driving course to get a driver's license, and he told me he had ordered a car. That Christmas he spent with me, and the first night he was in town, he took me to a very good restaurant for dinner. Suddenly he reached over the table, took my hand, and said so softly I could hardly hear him, I cannot go on further. I cannot live without you, darling. Let's get married. At first I thought I was dreaming. I had waited so long for this moment. Now it had come. I could not believe it. I remember that in the other corner of the restaurant sat a couple, 
long-time friends of mine, who knew about Lou and me. I felt like rushing over to them, shouting what had happened. I felt like a child who longs for Christmas and finally sees the tree lighted. And then everything became very quiet within me. I felt very small. I could not say a word, as usually happens to me when I am excited. I just sat and listened while he told me his plans. He set the wedding day in early April of the following year, during the Easter recess of the Institute in Geneva, so we could go on vacation together. In February 1938, he came again to Vienna to arrange the bands, an old Austrian custom that requires every couple intending to marry have their names and the date of their wedding publicly announced for six weeks at the doors of City Hall. But everything turned out differently than we had planned. Shortly after Lou left, the situation in Austria worsened. Bombs in telephone booths and Nazi demonstrations in the streets, combined with violence, were daily events. Schuschnigg made an appointment to see Hitler in Berchtesgaden, hoping to be able to arrange for better relations with Germany. It was in vain. Hitler would not even listen to Schuschnigg. He shouted constantly and accused Austria and Schuschnigg of high treason. He put up a grand act. In the end, Schuschnigg was forced to sign an agreement, the famous Berchtesgaden Accord, which a few weeks later became the basis for the end of Austria as an independent nation. To give every Austrian citizen the opportunity to decide for himself whether he wanted to belong to Germany or keep his independence, Schuschnigg announced on March 9th a general plebiscite for March 13th. Hitler was afraid of the result, and in order to prevent it, he sent German troops into Austria. When the Germans marched into Vienna, I sent Lou a cryptic telegram. Everything quiet here, no need to come. I was afraid that Lou might not realize how dangerous the situation had become for him. On the night the Nazis came to Vienna, they had rushed into the apartment where he had lived with his mother, had taken his valuable library, his writings, his documents, and everything they found of importance, packed it all into thirty-eight cases, and drove away. Worse still, Lou was also on the Russian blacklist. Lou's writings were hated by socialists of every type, Nazis, communists, fascists, and, as I later found out, American socialists as well. It would have been impossible for him to return to Vienna. He sent me a carefully worded telegram asking Gitta and me to come to Geneva as quickly as possible. Cautiously, I started my preparations. I told no one that I intended to leave, for I knew how dangerous even friends could become. I packed as many of our belongings as possible. Before we left, I had to see the judge who took care of my children at the court of guardianship. I asked him to release as many of our funds as possible, which he did. How I envy you that you can get away from here, he said, shaking my hand warmly as I departed. I never got back what was left of the money. I never had a feeling of danger for Gitta and myself. Our Hungarian passport was still considered a good protection, but I realized that if anyone might have occasion to read the marriage ban for Lou and me, which according to the Austrian laws was publicly advertised, they might take more interest in Gitta and me than would be good for us, and we might have difficulties getting away. It may sound like irony of fate that just then, shortly before the tragic events of the month of March 1938, the last play I had adapted from the French for the German stage 
was accepted by the Deutsche Volkstheater in Vienna. The play was Liberté by Denise Armiel. It was never produced. I won't ever forget those last days in Vienna. The first day the Nazis marched into Vienna, they began tormenting and torturing their political enemies, as well as the Jews. One day I walked along the Graben, one of the most elegant streets in Vienna. I saw how young people had climbed to the top of the Pestiole, a monument, to watch the Jews washing the streets. Whenever a German soldier or officer passed, the poor people had to step down into the gutter accompanied by howling, roaring laughter of the crowd. Each day the situation in Vienna worsened. The Austrian Nazis, who before Hitler's appearance had not dared to show their sympathies openly, now proudly displayed their party badges. In St. Stephen's Cathedral, a huge picture of Hitler was hung, and the Catholic Church, led by Cardinal Initzer, swore allegiance to the Nazis. The Nazis, fearing the decision of the Austrian population, prevented the plebiscite scheduled for March 13th, assembled German troops at the frontier, and Schuschnigg, unable to resist, had to resign. Seyus Inkwart, a former Viennese lawyer, took over the government. He was ordered by the Nazis to send a telegram to Berlin demanding the entrance of additional German troops to prevent further riots. On March 14th, Hitler marched into Vienna, the city where he had lived as a pauper in a flop house, painting and selling postcards. That night he made his first speech over the radio. His voice still rings in my ears. I shall never forget it. It was rough, throaty, and vulgar, but it had an almost unbearable strength combined with the hypnotic power of persuasion. As much as his voice frightened me, I listened to the very end. That same night, Chancellor Schuschnigg spoke for the last time to the Austrian people with a simple and touching broadcast, his voice trembling with unwept tears. Tonight, he said, I take leave of the Austrian people with only a few words of farewell coming from the depth of my heart. May God help and protect Austria. The last visit I made in Vienna was to a friend of Lou's and mine, Dr. Weiss von Wellenstein, Secretary General of the Central Association of Austrian Industry. I had known him and his beautiful, elegant wife, who had died a few years before, since my first days in Vienna. In spite of his great loss, Dr. von Wellenstein kept the household running as smoothly as before, for their three maids had been with them for years. Though Lou and I had never met at their house, they had a very large social circle. Dr. von Wellenstein knew about Lou and me, and I felt it my duty to bid farewell to him before parting. He was very lonely at that time. People abstained from visiting each other, for they had to avoid going into the streets. He was happy to see me, and happy to hear about our forthcoming marriage. You are going to marry the greatest mind Austria has produced in this last century, he told me, but I don't believe you are fully aware of the difficulties that lie ahead of you. Ludwig von Mises is not easy to handle. He is obstinate, will never change his mind once he is convinced he is right, and he will rather have an enemy than make concessions or deviate from his convictions. Your life won't be easy. I do wish you luck. Little did he know how much I already knew, and more. A few days after Schuschnigg's farewell, Himmler's SS troops and the Gestapo arrived. 
and a real Holocaust started. Communists, social democrats, and liberals were arrested by the police and Gestapo agents, taken into prisons and police stations, tortured and often beaten to death. Shushnig himself was put into prison and later sent to a concentration camp where he was lucky enough to meet his future wife. He never went to trial. Years later, when he came to New York, he came to see us several times. He taught for 20 years at an American college, St. Louis University, retired in 1968, settled down in Innsbruck, Austria, and died in a small village, Mutters, near Innsbruck, on November 18, 1977. During all this turmoil, I had been in constant communication with Lou, who urged me to leave as quickly as possible. This was not as simple as we would have liked it to be. Everyone who wanted to cross the border needed permission from the government. Austria was always a bureaucratic country, but now the difficulties placed in the way of a would-be traveler were unimaginable. Luckily, I managed to get all the necessary documents. When, on March 26th, Gitta and I came to Vienna Westbahnhof and took our seats in the express train for Zurich, I felt relieved as never before. Guido, my son, had been in an English boarding school for a year. Always somewhat adventurous, he later went to Caracas, Venezuela, married and settled there. He would have been perfectly happy if it had not been for the separation from me. But now I did not want to think of anything, though evidently the excitement was not over. Police officers, Gestapo agents, SS men, one after the other, came into the compartments of our railway coach to inspect our passports and examine our documents. When finally the wheels began to move, when the train left the station and gathered speed, I took a deep breath. We had made it. We were free. Chapter 3. Life in Geneva Lou was at the station in Zurich to meet us. In the thirteen years we shared before our marriage, I had never seen Lou cry. Nor did I ever see him cry in all the thirty-five years of our married life. He wept, unrestrained and unabashed. Tears were streaming down his face, and he was not ashamed of them. He took me in his arms, he kissed Gitta, he embraced me again and again as if he would never let me go. The happenings of the recent weeks, the horrible fate of Austria, the anxiety he had gone through, all this must have been an unbearable strain on him worsened by the distance between us and the feeling of helplessness at not being able to act. In Geneva, Lou had taken rooms for Gitta and me in a comfortable boarding house. It could have been less comfortable, and we would have enjoyed it. The terror of the past few weeks still lingered in my mind. Though nothing really had happened to me, I had been constantly conscious of the danger around us. Our freedom was at stake. I could not do what I wanted to do. There were spies everywhere, spies who watched you, misinterpreted the simplest of your actions, and reported you. Household employees who had grown old with families they lived with suddenly became enemies. Children were taught to observe their parents and report on them. The Germans had organized everything so thoroughly beforehand that it only took a few days for freedom to turn into tyranny. But now we were free again and I felt easier. Lou showed us the apartment he lived in, and which, he thought, I could share. The furniture was first class and beautifully kept, but the whole apartment looked to me like a display in a department store. 
It was cold and impersonal. For the first time I saw a refrigerator. We did not have them yet in Vienna, and it was a real marvel to me. I loved Lou's sparkling kitchen, but otherwise I had my doubts. The apartment was small, just large enough for a bachelor. I would not have known where to put my belongings. We soon arranged to send Gitta to a French boarding school in Lucerne to learn the language thoroughly. She had studied French for eight years, and in the past few years I had retained a charming French lady to practice conversation with Gitta and me at home. But I wanted her to know the language as well as she knew English. Both Lou and I appreciated the power of languages. I did not tell him my feeling about the apartment. There was too much on his mind right then. He had to procure all the documents for our marriage certificate, and, if I remember well, he needed nineteen documents, five lawyers, and three months and ten days of preparation before we could marry. But these three months were a happy time for the three of us. Lou showed us Geneva and its lovely surroundings. Geneva may well be called one of the most beautiful cities of the world. The city overlooks Lake Geneva and the Rhone River, and you can see the Cathedral of St. Pierre, built in the 12th century, from wherever you are. It was in the cathedral that Calvin delivered his thunderous sermons more than 400 years ago. All around the lake are gardens and parks in which to promenade, or to enjoy an afternoon snack at one of the coffee houses or pastry shops. Geneva is also one of the cleanest cities I know. I was amazed to see building superintendents hose the streets every morning until they were as clean and sparkling as linen sheets. The frankness and honesty of the Swiss population was a steady source of wonder to me. You could leave a baby for hours unattended in a perambulator in the street. Nothing would happen. In Austria they would empty the baby carriage but leave the child undisturbed. In America, according to my later experiences, they would most probably kidnap the baby. Every Sunday, as all the Genevois did, we went by car, Lou owned a Ford, over the border into France, almost as easy a procedure as driving from New York City to Connecticut. Although you had to stop at the border where a customs officer would look at your passport in your car and note down the license number, he would smile at you, give you a wave, then off you would drive, over the border into France to have your dinner. In Switzerland, the Guide Michelin played the same important part as it did in France. Even among the many learned men I met in my two years stay in Geneva, Michelin's recommendations were of great importance for the regular Sunday excursions. They were as indispensable to them as the thesaurus is to the linguist. It was sometimes amusing, and almost a relief for me, when these prominent scholars interrupted or ended their serious discussions with plans and suggestions for next Sunday's dinner excursion. But it was less amusing when Lou one day prepared me for our future social contacts and told me, here in Geneva, when men talk, women have to be silent. They only listen. I would not believe it. It seemed most odd to me in a modern cultivated society. But it was like this with the professors of the Institute, and I do hope it has changed by now. Lou gave me another piece of advice. Never ask an economist about his wife. He may already be divorced. One afternoon, Lou and I went to buy our wedding rings. He took as much time and care in choosing a small, thin, golden wedding ring as it might have taken Botticelli to design one of his most elaborate pieces of jewelry. In late June, shortly before our wedding day, while we were having tea at one of the restaurants on the lake, 
we met Professor Hans Kelsen. Lou had spoken often of Kelsen and considered him a good friend. They were born in the same year. They went to primary school together. They had been classmates at the Vienna Academic Gymnasium. They had studied for some time at the same university in Vienna, and now they both taught at L'Institut des Altitudes in Geneva. Hans Kelsen was a professor of international law and was world famous. In 1920, he had written the new Austrian constitution, and from 1920 to 1930, he was the senior judge of the Austrian Constitutional Court. He was small and slim, but well proportioned. His eyes, under sharp glasses, always had a humorous twinkle. He was kind and easy to talk to. Lou introduced me, told him about our marriage plans, and asked him to be one of our witnesses. Never have I seen anyone more surprised than Kelsen. He was speechless. I can't believe it, he said. No one ever would have expected Mises to marry. He always spoke of Lou as Mises, apparently a reminiscence from their school years. Everyone expected him to be a bachelor for life. But Kelsen was a pleasant man, and I felt I had won a new friend. Finally, Lou had the rings and the necessary documents. The marriage was fixed for July 6th at 11 a.m. The day before, I told him that it was customary for the groom to give the bride a small bouquet of flowers. I knew he would not have known. The next day, I received a beautiful bouquet of blue and pink sweet peas, my favorite flowers. Our second witness was Professor Gottfried von Haberler, also from Vienna, a former student of Lou's, and at that time working as a financial expert at the League of Nations. Professor Haberler had gotten his first job with Lou's help. As had many others. At a time when jobs were almost impossible to get, Lou had secured a job for Havelaar with the Chamber of Commerce in Vienna. It was five minutes to eleven when we entered the registry office to be married. Lou, clad in a formal dark suit, was very quiet, his face almost emotionless. I wore a royal blue outfit made in Vienna for this occasion. My heart was beating so hard I thought everyone could hear it. The registry office was somber and dull, as all public offices are. I was astonished that it did not smell of Lysol. My flowers brought the only touch of gaiety and color to the disappointingly depressing ceremony. At 11.05 a.m., everyone had signed the certificate. I was Mrs. Ludwig von Mises. Lou kissed me, conventionally, hastily, conscious of all the people around us. But he also took my hand and pressed it firmly and warmly, as if he wanted to tell me, You know how I feel. This kiss does not mean anything. And then everyone congratulated us and kissed my hand. Lou had invited some friends for luncheon at the Hotel de Burgess. Everything was carefully arranged, and the little party was a great success. For the first time, I met more of the colleagues with whom he was in close contact the professors Gottfried von Haberler, Hans Kelsen, William Rappard, Wilhelm Ropke, and their wives. Of all the people I met in Geneva, Professor Rappard was my favorite. He, like Churchill, had an American mother. His father was Swiss. He spoke four languages fluently without the least bit of accent. He was the founder of the Institut des Altitudes and a great thinker and writer, but also a devoted family man. Everything about him was elegant his movements, his appearance, his way of walking, his speeches, his way of living. It was an inborn elegance, a gift of nature. You have it or you don't. One cannot acquire it. He had a great admiration for Lou and showed it with frequent invitations for us to visit his lovely home far from the center of town. 
Madame Rappard was the motherly type, a wonderful warm personality, mostly interested in the well-being of her family. After our marriage, I moved in with Lou. Gitta, as already mentioned, had been enrolled some weeks before at La Marjolaine, un pension de jeune fille in Lucerne. Without a word, Lou took care of all financial matters concerning the children. Gitta liked her school in Lucerne, but she preferred to stay with us, and she came as often as possible. From the time Lou first came to Geneva in 1934, he had a housekeeper, Tiny, whom he had inherited from the Kelson family. Lou had often told me about her before I left Vienna, what an excellent worker she was, and how she terrorized him. She came in the morning and left around five in the evening. She had a lover on whom she was completely dependent. The lover stayed in the background. No one ever saw him or knew his name or occupation. But he was a force with whom I had to contend. If he needed money, usually toward the end of the month, Tiny had a special method of attaining her end. She banged the doors from the moment she came in and never stopped using the vacuum cleaner, a terror to Lou when he was writing. Then he knew she would come and demand more money. Being alone and in need of her services, he always gave in. When we married, no one thought I would be able to get along with her, in spite of all her good qualities. But I understood and appreciated her. She was the neatest person I ever had working for me, and she was a perfect cook. I did not want to lose her. When, after a short time, I found she had been charging us quite a bit extra for household shopping purchases, I very kindly advised her that in the future I would help her with the shopping. After all, she had so much extra work now because of me. I would also try to get her off earlier in the afternoon, I told her, so she could have more of a home life herself. She was so frail and thin, so unattractive, that I could hardly imagine the relationship between her and a lover. It must have been a one-sided affair. When we were in New York during the war, I tried to reach her. I wanted to help, send her things she might need, but she had disappeared. No one, not even the police, could find a trace of her. Something terrible must have happened, and I still think of her with great pity. She stayed with us until our last day in Geneva. She even brought us to the bus that took us to France. The evening after our marriage, when Lou and I took our first dinner at home, Tiny, of course, was not in. From the day of our marriage, Lou was a changed person. Not that he spoiled me with gifts or presents. He would not have known how to do that. But he was relaxed, affectionate, and his eyes were sparkling with happiness. Every little thing I did was of interest to him. The world had changed for him. He once told me, You are like a kitten, so soft and tender. I only hope you won't show the claws later on. How often he had teased me. I hope you are not like so many women. Once they get that certain little piece of paper, they give up. During our first month together, when we were invited out, he even chose the dress he wanted me to wear that night. But slowly he convinced himself that I could do no wrong, and he left the choice to me. But there was one thing about him that I never understood and still don't understand. From the day of our marriage, he refused to talk about our past. If I reminded him now and then of something, he cut me short. It was as if he had put the past in a trunk, stored it in the attic, and thrown away the key. In thirty-five years of marriage, he never, never, not with a single word, referred to our life together during the thirteen years before our marriage. As the past was part of my life, part of the person I became, I could not forget. His silence about the past remains in my mind like a crossword puzzle 
that one cannot solve because one needed letter is missing. Lou was overpowering in his love and affection for me. Never was he cross or dissatisfied with anything I did. He could not nag. There was not one day to the very end of his life that he did not tell me, I love you, darling. Oh, how I love you. It seemed to me, after our marriage, that for the first time in his life he really felt fulfilled and happy. I often asked myself, why does he love me so much? The answer, I felt, was the contrast between us that attracted him and made him feel complimented. I sometimes joked and said, I am the human touch in your life. And then he would say, you are more than that, and there are more reasons that I love you so much. One of the reasons is that you have an even temper. You are always in a good mood. It certainly is enough if one in the family is gloomy and loses his temper. And that was true. His temper was as astonishing as it was frightening. Occasionally he showed terrible outbursts of tantrums. I do not really know what else to call them. I had already experienced them in Vienna on various occasions. Suddenly his temper would flare up, mostly about a small, unimportant happening. He would lose control of himself, start to shout and say things, which coming from him were so unexpected, so unbelievable, that when it happened the first few times I was frightened to death. Whatever I said would enrage him even more. It was impossible to reason with him. So I kept silent or went out of the room. Sometimes I could not help myself and cried when I was alone. But it never took long, and he followed me to my room or wherever I was. He could not bear to see me crying. He took me in his arms, he kissed me again and again and started to apologize. I stopped him. I could not be angry with him. I pitied him too much. I gradually realized that these outbursts had nothing to do with me. I was there, I belonged to him, I loved him, and in my presence he could find relief from his suffering. And I learned to understand that these terrible attacks were really a sign of depression, a hidden dissatisfaction and the sign of a great, great need for love. These occurrences became less frequent after we were married, and after a few years they disappeared completely. In retrospect, I judge these attacks differently, and I believe I understand the reason for them. Lou wrote some notes in 1940, and I read them again and again. He wrote of Austria and of Karl Menger, who as early as 1910 recognized that not only Austria, but the whole world was getting nearer to a catastrophe. Lou, thinking alike, tried to fight this with all the means he had at his disposal. But he recognized the fight would be hopeless, and he got depressed, as were all the best minds in Europe in the 20s and the 30s. He knew that if the world would turn its back to capitalism and liberalism, in the old sense of the word, it would tumble into wars and destruction that would mean the end of civilization. This terrible fight against corruption, against the foes of liberty and free market, had broken the spirit of Menger had thrown a dark shadow over the life of Lou's teacher and friend, Max Weber, and had destroyed the vitality and the will to live of his friend and collaborator, Wilhelm Rosenberg. Theirs was a fight for a world that did not want to be helped. Few people recognized the danger, and even fewer were ready to fight alongside Lou. It was like being on a sinking ship on which people were dancing, though the end was near. Lou recognized the danger. He knew how to help his fellow passengers. He tried to lead them to the right exit, but they did not follow him, and now doom knocked at the door. When Lou and I came to the United States, he saw the greatness of the country, and he believed in the future of America. 
He hoped he would be able to resist socialists, communists, and inflationists alike. Inflation was the great peril he had always warned of. He got new hope. The attacks I mentioned above disappeared. The veil of depression left his soul, and with new hope and energy he took up his work in this country. How he would judge the situation today, I don't dare think. As astonishing as it may sound, Lou adapted more quickly to marriage than I did. For me, life had changed completely. I was living in another country in an environment completely different from my circle of friends in Vienna. I had to live in an apartment large enough for a bachelor, but far too small for a couple. Lou actually never realized it. He had his studio, his books, and his desk. From the beginning, his room was a sanctuary that could not and must not be changed. What made it so difficult for me was the awareness that I had to change my pattern of life completely if I wanted to make him happy. And that was what I wanted. He knew this could only be done if I could make his life my work. His work should be more important to me than anything I could do, and only if I could keep this feeling alive in me would our marriage be the success he was hoping for. We stayed in Geneva until August, and gradually I became better acquainted with Lou's friends and colleagues. I grew very close to Mrs. Ripke. Whenever she could help me with advice, she did so. We met the Ripkes socially very often. Lou thought highly of Professor Ripke. He had shown the courage to resist the Nazis openly though he knew very well that he could never return to Germany as long as they were at the helm of the government. Nor did he want to. The Repkes had twin daughters, very pretty young girls, who were always moving around on their bicycles, even going to the border into France to shop for their mother. Never before had I seen so many bicycles. At lunchtime, when the people went home from offices, shops, and schools, hordes of bicycle riders were moving over the bridges and around the lake. Lovers would often ride together, the boy holding his arm around the shoulder of the girl, a terror to the motorists. Driving was more dangerous in Geneva than it is at rush hour in New York. Besides the professors Rapard, Kelsen, and Rupke, there were many famous scholars teaching at the Institute. Professor Paul Manteau, co-director of the Institute, whose son Etienne was Lou's special favorite. Then there were professors Louis Baudin, Guglielmo Ferrero, and Pittman Potter. Most of these scholars seemed to me a newcomer and complete stranger, like the gods in Greek mythology, distant, remote, and impenetrable. In retrospect, I am sure that I was completely wrong. I simply looked upon them with the same awe that students who did not know Lou looked upon him. I was wrong because, like all human beings, these men had gone through suffering. All of them had their share of personal disappointments. Professor Ferrero, the famous historian and author, was very tall, with a tiny goatee, always impeccably dressed in a dark gray or black suit. He had not only lost his country when Mussolini had come to power, he had lost his only son. Neither he nor his wife would ever smile again. Then there was Professor Maurice Bourquin, who was head of the International Department of Law at the University of Geneva and who taught diplomatic history at the Institute. His marital difficulties were known to everyone at the Institute, but they were discreetly concealed until he and his beautiful, elegant wife were finally reconciled. Often, well-known politicians and scholars were invited for lectures at the Institute. Among them was Professor Lionel Robbins, and he made a special impression on me. Not only his interesting face, crowned by a beautiful head of hair shining like silver, 
and his vigorous and spirited speeches, but also his reverence for Lou and his ideas affected me deeply. In 1934, he had written a brilliant foreword for my husband's Theory of Money and Credit, which was published in Germany in 1912 and was republished in 1981 by the Liberty Fund in Indianapolis. Whenever we came to London and met Lionel Robbins, later Lord Robbins, he always proved himself to be a specially charming host. Two weeks after Lou and I were married, we invited the students in Lou's summer course for tea. There were many Americans among them. I remember one of them was the niece of Christopher Morley. It was a gay afternoon, and the windows were open to let the warm summer breeze flow through the rooms. When the lights were turned on, all the young people were still with us. Some neighbors called up to complain about the noise. In the four years he had lived in his apartment, that had never before happened to Professor von Mises. I was amused about it, but I knew I had to be more careful in the future, for Lou was not amused at all. In spite of the gay parties, the atmosphere in Geneva was becoming more gloomy. Every night we listened to the radio and followed the political events in Germany. Austria had been swallowed up, and Hitler made no secret of his intentions toward Czechoslovakia. I got letters from people all over the world asking me to send tea, coffee, or chocolate to their relatives and friends in Germany and Austria. Sometimes we even sent hard-boiled eggs. We helped whenever we could. Our living room looked like a miniature Red Cross office. I was always writing, packing, shipping. In August, we went on vacation, first to Plombier in France, a beautiful summer resort where Gitta stayed with us, then via Nancy to Paris, where Lou had to attend a meeting. Lou drove all the way, and as much as I love him and admire his genius, I must confess I never felt safe with him in a car. He was not a good driver. He was so tense at the wheel that a conversation was impossible. His lips were firmly pressed together, as if he were about to challenge the most dangerous obstacle. Heavy traffic made him nervous, but he would never confess his difficulties or let me drive, though he knew I had a license. Believe it or not, he loved to drive, and I did not want to take this pleasure away from him, though sometimes we were in real danger. I remember once when we went up a narrow curving road to the top of a mountain, the car suddenly was half hanging over a precipice, only the back part still on the ground. Trembling, we got out of the car. Other people had to help us back up. We drove on. Lou never said a word about the danger we had been in. Neither did I. On the trip through France, everything went well. When we came to Paris, Lou parked the car on the outskirts of town to avoid the traffic. Here for the first time, I met Dr. Lucy Friedman, a former professor of French in Vienna, who later became a very close friend of mine, and who, three years later, married Professor Louis Rougier, an outstanding scholar and personality, one of Lou's closest friends. Lucy is one of the most feminine women I know. With clear blue eyes, her face bears the expression of a naughty Madonna. I had met Professor Rougier before, in Geneva, when he came to see Lou, and I quietly listened when he spoke to Lou about Benjamin Constant and the book he was writing about him. Lou had asked Lucy, who knew Paris almost better than she knew Vienna, to reserve a room for us in a good hotel. She made a reservation in a hotel the like of which I never thought existed. It had a bathroom, which was not a real room with closed walls and doors. It was only a tub and a toilet, separated by a thin partition with no ceiling above it. 
This was supposed to be our honeymoon apartment in Paris. Even worse were the beds. I was frightened to undress and lie down. After a sleepless night, we moved out at nine the next morning and went to the Hotel Monsigny, where we felt more comfortable. Lucy's explanation for recommending the other hotel was that, with the view of the Palais Royal, with the geraniums right before your eyes, history will come to life for you right where you are. In this case, even Lou renounced history for a good clean bed and a real bathroom. The conference in Paris was arranged by Professor Rougier for August 26th through the 30th, 1938, and its main purpose was the discussion of Walter Lippmann's The Good Society, which had just been published in France under the title La Cité Libre. In this book, Walter Lippmann tried to explain the shortcomings of the Manchester School. The main purpose of the meeting was to show that the free market economy, if completely unhampered, would well satisfy the needs of the present world. As a result of the conference, Le Centre International pour la Vénévation de Liberalisme, the International Centre for the Revival of Liberalism, was founded, but because of the war it was forced to close in 1940. This meeting was attended by many economists and journalists. There I first met Walter Lippmann, with whose views, then and in the future, Lou did not always agree. For the first time, I also met Professor F.A. von Hayek. He was already famous and was teaching at the London School of Economics. In January 1927, when Lou founded the Austrian Institute for Business Research in Vienna, Das Österreichische Konjunkturinstitut, he did so not only because he thought it would be imperative for Austria, but, according to Mrs. Wolf Tieberger, Lou's secretary, because he had to help Hayek find the right start in life, and so he nominated him to be director of the institute. Lou's interest in Hayek never waned, and Professor Hayek's affection and regard for Lou have always warmed my heart. Hayek is the Vienna scholar who, more than any of the others who studied there with Lou, kept his views and writings close to Lou's teachings. As the years passed, Hayek and Lou became very good friends, a natural result of their mutual congenial convictions. Years later, in 1962, when Hayek left the University of Chicago to go to the Freiburg University in Germany, Lou was invited to attend a banquet in Chicago in Hayek's honor. My husband could not attend, but he sent a written contribution which, giving as it does so much credit to Hayek, I feel is a credit to Lou's own modesty and humbleness. This speech, Professor Hayek told me, was never read, nor was it ever given to Hayek. He had no idea it even existed. I cannot find any explanation for this incident, he said. Neither can I. The reader will find it as Appendix 2 at the end of this book. We returned to Geneva in September when Lou's seminar started. He taught only two hours weekly, every Saturday from 9 to 11 a.m. The rest of the time he was busy writing. At that time, he still had the habit of working late at night. Often it was after 1 a.m. when he went to bed, very, very carefully not to disturb me. But I heard him anyway. In 1938, he was not only working on National Economy, the German predecessor of his monumental treatise Human Action, he was also reading the galley proofs of the French translation of De Geimen Wirtschaft, Socialism. He still wrote in German, though his lectures were held in English and French. Everything he wrote was first done in longhand. He never used a typewriter. Since he had a very efficient secretary at the Institute, 
His tremendous correspondence and the copying of his manuscripts were done at the office. From the very beginning, Lou showed me what he had written, but at that time I was still too conscious of my lack of economic knowledge to dare to make any suggestions. Only once, I remember, did I make a remark which must have had some meaning to him. When I read his reviews about free enterprise and the free market, I told him that I felt that the most important fact about the free market was that it helps poor people. They are able to get more consumer goods and they make a better living this way than under a socialist system. Therefore, this fact should be emphasized and brought out as clearly as possible. He looked at me, thought for a moment, and then he said, I guess you are right. I can't say, of course, how far it influenced him. Though I had nothing to do with his work, I was fully occupied at all times. I was taking courses in French literature at the university and had a lot of reading to do for my classes, and we were seeing many guests. At least twice weekly we had dinner guests, or, what was more customary in Geneva, luncheon guests. That was no difficulty for me then. We had a cook and a dining room. I only had to prepare the menu, do the shopping, set the table, and arrange the flowers. These gatherings were really international. Sometimes the discussion was in three or four languages because many diplomats and journalists had joined our circle. The Austrian ambassador, Baron von Flugel, later in exile, was a frequent guest at our table, and as much as Lou loved to talk to him, these conversations always left him depressed. In May 1939, Lou went to Paris for a few days, without me, to deliver a lecture about the non-neutrality of money at the École Pratique des Attitudes, and in the first days of July he gave a much-discussed lecture at the Student Union Institute of the World Affairs about the economics of autarky. At that time we could still travel, and often, if only for a short trip, we went to France. Traveling with Lou was, for me, a private course in history and art. His intellectual curiosity was boundless. What he had not known before he had to dive into. But he never consulted a Baedeker or a Fodor. These things he knew. The only guide he ever referred to was the Guide Michelin, for he was a great lover of good French cuisine. Often on a Sunday, when we stayed in Geneva, we climbed to the top of Mount Saleva, the so-called house mountain of Geneva. You can either walk up, go by car, or use the téléphérique, a sort of cable car. From the top you have a wonderful far view over the Alps and the Jura Mountains. The whole excursion takes only three hours by foot, and you can easily be back home for lunch or dinner. Lou's seminar started at 9 a.m. He was always very punctual, so we had to get up each Saturday at 6.30 a.m. Shaving, bathing, and dressing took him almost an hour and a half. I get my best ideas while I shave, he used to say. I have written books during that time. I, too, was punctual, and still am. Punctuality gets into one's blood once one has been on the stage. The responsibility is too great. And, being married to Lou, this was indeed helpful. Whatever he had to do and wherever he had to be, he was always ready before the appointed time. I remember only too well when we met in Vienna for our dinner appointments. Our rendezvous place was usually the Stock im Eisen, a landmark building at the corner of Graben and Kartnerstrasse, two minutes from my home. Once in a while I would beat him to the rendezvous and then hide and watch him arriving and waiting at the corner. He would look around impatiently, take a few steps to one side, go back from where he came, look to the other side, inspect his watch, fiddle with his necktie, and walk again a few steps to the other side. 
But when I appeared, he was suddenly completely composed. Not the slightest gesture would betray his former impatience, nor did he say anything, but he surely did not like to wait. When we went out for dinner in Geneva, as early as I started, Lou was always waiting for me. He once told me that Bon Bavarc, the great economist, told his students, Gentlemen, you will all get married one day. You will all, at one time or another, have to wait for your wives. Always have a book handy. You will get a lot of reading done this way. We often went to the theater in Geneva, and though I felt the standard of the local productions was low, once in a while a famous French company came over from Paris. These performances were really great. Whenever we were in the theater or in the opera and the curtains went up, Lou at once became so concentrated, so absorbed, there was an immediate communication between him and the stage. I would say he even forgot about me. He was the ideal public for all actors and singers. This tremendous power of concentration, which he also showed while reading or writing, was for me an explanation not only of his remarkable memory, but also his health. As concentrated as he was in his work, so he was in his sleep. If Lou wanted to rest wherever he was, in a car, in an airplane, in his bed, at night or during the day, he lay down, put a handkerchief over his eyes, and the world was gone. He was asleep. Lou's capacity for sleep whenever he needed it was, in my opinion, one of the reasons for his physical well-being and his amazing intellectual output. Our life in Geneva was steadily involved in and influenced by politics. The signing of the Nazi-Soviet Non-Aggression Pact in August 1939, Hitler's so-called peace speech to the Germans on the evening of August 31, 1939, in which he claimed that all his peace proposals to Poland had been rejected, were followed by us on the radio with the greatest excitement. We knew Hitler lied. While he spoke, his SS men, dressed in Polish uniforms, were blowing up the German radio stations in Poland, and the German artillery was crossing the border. This trick, German soldiers dressed in foreign uniforms, was used everywhere. Hitler's bombers were flying over Polish landing fields, destroying Polish planes on the ground. The German troops moved with such unbelievable speed that Poland was, in fact, defeated in a few hours. The Western powers clearly knew the next decision had to be theirs. When, on September 3rd, Chamberlain told the British Parliament that Great Britain and France were, from this day on, at war with Germany, it meant the beginning of the most horrible war in history, and, for me personally, the beginning of a never-ending fear for Lou. Switzerland immediately prepared for the worst. The Swiss are a peace-loving people. For three centuries they had lived in harmony with three neighbors, three languages, and three regions. They had an excellently equipped small modern army, a sort of standing militia. Every Swiss citizen had to report for military duty once yearly, and the general feeling was enthusiasm for peace, a hatred for aggression, and the knowledge that only a well-equipped army could protect them against war. One of the first actions of the Swiss government was the requisitioning of all foreign-made cars. Lou was one of the first who got the order to deliver his beloved Ford. He never saw it again. Though the Swiss government paid him a small remuneration for his car, on the whole the automobile investment was a loss. From the moment of the French and English declaration of war, the atmosphere in Geneva completely changed. Refugees from the newly occupied countries arrived daily. Hotels and apartments were filled, and streets and coffee houses were crowded. 
but along with the newcomers came Hitler's spies. The atmosphere, once so tranquil and peaceful, was now filled with rumors. Fear touched everyone. The Sunday excursions to France had to stop. People also avoided going to restaurants for dinner and taking afternoon tea in the beautiful gardens at the lake. One did not know who might be sitting at the next table to overhear the conversation. Friends met at private houses where, as early as September 1939, dark shades had to be installed and not a gleam of light was allowed to show through the windows. Geneva gradually became a haven for many well-known refugees, among them many German and Austrian authors. Robert Musil was one of them, and he often came to see us. He was a novelist too, though born in Austria, preferred to live in Berlin. Ruined by inflation, he went from Berlin to Vienna, but when the Nazis came in 1938, he had to emigrate again. He died in Geneva in 1942 in utmost poverty. Only now his importance is fully recognized. Again and again his books are reviewed and analyzed. Among them was The Man Without Qualities, a novel in three volumes, the last of which was published as a fragment after his death in 1943. Rhoda Rhoda was another of the refugee authors who frequently visited with us. Originally an officer in the German army, he was well known for his political satires and witty short stories, formerly published in the German magazines Simplicissimus and Jugend. He always wore a red vest. No one had ever seen him without it. More than ever, his stories were laughed at all over Europe and feared in Germany, where they were considered forbidden literature. A frequent guest was Dr. Helene Lena Leiser. She needed no invitation. She came and went when she felt like it. She was Viennese-born and educated and one of the gifted participants in Lou's seminar in Vienna. She was highly intelligent, practical-minded, and very efficient. When Hitler came to Vienna and she had difficulty in leaving, she married a man almost unknown to her. Such marriages were very common. They were marriages in name only and were never consummated. The man who married a woman in this way asked a high price for giving her his name and the opportunity for her to leave Austria. He also consented to immediate divorce once his wife was safely out of the country. Frequently, the consequences of these marriages were blackmail and extortion. When I met Lena Leiser, she was past the prime of her life. She must have been good-looking when she was young, but times and circumstances had greatly changed her. She was never well-groomed. A button of her blouse might be missing, a zipper might be broken, or her slip might be showing. These things were not important to her anymore. Her main interest was helping other people. She had an enormous correspondence, and no one ever asked her in vain for help or assistance. For many years, she was the secretary of the International Economic Association in Paris. She died of cancer in 1962. Despite the increasing threat from the Nazis, Lou worked more than ever before. When he sat at his desk, lost in his thoughts, he could forget what was happening around him. He loved Geneva, the freedom of teaching, the atmosphere Repart had created within the Institute, and the steady friendly contact with the other professors. He still had no fear for the future. He believed the French would fight and could resist the German attacks. Hitler's defeat, Lou was sure, was just a matter of time. He never believed in the Tausend Jariger Reich. Lou's judgment about France's moral and combat strength was the only political error I have ever known him to make. His other judgment, in politics or economics, always proved to be true. Professor Hayek confirms this in his speech, see Appendix 3.
but his trust in France was wrong. The famous Maginot Line, the construction of which was started in 1930 and finished in 1935, was considered by the French to be impregnable. But great errors were made. One was that the line ended at the Belgian frontier, so the way into Belgium was open. The second was that too many soldiers were behind the lines for defense, and too few outside for battle. This was a weak and critical point which Hitler, from the beginning, had taken into consideration. When Poland was conquered, Hitler ordered that no action whatsoever be taken along the Western Front. The responsibility to open the fight must rest solely with England or France, he declared. All winter long there was neither war nor peace, hardly any hostilities, no battles. This situation greatly weakened the morale of the French troops, and the mood of France became the mood of Switzerland. One night in October or November 1939, I do not remember the exact date, all Geneva was peacefully asleep when suddenly a terrible uproar woke everyone. Sirens were screaming, fire engines came shrieking. We rushed to the window, carefully lifted a bit of the curtain, and saw the darkness of the night pierced by searchlights. Shortly afterwards, squadrons of Swiss fighters were in the air. What had happened? The Royal Air Force apparently had made a geographical error. They were supposed to bomb Hitler's retreat in Bavaria, and they mistook Lake Geneva for the Königssee near Berchtesgaden. I doubt that this will be found in any history book. Winter came and still there was peace at the Western Front. It was December 9th, a cold, bleak winter day. The streets were full of snow. Lou had his seminar and I had to do some errands. When I came home and went as usual to his studio to greet him, he sat very quietly at his desk and did not get up to kiss me as he usually did. I looked at him and saw immediately that something was wrong. He was very pale and just sat there, neither reading nor writing. "'What's wrong, darling?' I asked him. And then he told me that in the morning, on his way to the Institute, he had slipped on the icy snow and fallen and hurt himself. I asked, "'Where?' He showed me his right hand, the joint of which was terribly swollen. "'Have you seen the doctor?' I asked. "'No,' he said. I went to the Institute, delivered my lecture, and directed the discussion afterward. I had no time for the doctor. I was shocked. He must have experienced terrible pain to judge by the swelling of his hand. I suspected a fracture, called a taxi, and went with him to the hospital, where they took x-rays and confirmed the fracture. For almost six weeks his arm was in a cast, but he never complained. He just went on working. By this time, Hitler had already set the date for an attack on the West. Of course, we did not know it then. We only felt the mounting tension. On April 9, 1940, Hitler invaded Norway, and on the same day German troops marched into Denmark without finding any resistance. The English wanted to help with air attacks on Norway. They started on April 15th, much too late to be of any help. Too little, too late, was Churchill's judgment later. The tension in Geneva was growing. The Haberlers had left for the United States, and Professor Kelsen had made plans to go there, too. Professor Potter, an American citizen, had just lost his wife, a great friend of mine, and had accepted a new position at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. He, too, wanted to leave as quickly as possible. When Hitler invaded the Netherlands on May 10, 1940, I really became frightened. I had to talk to Lou. He did not want to leave. He never had been so happy as he was in Geneva, and he did not feel any fear. 
I reminded him of the night the Nazis came to Vienna. I told him the Nazis would never take him off their blacklist. I begged him, I implored him to leave, to think of me if he would not think of himself. It took the breakdown of the Maginot Line, the occupation of Paris on June 14th, and the raising of the German swastika in the highest point of the Eiffel Tower to make Lou aware of the danger. Finally, he gave in and promised to make the necessary preparations for us to leave for the United States. In his heart, of course, Lou was reluctant to leave, not only because of his love for the work at the Institute, but because he feared how America, the home of young people, the paradise of youth, would receive him, a man of almost sixty. He was also afraid of language difficulties. At that time he was more at ease with French than with English. He had studied French for at least six years in the academic gymnasium, and he spoke it fluently with almost no accent. English he had first learned by reading, and that, he always insisted, was the wrong method. Often, he said, jokingly, if you don't learn a foreign language as a child, you later have to learn it with a sleeping dictionary. The change of languages meant more to him than it would to an average citizen. Language was his most important tool, his essential device for communicating his ideas, his means of earning his living. I was not frightened of anything. My belief in him was unshakable, and so was my confidence that a man of his stature could neither be suppressed nor overlooked. From the moment German troops moved into France, every line of communication between Switzerland and that country were closed. Starting June 11th, no cars were allowed, no trains were running, no planes were flying, no buses were moving, no letters or telegrams came through. This was another source of worry for me. I knew we could not hear from Gitta, and in no case could we manage to get her on our visa to take her with us. She would have to stay in Besancon, where we had taken her a few months before to study at the university. She was living with friends, but she was so young, and now she had to be on her own. On June 21st, the armistice between France and Germany was signed, at Hitler's demand, in the same rail car where... In 1918, the Germans had to accept the armistice and the conditions directed by General Falk, an armistice that gravely wounded their pride and aroused much hatred in Germany. Finally, Lou started to act. He got in touch with Professor Benjamin Anderson, a good friend of his, who at that time was the chief economist at the Chase Bank in New York. Professor Anderson immediately took the necessary steps and got both of us a non-quota visa, which allowed us to enter the United States immediately. Lou had his library packed, and whatever else we planned to take along with us was prepared for shipping. Every day we went to the various agencies to hear whether and when we could leave, but Switzerland was surrounded by German troops and no one could move. The airlines as well as the bus authorities had promised us seats on their first trip out. Since we had to cross through France, Spain, and Portugal, we had to get all the necessary visas. The news from the shipping agencies never changed. It was nerve-shattering. The Repkes also pondered whether they should leave. Repke even went so far as to travel with Lou to Zurich to get his American visa from the American consul there. But in the end, they decided to stay because of their three young children. And besides this, a good while before, they had applied for Swiss citizenship. The uncertainty and tension grew from day to day. We tried to get passage on the American export line from Lisbon, but they could not promise anything. The only thing they could do for us was to put our names on the waiting list. On June 18th, Lou received a telegram from Dean Robert Calkins. 
invite you accept position lecturer and research associate professor, University of California, July to December. Lou was in no way happy about this offer, but it meant a possibility and a way out. A few days later, Professor Potter received a letter dated June 18, 1940, from E. F. Penrose, Professor of Economics at the University of California. It read, He, Mises, has been accepted as an American non-quota immigrant, and his arrival to take up position in the United States is eagerly awaited at the university and other American universities. I trust that in the present unsettled state of Europe, he will not be obstructed or in any way interfered with in reaching the United States. If he should be interfered with in any way, the fact will become known in the United States and would certainly influence public opinion strongly against whatever persons or whatever country prevented him as an accepted immigrant from coming to the United States. On July 1st, we were told still no planes. On July 2nd, we again went with Professor Potter to the French consulate, since we still did not have the visas required to cross France. But again we were turned down. The next day, in response to a letter from Darius Milhod to the French embassy, we got our visas. Milhod, the well-known composer, was married to a famous French actress who had been teaching Gitta. On the same evening, our luggage left and we got the news that we would have seats the following day, on the first bus leaving Geneva for France. Chapter 4. Escape from Europe On July 4, 1940, at 6.30 p.m., the first bus that went through France left the American Express office. Though we arrived long before the appointed time, Lena Leiser and Tiny, our housekeeper, were there to see us off. We never saw them again. There was a big crowd in the street and great excitement among all the passengers who were about to leave. Many were crying. No seat remained empty, and the passengers very soon became acquainted with each other. Everyone had a story to tell, and soon we were like one big unhappy family with one wish in common, to avoid the Germans. Our destination was Cerberus, France, a tiny town on the shores of the Mediterranean at the Spanish border. To get there without encountering the Germans, the driver had to change his route frequently after seeking information from the French peasants and soldiers. We had to make a great circle, going via Grenoble and Nyon to Orange, which was to be our stop for the night. The German troops had advanced very far, and they were everywhere. More than once our driver had to backtrack to escape them. Finally, late at night, we arrived at Orange. We left the next morning at six. At Nîmes we stopped for breakfast. The roads were empty. We saw fewer peasants and more and more French soldiers. Some soldiers were walking alone, trying to get home to their families. Others were in groups, but all of them looked beaten, humiliated and unhappy, exhausted and hopeless. There were no waves, no greetings, no jokes, no smiles. Once we had to stop suddenly and turn back, some soldiers warned us that the Germans were right behind them. But the driver knew the country well. Never, not for a moment, did he lose his nerve. At 2.30 p.m. we arrived at Cerberus, beautifully located on the sea. But we had no eyes for beauty or landscape. We had only one thought, would it be possible to cross the border today? We tried and were sent back. On this day only French, American, and English citizens were allowed by the custom officers to cross into Spain. Come back tomorrow, we were told. As calm and composed as Lou seemed, 
he was in a terrible state of mind. He was not made for adventures and uncertainties of this kind. I needed all my courage to help him overcome his desolation. For the night we found quarters in the railroad hotel at Cerberus. You cannot really call it a hotel. Above the office and restaurant of the station, a few dark rooms were reserved for transient passengers. Dinner in the hotel, more than anything else, showed the straits the French were in. As hors d'oeuvres, we got a single lonely sardine served on a large plate, and as a main course, they gave us some spaghetti. There was no meat, no bread, no vegetable. But as a consolation, we were given a bottle of good red wine. The room we stayed in overnight had one window which opened to the railroad platform. Though there were few trains running, just when we tried to get some sleep, a freight train rattled into the station. People shouted, strange red lights flared up, and then again came darkness and silence until another train passed through. We woke up in the morning without really having slept. There was no bath. One small, gray, worn-out towel had to suffice for both of us. After we had a cup of coffee, we tried again at the border. The day before, the officers had not even opened our passports. This time, after they examined them, we were told that our Spanish visa was not good anymore, and the Portuguese visa also had to be renewed, since it had been issued in June, and only those written in July were valid for this month. We were ordered to get new visas from the Spanish consulate in Toulouse. Very early the next day, four o'clock a.m., Lou boarded a train to Toulouse. He took with him the passports of all the passengers on the bus, including those of seven Portuguese. Late that night, Lou came back, totally exhausted. He had managed to get visas for all the passengers except the Portuguese. They were turned back for the third time. The next day, finally, we crossed the border, immediately got a train for Barcelona, and caught a plane for Lisbon. It was a rather small plane and my first flight. I cannot say that I enjoyed it. When we arrived in Lisbon, we took a deep breath. Our first days there were fully occupied with visits to the police, every foreigner had to register, and to the various transportation offices and to the American consulate. We were staying at a small but beautifully located hotel on the coast. Many of our new friends from the bus were also there, and we frequently met the other passengers in town. We were still like a big family. Lisbon was the most picturesque city I had ever seen. The houses were painted either a brilliant white, a delicate light pink, or sometimes a soft green or bright yellow. Some of them were decorated with a Moorish painted pattern. Others were completely covered with green tiles, shimmering in the sun like a fresh green meadow. The city is divided into an upper part and a lower part. The streets run up and down, completely hilly. I hear now they have some elevators to the upper and lower parts. In 1940, they only had a sort of tramway and comfortable paths for pedestrians. There was great poverty in Lisbon, and, as a consequence, there were many, many children selling newspapers, polishing shoes, and often begging for money. Once in a while a policeman would chase them, but more often he kept his eyes shut. The little boys liked to hang out to the boards of the tram, a favorite game of theirs. They were too poor to pay, and the conductors chose not to see them. The poor women were either pregnant or carried their latest baby in their arms or hidden in their shoulder scarves. They did not have perambulators. 
Often they carried a basket of fish upon their heads. These female fish vendors and the smell of fish were characteristic of the city. Everything smelled of fish, the tramway, the streets, the harbor, the little cars. Early in the morning the women moved in long lines from the harbor to the markets with tiny pillows on their heads, on which they carried large flat baskets full of fish. These women, though mostly short and stout, carried themselves erectly and proudly. Only when they had to cross a street, one of their hands held on to the basket. Otherwise they walked without touching it. They were unbelievably modest, and their needs were few. The tramways, as well as the tiny taxis, moved very fast, and often the conductor rang the bell before the last passenger could jump on board, forcing the would-be passenger to run, catch hold of the handle, and pull himself aboard while the tram was moving. People were friendly in Lisbon, and the policemen treated foreigners very well. Once, Lou and I wanted to visit a friend of his, and the street where the man lived was rather far from the hotel. We asked a policeman how to get there, but as we did not know the language, we had difficulty understanding him. Lou decided to take a taxi and started to walk toward a nearby taxi stand. When the policeman noticed this, he followed us, took me by my sleeve, led us to the tramway stop, and signaled us to wait. When the tram arrived, he made us enter, followed us, and explained to the conductor where to take us and when to let us off. Since the tram had already started to move, he himself had to stay on until the next stop. There, as if nothing had happened, he said goodbye, got out, and walked back to his place of duty. We had to wait for thirteen days in Lisbon before we were able to get passage to America. Originally, the export line had given us tickets for August 15th, but this meant waiting more than four weeks, and I could not imagine how Lou would stand it. So I went to the shipping office every day. Lou got so tired of this begging and asking that he refused to go any more, so I had to take over. I was lucky enough one morning to get hold of the manager, a Mr. Hart, who was very, very friendly and promised to do for us whatever he could. But, he said, you will have to call the office every morning and tell us exactly where you are during the day and what you will be doing. This was not easy, for Lou was seeing many people, among them Professor M. Bensabat Amzalek, the Portuguese Minister of Finance. Lou had various meetings with him, and Amzalek had also arranged a meeting for Lou with Professor Salazar and a seminar, which Lou held at the statistical office. He was busy all the time, and I had to report all this to the American export line. When we went out sightseeing, Lou did what he always did in a new city. He took a tramway or a bus and crisscrossed the town with me. The only way, he said, to really get to know a place. I generally spent half a day on the telephone, calling the export line office. Lou made no further move. He could neither relax nor enjoy what he was doing. He was uprooted. For the first time, I noted what I so often had the opportunity to see later. He could fight for a cause, but never for himself. And when he could not work, he was listless. He once told me, a writer who has something to tell only needs a pencil and a sheet of paper. That's all. Looking back, I think he forgot something more important. A writer also needs peace of mind. Just as between 1938 and 1940, every political refugee at one time or another came through Geneva or stayed there for a while, now Lisbon had become a haven for people without a home, without a country. All sorts of nationalities were gathered here, 
and every day we met more people and heard more sad stories. We frequently met Count Kuderhaven, a fighter for Pan-Europe who also had a Japanese mother and was rather exotic and good-looking. He was married to a famous Viennese actress, Ida Roland, who was much older than he and had a daughter already in her thirties, whom the Countess always spoke of as the child. It really sounded more tragic than funny. On July 24th, I once again returned to the export line and got the message that Mr. Hart was waiting for a cancellation, but so far nothing had turned up. I was asked to come back in the afternoon. I did, but it was in vain, for no space had opened up. The next morning I went to the hairdresser, left my number with Mr. Hart's secretary, and was just being put under the dryer with all the pin clips in my hair when I was called to the phone. Export line, come here at once. We have a cancellation, but you must be here with all your documents before noon. Everyone at the hairdresser shared my excitement. The pin clips thrown out, my hair all wet, I took a taxi to the hotel. Thank God, Lou was there, waiting for me. I made him give me our papers and raced to the office. I was in time and was told that we had a cabin on the Exohorda, sailing that afternoon at 5 p.m. We had to embark immediately. Back at the hotel, the tickets in my hand, I saw Lou smile for the first time in weeks. It was this smile I loved so much and would have done anything to bring about. Our luggage had never been unpacked, so we were ready to leave in a very short time. The Exohorda, one of three or four ships of the export line that were regularly crossing the Atlantic, was neither large nor a luxury vessel, but it was comfortable and we had a very good cabin. Even before the shift left the harbor, Lou got terribly sick, so sick that I had to call the doctor. At that time, we did not know that Lou had gallbladder trouble. Later on, I realized that this must have been the first of the many serious attacks he suffered in later years. This one, of course, could have been the consequence of all the excitement, the discomfort, the irregular food, and the inner suffering he had gone through for weeks. He recovered after two days, but he never felt happy on the ship. In fact, he never felt happy on any ship. Ships gave him claustrophobia. I, on the contrary, enjoyed every day. The Atlantic crossing took nine days, and the weather was marvelous. One of Lou's good friends from the Institute in Geneva, Professor Potter, was traveling with us. During the entire passage, we met only one other ship, an English freighter, there was nothing but the ocean and the bright blue sky. We arrived at noon on August 2nd, 1940, at a pier in New Jersey. The greatest impression I had that day was not the beautiful skyline. I had seen that long before in films. What impressed me most was the terrible wastefulness of the kitchen. Shortly before our arrival, I noticed that the galley threw out not only the remnants of food overboard, but also fresh fruit, vegetables, potatoes, and bread. We had come from Europe where so many people had so little to eat, and when we saw this waste of food, we could not help but feel angry. A good friend of Lou's, a former participant in his seminar, Dr. Alfred Schutz, was at the pier to meet us. It was a great relief for Lou and me to see someone we knew waiting for us, happy to be of help, and to welcome us to the United States. Chapter 5. Our New Country The first year in New York is not a happy memory for me. We moved five times. We first stayed at the Hotel Park Chambers on 56th Street, where Dr. Schutz had taken rooms for us. 
Then we moved to a very nice apartment on Riverside Drive, loaned to us by a friend. When she needed the apartment herself, we moved to the Hotel Park Crescent on Riverside Drive and 86th Street. For a while we stayed in a furnished apartment until, in 1942, I found the apartment on the West End Avenue where we lived for so many years and where I still live today. Lou's spirits were at a low point during this time. Very often he would say, if it were not for you, I would not want to live anymore. He missed his work, his books, and his income. He had a very good salary in Switzerland, for in Europe teaching by a renowned scholar like Lou was valued much more highly than it was in the United States at that time, not only from the monetary point of view, but also in the eyes of the public. A professor was a learned man who had dedicated decades of his life to studying, reading, and writing, and this time span of work had to be calculated and paid for. Now, here in New York, we had to live from Lou's savings, and to see his money dwindle was a sad sight. Lou did not talk about this to other people, but he had friends who knew his situation without his ever mentioning it. One of these was Henry Hazlitt, who at that time was editorial writer for the New York Times. He knew Lou through his books. He had, as he told me, seen my husband's name for the first time in Benjamin Anderson's book, The Value of Money, which was published in 1917 by Macmillan. The index lists no fewer than 14 references to Mises. I was particularly struck, Hazlitt wrote, by one remark. In von Mises there seems to be a very noteworthy clarity and power. His theory of money and credit is an exceptionally excellent book. Later I came upon many references to Lou in Lionel Robbins' books. In 1937, Hazlitt wrote to Jonathan Cape, and asked him to send a copy of Socialism to the New York Times for review. In his review of January 9, 1938, Hazlitt wrote, among other things, This book must rank as the most devastating analysis of socialism yet written. He has written an economic classic in our time. In an interview with Jim Cook in IRA Insights, Volume 1, Number 3, Hazlitt reports, One night at home, I received a telephone call, and the voice at the other end of the wire said, This is Mises speaking. As I later told some of my friends, it was almost as if somebody had said, This is John Stuart Mill speaking. Hazlitt was one of the first people Lou met in New York, and one of the first to take an active interest in getting Lou established in America. They met for the first time on August 21, 1940, less than three weeks after our arrival. They lunched together at the Century Club, and, on September 3rd, I met him and his wife Frances for dinner at their home on Washington Square. Frances's intelligence and the interest she took in economics and politics impressed me greatly. The Hazlitts, well aware of Lou's situation, were extremely hospitable and kind. Every day Lou had a luncheon appointment. I mention it because a few years later he preferred to lunch at home and take his rest afterwards, which he needed for his work. It is interesting to note that, in spite of his low spirits, he was full of ideas. Every day he met new people, and he had new plans. He soon decided not to go to Berkeley. He felt that New York was the cultural center of the United States, and it was here he wanted to stay. Very soon, invitations came for him as a guest speaker or a lecturer. On November 7, 1940, he delivered a lecture before a banking seminar 
at the School of Business, Columbia University, on post-war economic reconstruction of Europe. On November 19th, he spoke at the Political Economy Club on the non-neutrality of money. On November 25th, he participated in a discussion at the New School for Social Research. On December 5th, we went to Cambridge, where he delivered a lecture at Harvard's Litauer Hall, arranged for him by his brother Richard, who, since 1938, had been a professor of mathematics and aviation at Harvard. During our stay in Cambridge, I met, for the first and only time, Professor Joseph A. Schumpeter, who had just been married for the third time. His new wife was an elegant and intelligent American. They kept a lovely, well-run home. The discussion at lunch was lively but careful, both men aware of their parts as host and guest. Schumpeter knew, of course, that Lou did not agree with many of his views. This might be a good opportunity to mention a little story that Joe Kakaizen, a former student of Lou's and now a professor at the University Francisco Marquin in Guatemala, has told me, and is corroborated by Bettina Biangreves through her shorthand notes. One night in his seminar, Lou was commenting on the late Professor Schumpeter. There are many people, he humorously disclosed, who stand steadfastly by the social doctrines of Professor Schumpeter. They do not seem to remember that when the great professor was Minister of Finance, he was not able to protect Austria against the most disastrous inflation in its history, and that when the great professor was president of a bank, Biedermann Bank, the bank failed. The afternoon after the visit with Schumpeter, Lou led a discussion in Litauer Hall, and the students asked questions about his lecture of the previous night. In the evening, he gave another lecture at Fletcher Hall. In those years, he never seemed to get tired. The same month in 1940, he also lectured as a guest at Princeton and had lunch with Winfield W. Reifler at the Institute for Advanced Study. Reifler had worked for some time in Geneva, where he was a frequent guest at our house. Lou always enjoyed his presence. He had written a book about the Federal Reserve System, which was very much talked about. Consequently, he became one of the permanent members of the Institute for Advanced Study. Later, he moved to the Federal Reserve Board as an advisor. I remember Lou once told me that Reifler's job at Princeton was the only position that would really have made him happy. It was very unusual for Lou to express a longing for something out of his reach. It was more revealing to me than any other remark or complaint he might have made. Mostly I had to feel my way, search in the dark like a mole digging its way underground. Questioning would have made him lock the door of his soul. When I told Fritz Machlup, much, much later, about Lou's wish, he replied, and he would have been the right man at the right place. To this I can only add, why did no one ever think of it? From the moment we came to the United States, even before we had our own apartment and still lived in a small furnished place or in the hotel on Riverside Drive, Lou wanted company in the evening. He needed people, he needed discussions, he needed to air his opinions and hear the reactions of different minds. Our social circle was divided in two groups. To the first one belonged his former pupils, who in time became devoted friends, and various other scholars whom Lou had met in Geneva. One of the most outstanding of his Vienna students, and a frequent guest of ours, was Dr. Felix Kaufman, the witty and genial philosopher of social sciences, who passed away much too early. He was used to expressing his feelings in poetry, 
and the reader will find two of his songs in Appendix 1 at the end of the book. His wife, Elsa, became a well-known pediatrician in New York. We also saw quite a bit of Dr. Martha Steffi Brown, an always enthusiastic, gay, and energetic former Vienna student of Luz, who later became a full-time professor at Brooklyn College. Fritz Machlup, who, since 1940, taught at the University of Buffalo and Johns Hopkins University, also came to see us whenever he could. Later, when he was at Princeton, traveling and lecturing continuously, he had less time to spare. Especially close to us were Dr. Alfred Schutz and his wife Ilsa. It was he who welcomed us at the pier in New Jersey, and who tried hard to lift Lou's sunken spirits. He was a sociologist and a banker, and had never forgotten that he got his first job as a financial advisor through Lou, a job that he later hated but had to maintain for practical reasons. It helped him to go on with his scholarly work. He taught for years at the New School for Social Research. He was a most interesting personality, who not only looked like Beethoven, but had a special passion and understanding for music. He also was an excellent pianist. He died in 1959. Ilsa, his wife, considered it her life task to publish his many unfinished writings, and thanks to her indefatigable effort, Alfred Schutz is today perhaps one of the most quoted and famous sociologists in Europe and the United States. One of the few men Lou really worshipped was Dr. Richard Schuller, former undersecretary in the Austrian State Department. His daughter, Dr. Ilse Minz, had been one of Lou's highly gifted students in Vienna. She was loved and respected by everyone. She and her husband, Dr. Max Minz, in Vienna a well-known lawyer, were frequent visitors to our home. Ilsa became a member of the staff at the National Bureau for Economic Research and later taught at Columbia University, where, before her death in 1978, she was a full professor. Dr. Schuler was a small, fragile man, but when he talked about Vienna, about the past, about politics, you had to listen. When he was 90 years old and had only recently retired from the new school, he told me that he was taking up the study of mathematics, found it fascinating, and got real pleasure out of it. He lived to be more than 100 years old, and I never saw a warmer, more affectionate relationship than that which existed between the members of his remarkable family. One of the men closest to Lou's thinking was the late Dr. Ernest Geiringer, a Viennese industrialist whose keen mind Lou always admired. Geiringer very soon left New York and lived for years with his family in the South. Lou greatly missed the exchange of thought with this friend. Very close to us were Dr. Fritz Unger and his wife Annie. Both were former students of my husband in Vienna, and we had met them often when we traveled in France. When we came to New York, they immediately tried to help us. They showed us the town, came with us to the theater and to museums. Whenever Dr. Unger came to visit us, he immediately tried to have a few minutes alone with me. He was deeply interested in Lou's work in future and always had to get the latest news. He knew he would never hear anything from Lou. He was a very good friend, helpful, kind-hearted, and warm, and both Lou and I missed him greatly when he died quite unexpectedly. Annie, his wife, was a passionate traveler. We saw her often, and although she was a lawyer, grandmother, and a tremendously well-read woman, she never got over the feeling a student has toward her professor. This is a typical European attitude, not usually encountered in the U.S., here, after the first meeting with his professor, 
A student may grasp his teacher's shoulder with a merry, "Hi, Prof. How are you today?" The professor, to him, is simply another human being who does his work. Then we had some lawyer friends, all of them former students of Lewis, Indiana. After completing their studies here, two of them took up careers in New York. One of them was Dr. Adolphus Redley, a very devoted friend. He once wrote to me, deeply embedded in my mind is the recollection of the totality of Lou's personality, devoted to the proposition that economics is not part of an etatist technology, but has its deep roots in humanities. This was the gospel which he spread, and for which he will be remembered with gratitude and great affection. The second lawyer was Dr. Oscar Heitler. Heitler, a bachelor and a very frequent dinner guest of ours, was our steady companion and guide on our Sunday excursions into the environs of New York. Lou and I simply could not exist without walking and hiking. We had no car then, and with Heitler, we often went by bus to Terrytown to enjoy the beautiful Rockefeller Estate, which was open to the public. In 1940, it was something unheard of in America to see people strolling around the Rockefeller Gardens. More than once, we were stopped by police and asked to explain what we were doing. When Dr. Heidler unexpectedly suffered a heart attack, he asked for me to be with him in the last hour of his life. Another very lonely man. I was deeply affected. Very good friends of ours were Dr. and Mrs. Otto Kallir. He was a second cousin of Lou's. He died in New York on November 30th, 1978. He, as well as his wife Fanny. Were not only very interesting and cultivated people, but what should count more, they were good and kind. Dr. Kallir owned the Gallery of Saint Etienne in New York City, where he was the first to introduce the now famous Egon Schiele and Gustav Klimt to this country. Dr. Kallir was always interested in folk art. When, in 1939, he was shown some primitive American paintings, he was attracted to those by an old lady named Anna Mary Robertson Moses. The paintings were uneven in quality, but in some of them, Kallir found an original and fresh approach. He asked her to come and see him. She lived in Vermont, and he gave her a one-woman show in his gallery, calling the exhibition "What a Farm Wife Painted." This was the beginning of the fabulous career of the artist, who has since become known all over the world as Grandma Moses. Besides these friends, whom we saw frequently. There was a steady flow of visitors from out of town or abroad. I always had to be prepared for surprise visitors, but gradually the circle of our friends changed. Through Lou's work, his new connections, we met many interesting Americans who, together with most of the New York University seminar students, became in time our friends. They formed the above-mentioned second group. Lou, meanwhile, had become connected with the National Bureau for Economic Research. And on Christmas 1940, he got a letter from Dr. William J. Carson, the treasurer of the National Bureau, telling him, "I am very glad to advise you that the Rockefeller Foundation has approved a grant for $2,500 to the National Bureau of Economic Research to extend its hospitality to you for a period of a year." This grant, Dr. Carson wrote on February 16, 1941. Would be renewed for another year, beginning December 1941. From this day on, life started to look a little brighter to Lou. Though he had no books, no diaries to refer to, he started working during the last weeks of December 1940 on an autobiography, as he first called it. 
It is not an autobiography in the usual sense of the word. It contains nothing of his personal life, tells almost nothing about his family. He speaks about his schooling, his intellectual development, his works, and his ideas for future books. He explains the political situation in Austria and Germany and deplores the conditions at Germany and Austrian universities. The manuscript is handwritten in German and ends with his stay in Geneva. He gave it to me to keep, but when I read it, it was only two years after we were married, I was not ready for it. Only now do I know how fascinating these memoirs are. In later years, I often urged Lou to write a real autobiography. I even suggested he dictate it to me. His answer was, You have my notes. That's all people need to know about me. During the war, Lou had no hopes for a German book market in the near future. In a letter to Hayek, written in November 1941, my husband wrote, As I do not want to increase further the collection of my posthumous books, I am now writing in English. I hope that I will succeed in finishing a volume critically dealing with the whole concept of anti-Orthodox doctrines and their consequences within a year. I am, however, rather skeptical in regard to the practical results of our endeavors. It seems that the age of reason and common sense is gone forever. Reasoning and thinking have been replaced by empty slogans. After we had been in New York a year, our belongings arrived from Geneva, and we began looking for an apartment. Lou was determined to live on the west side, on account of the good public transportation to theaters and the nearness of the New York Public Library, a very important factor in his life. Without this excellent library, he could not do the work he really wanted to do during his first years in America. I soon found the apartment I was looking for. At that time, in early 1942, there was an overflow of empty apartments. My sole wish was to find a place that was absolutely quiet and where no noise whatsoever would disturb my husband when he was working. Soon I found the house I thought was suitable. It had, at that time, a first-class landlord, the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, and the house was excellently kept. Only later I discovered that the apartment actually was too small for us, but considering our financial situation at that time, I did not have the courage to choose a larger and more expensive one. The room I selected for Lou was completely isolated. It had a view of the Hudson River, and never, not even in the mountains, did we enjoy more beautiful sunsets. On hot evenings, the sky was fiery red, and the colors were mirrored in the water. Slowly the colors of the sky changed, became blue-gray, and then completely dark. Shortly afterwards, on the other side of the Hudson River, the buildings would be lighted, and on the tops of the high-rises, beams of light would warn the planes and help them find their direction. Far below ran the West Side Highway, parallel to West End Avenue, the street where we lived. The apartment is on the top floor of the building, high enough for even the noise of the highway to be unheard. It really was an ideal working spot for Lou. He had shelves built all along the wall. Other shelves were all over the place, even in the living room. When I once said I was married not only to Lou, but also married to his books, I was correct to say so. When the neighborhood deteriorated, I tried for years to persuade him to move, but it was in vain. He did not want his books touched. He did not want to miss them again, not even for a short time. Now they are all together at Hillsdale College, under the special protection and care of Dr. George Roche, Hillsdale's president. It was my most urgent wish, and Lou agreed, 
to have the library he loves so much preserved and kept together as a complete unit. The University of Innsbruck made an offer, but it was Lou's special wish that the books be kept in the United States. Dr. Roche, who for years worked with Leonard Reed at the Foundation for Economic Education, arranged a special room at the college for the Ludwig von Mises Library, where students can work. The most valuable books are locked in cases, and special permission is needed to use them. I gave them my husband's desk and the chair he used to sit on. On the desk is his bronze bust and a note I wrote to him, which he missed or forgot when he destroyed every single letter I had written to him during 48 years. From the time of our arrival in New York in August 1940, Lou had been in contact with New York University. On August 30th, he had lunch with Drs. Herbert B. Doro and J.T. Madden, Dean of the School of Commerce and Finance. Both men took a lively interest in him. On September 7, 1940, Madden wrote to Lou that he was interested in Lou's remarks that totalitarianism really began in Germany at the time of the installation of the foreign exchange control in 1931. It occurred to me, Madden wrote, that it might be desirable to have an article for publication sometime from you on the general topic of, say, about 5,000 words. As I conceive it, it would perhaps briefly deal with the social and economic development after the war, leading up to the crisis of 1931, with some references to the political conditions at the time, and from that point lead on to the establishment of foreign exchange control and the economic factors which gave rise to the increasing degree of governmental control over business and imports and exports, and how that led then into the continually increasing encroachment of the government upon economic life in Germany. I have been canvassing in the early week to see what possibilities there may be here with us, and I hope we may be able to come to some prompt conclusion. Maybe it was this letter and the preceding conversation that had planted the seeds for my husband's book, Omnipotent Government. In 1977, I found among his posthumous scripts a German version of this book, which referred only to conditions in Germany and Austria. It was written in Geneva shortly before the beginning of World War II, and it has an appendix added by my husband in 1940 in the United States. The book was published in 1978 by Bonn Actuell in Stuttgart, Germany, under the title Im Namen des Staat, in the name of the state, Oder die Garhafen des Kollektivismus, or The Dangers of Collectivism, with the foreword by the late Professor Alfred Mueller-Armack. Coming to the United States did not mean immediate Americanization for Lou. He watched, observed, read, and learned. He followed every phase of American politics, domestic and foreign, with deepest interest. He met new people every day and widened his outlook. We both had applied immediately for citizenship, but we never considered ourselves Americans until we got our papers. It was in January 1946 that Lou received his citizenship, almost six months before I got mine. The importance of this was not the paper, it was the change in Lou's mind, his heart. Deep inside, he knew he belonged now. He was at home again, for the first time in many years, and in a land of freedom. His joy in his new citizenship was so intense that even if I had not known how he suffered before, I could have deduced it from his happiness. Lou was a very modest man, almost frugal in his habits. He slept in his studio on a narrow daybed with a firm mattress. 
I used to compare him to the former emperor Franz Joseph of Austria, who slept all through his life on a simple iron bedstead. Once I asked Lou whether he had ever met the emperor. Yes, he said, and he even spoke to me. What was the occasion, I inquired. And he went on. It was at a military exercise after I had finished my year of training. I must have been nineteen years old then. The emperor came for inspection, and he passed me sitting on my black horse. He stopped and said, Beautiful horse, very beautiful horse. And then, after he had uttered these profound and pregnant words, he rode on. We were both early risers. When I read during World War II that Churchill always had a champagne breakfast in bed in order to save his energy, I thought that might be a good idea for Lou, too. Since that time, to the last month of his life, I gave him his tray every morning at 7.30, together with the New York Times. But instead of champagne, he got his milk. When I had arranged his tray next to his bed, he took my hand, kissed it, and pulled me down so he could kiss my face, my hair. It was almost a ritual. He always wanted to show me his love, his gratitude. I took care to have his room cleaned while he was in the bathroom. He hated any disturbance while he worked, and I would say he started working in the bathroom. He never could get used to an electric safety razor, and shaving with his almost antique apparatus took almost half an hour. During this purely mechanical procedure, he put his thoughts in shape. More than once, he was so deeply in his thoughts that he forgot to turn the faucet off, and only when his feet were deep in water did he realize what was happening around him. Then I had to rush in and help him, and assure him again and again that it did not really matter, for he was unhappy that he caused extra work for me. When he was dressed, Lou went immediately to his desk and started to write, simply continuing the flow of his thoughts he was working on while in the bathroom. Only twice each morning did I come into his room, once at 10.30 with a light snack, he was on a diet under doctor's order, and a little later with the mail. During our first years in America, mail was delivered three times a day. With the power of the unions growing, the strikes of the workers increasing, their performance and output was lessening. In the end, we received only one mail delivery daily, and sometimes there was no delivery at all on Saturday in the residential parts of New York City. The Postal Service worsened to such a degree that the delivery of a letter from one zone to another in New York City may have taken more time than sending a letter from London or California to New York, a distance of 3,000 miles. He never answered the telephone. No bells, no street noise could be heard in his room. But we could see from our windows the never-ending traffic on the West Side Highway. Only two or three times in the 32 years did the traffic stop. Both times were in the middle of a cold winter, and the snow was piled so high that the cars buried could not move. This motionless silence, after all the years of never-ending movement, was strange and fascinating and beautiful to look at. In the summer of 1941, our first real summer in New York, we were very much affected by the heat and humidity, to which we were not accustomed. I believe you have to be brought up in New York to be able to endure the climate. To survive, we went on vacation in the White Mountains. We stayed at Glen House, at the foot of Mount Washington, a place then frequented mostly by Europeans. From the hotel, buses went up to the top of the mountain. Most of the visitors who came for the day left their cars in the parking lot. Before boarding a bus, they took a quick try at one of the slot machines set up near the filling station. The one-armed bandits, as they are called, were busy since the buses left frequently. 
The passengers took their chances a few times and then left in a hurry to get their seats on the bus. At that moment, the attendants, mostly young boys, rushed to the machines and after risking a few coins, usually hit the jackpot and emptied the machines with a roar of laughter. Lou and I were always amused to watch them. Now everything has changed. Glen House is nothing more than a store for postcards and knickknacks. The one-armed bandits have disappeared. Only the gas station and bus stations remain. In our first year at Glen House, we climbed to the top of Mount Washington three times. On Sunday, August 17th, we left Pinkham Notch Camp at 9.35 a.m. Our goal was to climb up via Tuckerman Ravine. When we were above the timberline, a terrible gale started. There was nothing but stone and rocks and no possibility of return or shelter. We could not even see the nearest rock to hold on, for a terrible snowstorm had started. The gale was driving the blinding white mass into our eyes. I became frightened, but Lou never lost his coolness and courage. He shouted to me against the noise of the storm and signaled every rock on which I was to take hold. Finally, at 3.30 in the afternoon, we arrived at the top and stumbled into the restaurant. When we opened the door, exhausted but relieved, a waiter hurried toward us with two glasses of brandy on a tray. They had watched our climb and our flight with the gale through their telescopes, ready for the moment when they would have to rush out to help us. One thing I knew. Without Lou, I would never have made it. We went back by train. The following week, we went to the top again, but this time by bus. We both had a deep, unexplainable longing to be at the top of a mountain and see the world from there. We managed to take every one of the excursions that the visitor to the White Mountains usually makes. On August 24th, a clear day, we climbed Mount Madison via Osgood Trail, and on another beautiful day we walked with friends to the Great Gulf Shelter, seven hours of difficult climb on badly marked trails, with roots of trees constantly slowing us down. The mountains of America should not be compared with those in Switzerland, Italy, or Austria. They are wild, rocky, and full of stones, with few paths leading to the summits. At least it was that way in the 1940s. This last decade, however, when skiing became fashionable, a great deal has been done for the environment and upkeep of the paths. That summer we learned to love New England, and in most of the following years when we did not go to Europe, we summered in New Hampshire or in Vermont. But in September we were always back in New York, and Lou started to work. One of my husband's regular visitors was Arthur Goddard. Even before the books arrived from Europe, Goddard helped him with his language problems. Goddard was recommended to him by Dr. Schutz, whom he had helped with similar problems. In the course of the years, Goddard really became irreplaceable for Lou. He regularly came twice and sometimes three times weekly, staying for hours. Besides being well-read, studious, always desirous of learning, and interested in art and theater, he had a pleasant personality. After his visits, Lou was always in a very good and relaxed mood. Goddard knew how to listen, and that was important for Lou. Sometimes I asked Arthur to correct one or two of another word of Lou's mispronunciations, which I had noted in the seminar. I felt being corrected by an outsider would be easier for Lou to take. He kept a little book in which he noted down the words that he had mispronounced incorrectly, the result of learning the basis of a foreign language by reading and not by speaking. Lou has given special recognition in his great treatise Human Action and in Omnipotent Government to Arthur Goddard, 
who is today vice principal of the School for Printing in New York. Arthur gave first aid to almost all of Lou's writings in the United States. When I one day saw the monthly check Lou gave Arthur, I was most surprised until I realized that for Goddard, the work with Lou was not a source of earning, but a way of learning. During the winter of 1941, Lou very often had conferences with the former Archduke of Austria, now Otto von Habsburg, who was interested in Lou's views about Austria's future. Lou foresaw that Austria would never again be a monarchy, and he wrote a long and detailed report for Dr. von Habsburg, perhaps the last important essay he wrote in German, some book reviews accepted. This document, which he marked confidential, is now, with permission of Dr. von Habsburg, among my husband's posthumous scripts in the library of Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. Lou often told me he was convinced that history would have taken a different course if a man like Otto von Habsburg had been at the helm of the Austrian government in 1914. Lou had the highest esteem for the Archduke's moral and intellectual qualities, and maintained this regard for him all through the years. When we later met Dr. von Habsburg at the Mont Pelerin Society, I was also charmed by him. He frequently sat next to me at dinner or luncheon meetings, and I was always impressed by his knowledge of history, his human understanding, his diversified interests, and especially by his natural kindness and warmth. All who worked with Lou became fascinated by his personality and became ardent admirers of him. There is, first of all, his former very efficient secretary in Vienna, Mrs. Wolf Thyberger, who was with Lou for more than 20 years. She became a very close friend and helped my husband tremendously. Later, when Lou was at New York University, Mildred Schrochinger, a young, very talented secretary, was working with him. Many years later, she wrote that she wished she could still be with him. Lou was patient with everyone who worked for him. He explained the work and expected the best. It was perhaps one of his most remarkable qualities that he never found fault with a person's character, only with his or her intelligence. Once, at NYU, he had a secretary who often brought him to despair through her incompetence. Why don't you send her away and get another one, I asked him when he once again complained to me. I can't do it, was his reply. She needs the job, and how would she find another one? The whole first year of our stay in America, while Lou developed various plans for the future, I tried to help get it get out of occupied France. It was an almost impossible task, for there was no way of getting in touch with her. For the first time, I saw that Hazlitt's friendship consisted not only of enthusiasm for Lou's ideas and thoughts, but also included a warm and personal regard not only for him, but also for me. Hazlitt was the one who helped us get Gitta a visa for the United States. He was on friendly terms with the Assistant Secretary of State, Mr. Breckenridge Long, and only through diplomatic channels could Gitta be reached and given the necessary papers. It was a very, very complex procedure, but it worked so well that on the same day she got the visa, we received the news. Only the mother of a young daughter will understand what this meant to me, Hazlitt himself may long have forgotten about this incident. I haven't, and I never will. When Gitta finally arrived in the United States, she did not stay with us long. An agency in Chicago had heard about her experiences in occupied France and engaged her for a lecture tour through the United States. When she came back to New York after a few months, she enlisted with the UNRRA, United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Agency, and was sent overseas back to Vienna. 
There she met Don Honeyman, an American photographer born in Iowa, who, after his release from the Army, got an excellent position with Vogue and worked with them for more than 20 years. Gitta and Don were married in Vienna, in the same church and by the same clergyman who had baptized Gitta. Because of the war, neither Lou nor I could be present at her wedding. After a few years in Paris and in America, they settled in London, and Gitta took up writing as a career. Today, Gitta Sereny is a recognized journalist. She worked for many years for the London Sunday Telegraph, authored three books, and is now working for the London Sunday Times and the London Times. Lou was very fond of Gitta. Her ambition, her energy, her diligence, her unfailing courage to overcome the most difficult situations, as well as her love and care for her husband and her two children, commanded his respect. Chapter 6 Two Months in Mexico In New York, in the winter of 1941, we met Señor Montes de Oca, former Secretary of the Treasury of Mexico, and at that time President of Mexico's Banco Internacional. Though he was of small stature, he was a great man, and he bore himself as such. He had an all-encompassing knowledge of politics, economics, and world affairs, spoke four languages fluently, was widely read, and knew everything Lou had ever written. He immediately invited Lou and me to come to Mexico for a series of lectures at the university, which he would sponsor. He offered my husband a lifetime position, a house with a garden, a car and chauffeur, and a tremendously high salary, but Lou refused. He was happy to come as a guest, but he remained firm in his decision to make his home in the United States. We were supposed to leave in January 1942. America was at war with Germany. We had our first papers, but we were not yet citizens. However, we had no difficulties getting the necessary visas, for our Mexican friend had taken care of everything. We left on January 11th. It was our first flight since leaving Europe, and our first of numerous visits to Central and South America. This flight still lingers in my memory. Though we traveled in the greatest comfort, we even had a sleeper. It took more than twenty long hours to reach Mexico City. Our reception at the airport almost befitted royalty. If suddenly band music had started, I would not have been surprised. A deputation of university professors was waiting for Lou, the customs formalities were quickly dealt with. The airport seemed near the city, which, at three in the afternoon, was very crowded. Our hotel was on the Calle Madera, one of the liveliest streets in Mexico. Our suite, my room, were so full of roses, gardenias, and white callas that for a moment I dreamt I was back on the stage after a performance. The subsequent seven weeks, we stayed in Mexico until February 25th, were perhaps the greatest surprise of my life. Not only because Lou, for the first time since we left Europe, got the recognition he deserved, but because the high intellectual standard of the Mexican elite, whom we had the privilege of meeting during our stay, was absolutely overwhelming to me. Most interesting was the life in the street. The population of Mexico's capital is mixed. Indians and mestizos, persons of mixed blood, are predominant. People seemed to be very poor, but it was almost astonishing to see no really well-dressed people in the street. They must prefer to get around by car, I thought. Otherwise, you would not see that tremendous number of elegant autos clogging the roads. The shops seemed almost provincial to me. Only the boutiques for art, silver, and jewelry were beautiful. Never in my life had I seen so many poor people as in Mexico. 
people in rags with naked, dirty feet, unwashed, it seemed, for months. The women were usually pregnant or carried small children in their rebozos. They wore their hair in long black braids with colored ribbons folded into the plates. Women and children either sold candies, not very attractive to our eyes, or lottery tickets, which were eagerly bought. It was the old story, the poorer the population, the more they gamble. At every street corner they sold lemonade, which was necessary since the water was only drinkable if distilled or boiled. Tortillas, the chief nourishment of the poor, a sort of pancake made of corn flour and water, were also sold in the streets. I was impressed by the great number of blind people, caused, I was told, by the lack of silver nitrate, which in Europe and the United States is instilled into the eyes of every newborn baby as a preventative. One of the most moving impressions we had was in the Avenida Juarez, one of the widest streets in Mexico. Opposite a park full of palm trees, at a corner on the bare ground, sat a little blind boy, perhaps five or six years old, singing a simple monotonous melody. Whenever Lou and I passed, day or night, he was always sitting there alone, no mother, no sister, no one taking care of him or bringing him food. Music seemed to be the way most of the blind people earned their living. I saw a man with a large sombrero shadowing his empty eyes, sitting in the street, beating with a stick on tiny metal boxes of different sizes, producing with this stick a sort of melody. A box stood next to him, and when I put my little gift in it, I saw he had a few pesos already. That meant he had enough for the day, and most probably would stop working very shortly. For me, the greatest difference between New York City and Mexico City was that in the streets of New York you see so many restaurants and food shops, while in Mexico you see few food shops, but a great many book shops. This, however, has changed since the discovery of paperbacks. Nowadays, one can buy books cheaply not only in drugstores, but in every supermarket in New York. Amusing to watch were the old Indian men who leaned against the walls of houses and did their knitting while old women walked around smoking long brown cigars. From time to time, so-called bath cars drove through the city. They picked up everyone who seemed unwashed and dirty and put them into a bath. Afterwards, they gave them certificates, which for three days protected them against having another bath. Vaccination of the population had also been taken over by the government. The Indians were so afraid of this vaccination that they immediately hid when the large white vaccination trucks appeared in the streets. All the saleswomen and salesmen in grocery stores, perfumeries, and drug stores had to have blood tests before they were allowed to work in these shops. Lou had arranged with Montes de Oca that he would speak about money. On Wednesday, January 14, 1942, he held his first lecture at the university. Two days later was the first roundtable seminar. That was the steady schedule for almost two months of our stay. Lou had luncheons and meetings where I was not present. He must have met about every person of distinction in Mexico. On Sundays, we regularly had dinner at Montes de Oca's house, far away from the noise of the city. His home was located in a small old village with badly paved roads and huge shady trees. Opposite his home was the little house formerly owned by the Austrian coachman who came to Mexico with Emperor Maximilian. Montes de Oca had bought this place around 1927. People used to say it had been a convent, but our host denied this. The large, wide mansion was built around a park with lovely old trees and palms, climbing plants growing in a water basin, and tropical flowers everywhere, 
even climbing into the windows of the rooms. Peacocks were proudly strutting around in the park, enjoying the sun, the males making love to the females while spreading their feathers, which looked like Montezuma's feather crown. Our hosts received us in an open-air hall on the ground floor. About ten or twelve other guests were usually invited for dinner, among them Dr. Gustavo Velasco, Montez de Oca's favorite relative and spiritual heir. Dr. Velasco was not yet married then. He and Lupe, his future wife, were later to become very close friends of ours. Gustavo is one of Lou's greatest admirers and an ardent disciple of his teachings. As he said in his speech in honor of Lou's memory at the Mont Pelerin Society meeting in September 1974, I translated at least half a dozen of Mises' writings. I also was able to finish the translation of Socialism, which Montez de Oca had begun years before, but which he had been unable to complete on account of his work as president of Banco Internacional and because of the illness which caused his death in 1958. Montez de Oca was not married, but he had many relatives to whom he was devoted. The hostess at his parties was a niece of his, Maria Louise Diaz Lombardo, a beautiful young woman, educated in France. Like most of the people we met in Mexico, she spoke three or four languages fluently. Luncheon was served in a hall that resembled the refectory of a cloister. A huge buffet occupied one side of the wall. The other side faced the park, and the walls were covered with beautiful old tapestries. Large French windows opened onto the green, and the magic purple of the long bourgonvia that framed the windows was reflected all over the sunny room. The whole length of the dining room was filled by a huge table, high-backed chairs behind each place. One could well imagine monks having their repasts in this refectory. The meal, a formal occasion, was served beautifully. The conversation was animated, but as always on such occasions, not very deep. After we had taken our coffee, other guests would arrive, perhaps as many as a hundred, Montez de Oca had invited the Leonard Quartet to entertain at these affairs for the duration of our stay. We all would go into the garden. The peacocks would mingle with the guests, and suddenly chamber music would start. The quartet played Mozart, Bach, and Beethoven, and the atmosphere and beauty of this garden were like a dream. The guests were never punctual at these Sunday dinners, which astonished Lou and me, who were so used to being on time. Here everyone came three-quarters of an hour later than they were asked to. One Sunday, Lou decided not to be the first to arrive, but this time we were wrong. We arrived at 2 p.m., and we were surprised to see that everyone had arrived and was waiting for us. Montez de Oca had invited the Minister of Finance, Eduardo Suarez, and his wife to meet Lou, and everyone knew about it, except us. One hardly ever understands the names of guests when they are being introduced. Lou and I spoke at length with a rather good-looking man who had very smooth black hair and was not very talkative. He mostly listened to what Lou had to say. He had a nervous laugh and trembling hands, but a very agreeable voice. His wife was good-looking, well-shaped, dressed in the latest American fashion. She had lovely hands and feet, which I, rather enviously, confirm all Mexican women have, including the Indians. This time, since it was a special occasion, they served a completely Mexican dinner. First came a plain tomato soup, then crabs au gratin in huge shells, round and larger than lobsters. I never had seen this kind. After the crabs came cold wild duck, steamed with many sliced onions, olives, and green peppers, swimming in a sweet sour sauce. 
With this was served tortillas with chili so hot I thought I was eating pure pepper. For dessert there was lemon ice and a lovely sweet wine. Afterward the guests went into the park, and again the peacocks followed us, screaming loudly and not very melodiously. But when the chamber music, the highlight of the day, started, even the peacocks were silent. We left immediately after the concert, though Montes de Oca would have liked to kept us for supper. As we were walking on our way to a taxi, a car overtook us, and the nice couple with whom we had talked so long, without knowing their names, stepped out and offered to drive us home. It was only then, when we saw the plates of their car, that we learned the identity of the man, Eduardo Suarez. During Lou's lectures at the university, he was on very good terms with the faculty, though the faculty was obviously leaning to the left. But Lou was a famous colleague, and they showed him the proper respect. The rector himself invited Lou several times for luncheons and conferences, and one of the best-known Mexican scholars, Professor Silva Herzog, the dean of economics department, was one of our steady companions. He was almost blind, and one of his two charming daughters always accompanied him, so we knew them very well. He was one of the few scholars we met who did not know much English, but he understood French, which was helpful. I think we saw Mexico in a way that very few tourists ever see it, thanks, of course, to Montes de Oca and Gustavo Velasco. Our hosts made plans for every day that Lou did not have to work. One day, knowing our love for the mountains, Montes de Oca arranged an excursion to the foot of Mount Popocatepetl to get to know some friends of his. We arrived early in the morning in Montes de Oca's car, with Dr. Velasco driving. We followed the Puebla Railway, the view of Popocatepetl and Ixtachuatl, the sleeping woman, as the Indians call her, always before our eyes. Her strong, bony face, her long hair hanging down in the back, her breasts, her legs, all covered with snow, made a spectacular sight. We first stopped in a small village to look at an old church with an interesting open chapel, open because the Indians are frightened of closed churches. The church was big, but very poor. It was almost bare, with a few wooden benches inside. There were various figures of the Virgin Mary clad in old silk dresses. They have special dressmakers in Mexico, mostly old spinsters, who sew nothing but dresses for the saints. The walls of the church were originally covered with frescoes, a language and colors that the Indians understand better than the Spanish. Later these frescoes were painted over, but now they are trying to restore them. We drove on, and the road changed drastically as we left the paved highway and got on a very dusty side road, which led up to the mountains. On both sides of the road were Indian huts, made of pieces of raw wood. They had no windows and were poorly roofed with thatched straw. The road was so dirty that clouds of gray dust immediately penetrated the closed car, covering our faces and hands. I shall never understand how the Indians could live in these huts under these conditions. And they were always gay and friendly. One of the villages was even called Place of the Happiest. Gradually the road became steeper, and soon we had passed the last village. Only once in a while a single lumber worker's hut became visible through the trees. Then there was nothing but trees and mountain bushes. On the roadside, huge bushes of yellow plants, like the Indian broom bushes, were glowing in the sun. We were now up to 3,600 meters on the Paso de Cortez, the road on which Cortez traveled from Veracruz to Mexico, which leads up to Ixtachuatl. We drove up to 4,000 meters. Many cars were parked here because, from this point, 
people start to climb up the mountain. How different from European mountains this was! In Europe in February, everything would be covered with snow starting at 1,300 meters. Trees would stop at 1,800 meters. In Mexico, we had eternal sun, and the snow started at about 5,000 meters. We stopped at the house of a friend of Montes de Oca, a certain Senor Marinos, for lunch. He was a former colonel who had served under Pancho Villa. Later, he became Mexico's postmaster general, and in 1940, he retired to live for his hobby, the cultivation of flowers. He had fields full of carnations and the most beautiful roses. Some as black as velvet, others looking like green thistles. His house was built completely of stone. The dining room was furnished with lacquered black furniture from Oaxaca. The house and everything in it was tasteful and unusual. The meal was prepared by friends of his, two brothers who had built the road up to Popocatépetl. They did not speak English, so Lou and I got all the necessary information from Montes de Oca. He told us that their father had been married three times and fathered thirty children. The oldest son, forty-eight; the youngest, six. His wife was fifty, and he was still so full of vigor he would no doubt soon be looking for another wife. The two brothers took us up to a chapel built in 1553. It was built in a cave filled with flowers. The walls were covered with primitive signs, letters of thanks to the saints after recuperation from illness and disease. Near the entrance to the cave were heaps of withered flowers mixed with wheat. Near them, on a step, sat an Indian woman staring motionless into the depths of a well. Floating on the water was the dress of another woman, an unhappy person who wanted to get rid of disease or was asking for a special favor. Praying, the woman rubbed her body with the withered wheat taken out of the heap of faded flowers. The chapel was filled with statues of saints. And candles were everywhere. Candles shaped like hearts or other parts of the body, flickering irregularly in the breeze. And there were flowers everywhere. Their beautiful, clean odor mixed with the smell of burnt candles. The niche of the Virgin was empty. Outside the chapel stood an old, lonely olive tree surrounded by a fence. Here, it was said, Brother Martin de Valencia had prayed together with the singing birds. Next to the tree was the churchyard. As the ground was too stony for a garden, the dead were put in the earth, stone plates covering the holes with their names and dates. Everyone stepped over them. Here, there were no flowers, no candles. We returned to Mexico City long after sunset. It had been a beautiful but tiring day. Lou and I both had only one wish: to get under the shower and into clean clothes, and none too soon. For the first and last time in my life, I saw my darling husband hunting fleas. We were both bitten from head to toe, but he outdid me in catching them. He found five, while I only caught two. Lou was very, very busy during our two-month stay in Mexico. He also gave lectures outside Mexico City in small towns that had no air conditioning and where the heat reached ninety to ninety-five degrees. After those lectures, he came back completely exhausted. He also spoke to the law school in Mexico City on economics and politics, and once he lectured at the Bankers Club. Among the many interesting people we met were the conductors Carl Alvin, whom Lou knew from Vienna, and Eric Kleiber from Berlin, who at that time was conducting a series of Beethoven concerts. Once he invited us to attend a rehearsal of the Fifth Symphony. 
for Lou's lectures concluded with the evening concerts. Everything went smoothly during the rehearsal, and only once or twice did Cliver use his baton to stop the orchestra. It was interesting to note how he, without knowing any Spanish, could make himself understood to the musicians. One evening he told us about the difficulties he had to face during rehearsals. The musicians did not want to work overtime, not even when they knew that they would be paid for it. The Mexican way had always been to put leisure time above money, and Kleiber had great difficulty in bringing the performance up to his standard. In a way, he was helpless against their philosophy of life. One day in February, something very funny happened to Lou. In the afternoon, he went to see Montes de Oca in his office. In the course of the conversation, Montes de Oca told him that he would take him to the dinner after the seminar. Which dinner? asked Lou. Montes de Oca laughed. You really are a professor, he said. Don't you remember that today is the day when the university gives a banquet in your honor? Now it was my husband's turn to be astonished. I never got an invitation, he said. Montes de Oca was startled. But this is impossible. The rector himself has arranged everything, has ordered the invitations, has reserved a room in the Papillon, at that time Mexico's best restaurant. He went to the phone and rang up the dean of economics department, Silva Herzog, who told him that he had only just now discovered that the banquet had been arranged, but that they had forgotten to send the guest of honor an invitation. One day, Lou and I went alone to Chapultepec to visit the castle where the unhappy young Austrian imperial couple had lived. As usual, we took a bus, which was an experience in itself. A smiling young Indian with beautiful white teeth helped us down to the bus. He was clad in overalls and a clean blue shirt, and both Lou and I believed him to be one of the passengers. But then he asked us for the fare, and we realized that he was the conductor. The bus was very crowded, but immediately someone offered me a seat. After our visiting Chapultepec, Lou and I got very hungry. We went to a nice-looking restaurant opposite the park entrance, where many cars were parked and benches stood around a fountain. Entering, we saw that a luncheon meeting was underway, and we were about to leave when a waiter took us to a nice table from which we overlooked a room with the luncheon guests, about eighty men sitting at long tables. A band was playing, two girls were dancing, a mixture of a Mexican dance and an Austrian Tyrolean, and the food looked delicious. When we saw the wall decorations, Lou and I looked at each other. These were Austrian paintings, girls dancing in drindle dresses and wearing the famous Tyrol hats. After a while, the proprietor came up to our table to greet us, and when I spoke to him in German, telling him that we were from Vienna, he almost fell in a chair and told us his story. His name was Hupfer, and he had come to Mexico from Bergenland, an Austrian province near Vienna, twelve years before. His wife was from Salzburg. He bought the land for his restaurant in 1934, scrubbed floors in the beginning, but in time became very successful. He went back to Austria in 1939, and he told us that the wall paintings we admired so much were done after picture postcards. He proudly presented us to his wife, and showed us his kitchen, which, he said, a Mexican owner would never do. We really could not tell which was more sparkling, the kitchen or his wife. When we returned to the hotel, we could not sleep for hours. There was a fire in the cellar. The fire brigade came, and besides the rattling of the pumps, they kept on giving each other musical signals instead of giving orders by loudspeakers. 
This went on all night, and I watched the firemen showing an almost childish joy at making noises. I noticed the same with police officers. Nowhere do they blow so many whistles as in Mexico. On February 25th, we left Mexico by train, a new experience for Lou and me. We had never before seen such a beautiful train. The cars shone like silver. I assumed they were made of aluminum, and we could not have been more comfortable than on this journey. If we had flown back, we would never have seen so much of the country. We arrived in New York on February 27th, and Lou immediately plunged back into his work. In 1946 and again in 1949, Lou lectured in Mexico, and Montes de Oca and Gustavo Velasco took us on a trip through central Mexico. We saw the country in a way very few tourists ever get to know a foreign land. In 1958, we again went for a conference arranged by some ten members of the Mount Pelerin Society. But this time, Lou and I were not happy. Montes de Oca was seriously ill. And we both felt the shadow of his impending death. Indeed, we were never to see him again. I shall always remember Montes de Oca as one of the finest men I ever met, and I shall always be grateful to him for his hospitality and the great understanding with which he advanced Lou's work in Mexico and South America, and, without knowing it, helped re-establish Lou's confidence and optimism after our trying escape from Europe. And the first difficult months in New York. Chapter Seven: Life in New York. Though Lou had constantly tried, he had not yet found a position that he liked and that would relieve our financial worries. He asked little for himself, and he never complained. But it hurt him, for my sake, that we had to live so carefully. Yet, though we hardly ever went out for dinner, he insisted on going to the theater once a week. America was at war, and we, who had lived through so much war in Europe, Were astonished how little the war seemed to affect people in America, with exception of those, of course, whose sons or husbands were in the service. There was no food shortage; many items were rationed, but I remember only coffee and sugar having been really scarce, and once in a while you could not get the special meat you were looking for. When I watched people around me and saw that everyone was working, I was dissatisfied with myself and became restless. I had to remind myself again and again of the promise I had given myself that Lou's work and well-being should be the main purpose of my life. Though I tried to hide it, Lou noticed my dissatisfaction and urged me to go back to the stage. But that was impossible for a newcomer in a foreign country, especially in wartime, without connections. Then he insisted I should try radio, and that I did. For weeks I auditioned with W O R, C B S, and W N E W. I got encouraging letters and was invited for further auditions. The result was always the same: wait, come to our studio every day. We promise you, as soon as a part turns up for you, you are going to get it. But I could not wait weeks and months sitting around in studios and agencies. Lou needed me at home. Without me or a housekeeper, he was completely helpless. He did not even know how to boil an egg. Years later, he would often say. The greatest invention of the twentieth century is instant coffee. Even I can fix myself something to drink. It is easier than peeling an orange. Lou never learned that his right hand could be used for other purposes than writing. His manual dexterity was zero. But I knew his weaknesses. I had known them before we were married, and perhaps I loved him the more for them. The summer of 1942 taught us something about middle-class America. 
we went to the Poconos for our vacation. Lou had chosen the hotel, a small, simple inn, with perhaps thirty guests in all. The owner of the place picked us up at the station, and when we passed the churchyard, she said, This is the cemetery. Now we are slowly approaching the inn. After a few days, Lou told me he thought it would have been more appropriate if she had said, After a short stay in our inn, you will be rapidly reaching the cemetery. The guests were all extremely friendly and expected the same from us. Lou's reserved ways, always polite, of course, tickled their curiosity, and they had to know more about us. Soon they found out that Lou was a writer and a professor, which meant to them he was a schoolteacher, and that all schoolteachers were paid poorly they knew. They certainly had never met a scholar before. One morning a woman told me, I read an article of your husband's in the Mercury, Inflation and You. How interesting it is to meet a writer. I read all through breakfast. You folks must tell me more about writing. How long would you say did it take your husband to do this article? What is he doing now? You are from Austria, another said to me. Isn't that the country where the sheep come from? Apparently she had mixed up Austria with Australia. One lady complained to Lou, Imagine the cheek. They have put a second boy in my son's room. Without asking you, said Lou. Oh, no, she replied. They did not put him in his bed. That I never would have allowed. Among the guests were two sisters, together perhaps 180 years old. They admired Lou greatly and followed him wherever he went. One day one of them told Lou that she had visited Columbia University, studied French, and loved to translate. Just recently, she said, I have done some interesting work. What was it? Lou asked politely to show his interest. We have a little nephew, she answered, who is twelve years old. He is a wonderful writer. Recently he wrote a little story about his dog, and I translated it. Would you care to read it? You can imagine how stimulating such people were for my husband. The result was that we hastily escaped after only two weeks. By this time I had started to become the buffer between Lou and the people who bored him. I understood him so well he just had to give me a certain sign, and I knew what he wanted. When we came back to New York, life became somewhat more regular than before. We were often invited out, and at least twice weekly we saw guests at our home. During my free time, I was busy sending food parcels to Europe, mostly to England where the need was great, and we had so many friends. As I knew myself and my need for my work in a purposeful life, in 1943, I decided to take a course in English stenography and typing. If I could not get a job, I could help Lou, that was sure. I registered with the Delahunty Institute on 42nd Street, and for six months I went to school every day from 9 to 1, and every afternoon I sat down to do my homework. Shorthand seemed like a puzzle. It fascinated me. I hardly had finished the course when I got a job with Sunborn & Company a chemical firm, as private secretary to the president. Had there not been a war and help so hard to get, I, a middle-aged beginner, would never have been chosen for the job. To me it did not even seem real. I felt as if I were on stage again. The scene was set in a beautiful office in the financial district of the city. There were 125 employees, mostly young men and girls who wasted much time at the water coolers and restrooms. I often wondered how they ever could accomplish anything. I alone would walk in and out of the president's office. Nevertheless, I felt like a stranger. Only on Fridays, when I, like the others, got an envelope with a paycheck, 
did I know that this was part of my new life, that it was real. I did not stay even a year. Lou could not bear the thought of my coming home in the rush hour, tired, and then having to prepare dinner and work in the kitchen. Since he still did not have a secretary, I soon afterwards started to work for him. Lou was asked to become a member of the Overseas Rotary Fellowship in New York. In the first years, he attended their weekly luncheons frequently. Later, when he was too deeply involved in his writing, he went only to their annual banquet, where I accompanied him. He had been a regular member of the Rotary Club in Vienna. In Europe, the Rotary Clubs were somewhat different than those here in America. In the old country, every Rotary member was the most distinguished representative of his profession in the city. During their meetings, they discussed important political, economic, and social questions. That was why Hitler immediately dissolved not only the Freemasons, but also the Rotary Clubs all over Austria and Germany. At the end of 1942, Lou started writing various articles for the New York Times. I assume it must have been Henry Hazlitt, at that time an influential editor of the Times, who induced him to write these articles. Though the slogan of the Times, then as today, was all the news that's fit to print, and though these beautiful words have not changed in all these years, the ideological tendency of the Times certainly has. The best proof of this is their magazine and book review, I wonder how often any conservative or libertarian could write an article for the New York Times today. They have one or two conservative news analysts, but they are purely tokens. From March 28, 1942 to July 31, 1943, Lou wrote nine articles for the Times. For each of them, he received $10, but that was unimportant. More important was that his name became familiar to the general reader, and the numerous letters resulting from these articles were surprising. These nine articles were titled Hitler's Achilles Heel, The Nazis Under Blockade, Germany's Transport Problems, Reich Gets Big Shock, The Problems of a Post-War Union of the Democratic Unions, A New World Currency, Industrial Empires, Inflation and Money Supply, and British Post-War Problems. Another consequence of these articles was Lou's introduction to the National Association of Manufacturers. On January 4, 1943, Noel Sargent, Secretary of NAM, and Veda Horsch, the Assistant Secretary, invited him to come and see them in their offices on 53rd Street. They had read Lou's articles in the Times and wanted his views on how to terminate wage and price controls. These were the golden days of NAM. Theirs was the leading voice for free enterprise. Shortly after this first meeting, he was invited to work with the Economic Principles Commission, which was authorized by NAM's president and board of directors, and which functioned for many years. Lou was a contributing member of the special group that created a two-volume study called The Nature and Evolution of the Free Enterprise System. Lou's relations with the NAM lasted from 1943 to 1954, giving him a forum where he met all the important industrialists of the country, the most respected economists, and the best-known businessmen. In 1943, besides the numerous economic meetings and sessions with the NAM on monetary reform and economic principles, he was a member of a commission to study the organization of peace, and he participated in Count Kudenhoven's Pan-Europe Conference in March 1943. On March 15, 1943, he spoke on aspects of American foreign trade policy in the faculty club of New York University. 
On April 10th, he spoke in Boston at the 20th Century Association on Economic Nationalism and Peaceful Cooperation, where he said, in short, Economic nationalism is the root cause of the international conflicts which resulted in two world wars. It was economic nationalism that, on the one hand, drove the dynamic nations into aggression and, on the other hand, prevented the peaceful nations from stopping in time the rise of Nazism and from erecting a barrier against a new German aggression. All plans for a better post-war order are futile if they do not succeed in eliminating protectionism and establishing free trade. On November 10th and 11th, he gave two lectures at Princeton. It was a great financial relief for us when William J. Carson, the executive director of the National Bureau of Economic Research, wrote to Lou that the Rockefeller Foundation had renewed his grant for another two years, to the end of November 1944. Also by this time, his connection with the Yale University Press had begun. See Chapter 8, The Story of Human Action. The next 25 years were positively the most productive and creative of Lou's life. I never knew how he could manage, but he had time for everything and everyone. His mind and his time were equally well organized, and there was not a Saturday or Sunday, if there was no NAM meeting, when he did not go with me to a museum or to an art gallery in the morning, and to a theater in the evening. I have already written about Professor Paul Manteau and mentioned his son Etienne. Etienne was very dear to Lou. He had often attended his course in Geneva and came to the house to converse with Lou, who thought Etienne to be one of the most promising scholars of the future. At the beginning of the war, Etienne served in the French Air Force as an observation officer on the Saar frontier. In 1941, under a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation, he came to the United States for research at Princeton's Institute for Advanced Studies. He was working on a book on Keynes, published in 1952 by Charles Scribner's sons. He came to New York often, sometimes two or three times a month, to see Lou. One special afternoon, Tuesday, March 16, 1943, I will never forget. He came home early. I served tea. We spoke about his parents, Paris, Geneva, the war, but soon I felt he was impatient to talk to Lou about his own work. I excused myself and went out. At the door, before closing it, I turned around, and suddenly the couch where Etienne had been sitting seemed to have disappeared. In its place I saw Etienne in uniform, lying on a battlefield, his eyes closed, killed. This picture lasted only a few seconds. I closed the door behind me, went into my room, sat down, and tried to get a hold of myself, but the image would not disappear. Later, when Etienne had left, Lou came into my room and gave me Etienne's greetings. I could not restrain myself. I told Lou what I had seen. Lou laughed at me. You simply are imagining things. He is not in the Air Force anymore. But I saw he was uneasy and said this only to quiet me. A short time afterward, Etienne returned to France and resumed his officer's duties in the Air Force. On April 29, 1945, hardly more than a week before the bells rang for victory and peace, his plane was shot down near a small Bavarian village in the Danube Valley, killing him. Lou was deeply shocked and grieved. Etienne Manteau had meant so much to him, and Lou later wrote in his article, Stones into Bread, the Keynesian Miracle, a highly gifted French economist, 
Etienne Manteau has analyzed Keynes point for point. Etienne Manteau, son of the famous historian Paul Manteau, was the most distinguished of the younger French economists. He had already made valuable contributions to economic theory, among them a keen critique of Keynes' general theory, published in 1937 in the Revue d'Economie Politique, before he began his The Carthaginian Peace, or The Economic Consequences of Mr. Keynes. He did not live to see his book published. As an officer in the French Air Force, he was killed in active service during the last days of the war. His premature death is a heavy blow to France, which is today badly in need of sound and courageous economists. This article was first published by Isaac Don Levine in Plain Talk, March 1948, and was reprinted in Ludwig von Mises' Planning for Freedom. In 1943, at a party with the Hazlitts, we met Lawrence Fertig and his wife Bertie. In all the years we knew her, we never heard her say an unkind word about anyone. She always tried to understand and excuse human frailty. Over the years, the Fertigs became our closest friends. Hazlitt and Fertig, who were close friends, had recognized immediately that Lou, a genuine scholar, was not the type to publish only for money. So they both did for Lou what he himself could not do. They made sure that, financially, Lou got ground under his feet again. He could never ask for anything for himself, for his writing, yes, but not personally. One little episode may be significant. Lou always wanted me to travel with him when he lectured, but he could not afford to pay for me. One day, it must have been in the forties, Hazlitt told Lou about an invitation he got for a lecture trip. He did not want to go without Francis, so Hazlitt answered, is Mrs. Hazlitt included in this invitation? Of course, came the reply. From that day on, Lou followed Hazlitt's example, and he did not have to travel alone any more. In later years, Lou's invitations always included me. A man like Lou could not have had a better friend than Hazlitt. His enthusiasm for Lou's ideas, Lou's teachings, Lou's convictions, was so honest, his thinking so parallel to Lou's perception, that he had the constant urge to write about Lou, to show the world what it could gain by reading Lou's books, and what it could lose by neglecting them. Fertig was well known through his weekly column, which appeared for seventeen years in the now-defunct World Telegram, through his book Prosperity Through Freedom, and through his frequent appearances on television in political and economic discussions. In 113 of his columns, he mentioned Lou not less than 18 times. Over more than thirty years, every Sunday morning when we were in town, the telephone rang, Larry asking for Lou. They would talk for almost an hour. This was the weekly review. Everything that had happened in economics and politics, all the burning questions of the day would be discussed, and Lou gave his forewarnings for the future. Larry was more optimistic than Lou, though Lou at that time did not see the situation of the United States as hopeless. He had confidence in the strength of America, confidence that she would pull out of the difficult situation inflation had brought about. But whatever he said and wrote contained a warning about the growing deficit in productivity in comparison to America's supply of goods and services. Almost immediately after Lou put down the receiver, the telephone would ring again. This time it would be Henry Hazlitt, Harry to his friends. This conversation would last another hour with different questions and answers. But Lou's warnings were always the same. These were the only two people with whom my husband really talked on the telephone. 
Mostly, I answered. Appointments and arrangements were made through me. For Lou, the telephone was a necessary but disturbing means of communication. He tried to avoid it as much as possible. A third of our very close friends was Philippe Courtney, who had lived in Paris. Courtney was head of an important steel export firm in Paris and director of the executive committee of the Bank Transatlantique of Paris. He was married to a former singer of the Opera Comique in Paris, and when the Germans occupied France, the Courtneys came to the United States and made their home in New York, where Philippe joined the American branch factory of Coty, the renowned perfume manufacturer, becoming the firm's president. Strangely enough, he hated the smell of perfume. He was not even able to recognize the difference between scents, but he loved economics and reading, and very soon he became an enthusiastic admirer of Lou's and a great friend of mine. He was, if I remember rightly, the first one to suggest in a French newspaper that Lou deserved the Nobel Prize for Human Action. Courtney was opposed to a government-fixed gold price, and he fought like a lion for his ideas. If the government did or said anything that displeased him, a letter went off or an editorial appeared in a newspaper or a news pamphlet was published. Hardly ever were his letters disregarded. Philippe was the most hospitable and generous friend imaginable. For many years he invited the family, as we called our little group, for dinner at the plaza. The round corner table, number one, was always reserved for him. This was the table at which Helen Trouble and Lauritz Melchior used to dine with their friends after the opera. Our family included, besides Lou and myself, the Hazlitts and the Fertigs. Philippe often invited other people to these dinners. Bill and Mary Peterson, about whom I have written more elsewhere, were frequent guests. One of the more regular participants was Dr. Albert Hahn, a well-known economist and banker. Later, in the fifties, he returned with Nora, his beautiful wife, to Switzerland, where he died in 1968. Albert Hahn's wit, humor, and sarcasm fit splendidly into the atmosphere of these dinner parties. Whenever a famous Frenchman whom Philippe knew was in town, he invited him to join us. André Moiroy was Philippe's guest several times. Never did Philippe receive his guests without a present for the ladies. Every new lipstick his factory produced had to get the seal of approval from the lips of the wives of these favorite friends, and all of us were at all times provided with the best of his perfumes. King Arthur's round table dinners had a certain unforgettable color and charm. The discussions were lively and animated. Attentive service, good food, and excellent wine elated and lubricated our minds. We were gay but never noisy, and never, never was there any gossiping. In retrospect, I would say that these evenings belonged to my fondest memories. Lou always looked forward to these gatherings with as much pleasure as I did. He relished these hours with friends who were so close to him in his way of thinking, for in their congenial company he could talk without restraint. In August 1943 we again went to the White Mountains, but this time we stayed at Ravine House. Again we made the most beautiful climbs. On Monday, August 9th, we went to, up to Carter Dome. On August 12th, we walked again up to Mount Washington, but this time via Gulfside Trail to Edmonds Coal and back via Randolph Path to Ravine House. This excursion we made with our very good friends Louis and Lucy Rougier. The Rougiers had to leave Paris when the Germans occupied France, and they remained in New York during the war, living very close to us. 
We saw each other at least two or three times weekly. On August 15th, Lou and I went up to Carter Notch. On the 16th, we hardly ever took a day's rest, to Lowe's Bald Spot. On the 20th, we went to Dome Rock, where we met the Havelaires, mountain climbers like us. On the 21st, we went to the Lookout Ledge and Crescent House, and on the 25th to Pine Mountain, and on the 27th to Hudson Huts via Valley Way, returning via Knife Edge. On one of these hikes, we unexpectedly met Richard, Lou's brother, and his future wife, a well-known mathematician, and for many years Richard's assistant, whom I had never met before. Lou always insisted he would not work during the summer, that is to say, he would not write. He kept his resolution so strictly that he did not even write to his friends. That was my task. That's what I married you for, he joked. But on our walks I frequently saw him deeply lost in thoughts. Then I would stay absolutely quiet. I knew how necessary this complete silence was for the working of his mind, and I also knew that he was happy because, though lost in his thoughts, he knew he was not alone. I was with him. From time to time he took my hand or put his arm about my shoulder, never saying a word just to assure himself that I was near. The next summer, 1944, we spent at Lake Placid where we met many friends, made beautiful excursions, and decided in the end that New Hampshire was more to our liking. On our walks every day, Lou tried to convince me that I should not neglect what he called my talent for writing, which he felt I proved so successfully in Vienna with my stage adaptations. Write short stories, he told me. You can do it. And he ordered a book for me to study the composition of short stories. Actually, he said, there is only one important thing to observe. You must build up the whole story for a surprise ending. If you can do that, you have a good story. That summer I wrote one short story after the other. I had ideas enough. But when we came back to New York, I was much too busy working with Lou to be able to follow his advice. On October 12, 1944, Lou made his first long trip alone since our arrival in the United States. He had not yet learned Hazlitt's prescription for getting me invited. This trip was arranged by the NAM Advisory Group, with the purpose of having Lou talk at two meetings, one in Los Angeles, the other in San Francisco. For Los Angeles, he had chosen as his subject, depression and unemployment. Are they inevitable? In San Francisco, he was to talk about the crisis of free enterprise. A letter that Lou got shortly before he left, signed J.A.R., name unreadable, Director of Braun Corporation Chemicals and Laboratory Supplies, Los Angeles, gives an interesting description of California at that time. Southern California is very definitely and vitally interested in the problem of the depression and unemployment. Probably we, in Southern California, have one of the most critical areas in the United States. We are today practically a two-industry community, ships and planes. I think that no citizen group in America is more keenly aware of the crisis of free enterprise than our group in Los Angeles. There is one factor to which your attention should definitely be drawn. Very probably you are already aware of the differences in thinking of business and industrial men in San Francisco and Los Angeles. San Francisco has been a closed shop city for many, many years. Business executives up there have grown accustomed to this idea. They have, we in Los Angeles think, a defeatist attitude. They are apparently making very little attempt to throw off any of the shackles of the closed shop. 
in Los Angeles, on the other hand, our executives have seen Los Angeles develop from a second-rate city to a real power. They attribute, and I agree with them, that much of this industrial growth has been due to the fact that Los Angeles has, during this long period of years, been able to maintain open shop conditions. I bring this difference in these two cities to your attention to remind you of the different thinking which is being done in Los Angeles and in our sister city to the north. For some time, Lou had been in correspondence with Leonard Reed, then general manager of the Chamber of Commerce in Los Angeles. In his first letter, dated June 4, 1943, Reed invited Lou for a series of lectures on behalf of free competitive enterprise, and he sent Lou a pamphlet published by the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce. Lou answered on June 12. The arena in which the fate of the West will be decided is neither the conference rooms of the diplomats, nor the offices of the bureaucrats, not the Capitol in Washington, not the election campaigns. The only thing which really matters is the outcome of the intellectual combat between the supporters of socialism and those of capitalism. The masses, those millions of voters who are supreme in democracy, have to learn that they are deluded by spurious doctrines and that only market society and free enterprise can bring them what they want, prosperity. But in order to persuade the crowd, you have first to convince the elite, the intellectuals, and the businessmen themselves. He agreed to give some lectures, and Reed proposed the date of October 20, 1944, having heard that Lou would be in California around that time. He also invited him for dinner at his home to meet a group of outstanding men, among them my husband's good friend Benjamin M. Anderson. On Monday, October 16th, Lou arrived in Los Angeles, and for the next two days he was the guest of R.C. Hoyles, publisher of the Santa Ana Register. During these two days he spoke twice, once at a forum lecture sponsored by the Register about the causes of war, and once at the Santa Ana Rotary Club about credit expansion and depression. It was on October 18, 1944, that Lou met Leonard Reed for the first time, Leonard Reed who was to play such an important part in Lou's future. I would like Leonard to tell you about this first meeting in his own words. It was during World War II, about 1944, that I met Dr. Mises. As general manager of the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce, I had invited him to address a meeting of our board. Mises outlined, in his talk, the inevitable path of government intervention. He pointed out how government regulation leads to problems and misfortunes its advocates had not anticipated. If they do not realize that the causes of this mischief rest on the intervention by force of government in the market, they propose another and still another government intervention. Each law is enacted in the attempt to cure the ills caused by the point of view of its proponents, until finally the only opportunity that still seems open is to take the final steps leading to a completely controlled economy of the Nazi or Russian type. It was a pessimistic picture that Mises painted in that lecture. Each of us in the audience could see a parallel between the theory he presented and the path our own government was traveling, with its wartime price and wage controls, priority in the allotment of raw materials, rationing of consumer goods, and the like. After the talk, one of our audience questioned the speaker. It is depressing prospect that you have outlined, Dr. Mises, considering the program our politicians have adopted and its inevitable disastrous consequences, what would you do if by chance you were made dictator of this country? 
What first step would you take, Dr. Mises, if you could do just exactly as you wished? Mises' eyes sparkled, and quick as a flash he replied with a grin, I would abdicate. With this statement, Mises endeared himself to me. Here, I realized, was a truly consistent libertarian, one who really did not believe in using the power of the government to bend people to his way of thinking. Lou often wrote to me from the West, if only a few words. On the train near Salt Lake City, he wrote on October 15th, Darling, everything is okay. It is awful to travel alone. I am sorry you are not with me. I love you. Kisses, Lou. On the 18th, he wrote, Darling, I am through with three of my speeches and now can rest a little. I was rather disappointed that there was no letter of yours here in the hotel. Why? What does it mean? Tomorrow I have luncheon with Anderson. I kiss you. The next day I got only three lines. You mean everything to me. Without you, there is no sun shining for me any more. He was happy to come home again. I think the greatest impression Lou had on this trip was Leonard Reed's stag party. He told me what a surprise it was for him to see his host put on a chef's cap, an apron, and barbecue the steaks for dinner. Lou observed, Never in my life have I eaten better broiled steaks than these. It was a new experience for him to see a well-read intellectual working in the kitchen. On December 6, 1944, Lou received the following letter from Dean E. Rowland Collins of New York University. My dear professor, I have decided to recommend to the Chancellor and Council of the University that you be appointed to the faculty of the Graduate School of Business Administration for the second semester of the academic year 1944 through 1945 as visiting professor of economics to give two hours weekly instruction throughout the semester at a compensation of $1,000. I propose that you offer a course to be called Statism and the Profit Motive, for which you have suggested the following description. A critical examination of the viewpoints of the orthodox and unorthodox economists, the various efforts to restrict the height of profits or to eliminate profits altogether are analyzed in detail. Special attention is given to the policies of fixed commodity prices, wage rates, and interest rates at a level different from that determined by the unhampered interplay of market factors. I know that you will understand that final appointment must await approval of the Chancellor and Council. However, it is the general practice to approve the Dean's recommendations in these matters, so that we can assume that the matter is settled except for public announcement. The course title that I have used, namely Statism and the Profit Motive, is subject to change. It may be that you would prefer simply the profit motive. As always, when he got any letter of importance, Lou came into my room and silently gave me the letter. Only when he saw my reaction, when he realized that I was happy, did he smile faintly, thus showing what the letter meant to him. From now on, I knew our life would be changed. He had the opportunity to teach, to have young people share the wealth of his ideas, the clarity of his mind, the logic of his reasoning. I knew what teaching meant to him, and how he had missed it. And when, in January 1945, the letter of approval came from the Council of New York University, telling him that the appointment was confirmed, he was happy. It will always be a credit to New York University that it offered Lou this teaching opportunity at the Graduate School of Business Administration. Until then, no big university in this country had offered him a chair. 
that Dean Collins was a great friend and protractor of Lou's from the first day of their meeting was clear. So was Dr. Doro. But the attitude of the other professors was cool. They were very, very respectful, but Lou was not a man of their kind. He was a stranger to them. When they went home, their work was done and science was buried for the evening with a drink or two, chatting with their family or friends, or enjoying a good game of sport on television. Often I came to see Lou in his office. He later had a secretary and an assistant. And I noted the respect with which his colleagues treated him, but also the lack of personal warmth. One of the few exceptions was Professor Louis H. Haney, who once asked Lou to read the first chapter of his forthcoming book, History of Economic Thought, and do me the great favor of making a critical examination of the chapter, which Lou, of course, did. Lou's courses at NYU were sometimes very exciting. One of his former students, whose wish to remain anonymous I have to respect, told me four or five students had formed a group in order to protect the professor against dissident students who opposed his views. They occupied a table ahead of the class next to the professor in order to be ready to protect him against any possible violence. But actually, it never went that far. This was not the only change brought about in 1945. That year, Lou's official connection with the National Bureau of Economic Research came to an end, though Lou always remained on friendly terms with the NBER. This is part of a letter from William J. Carson of the NBER. The National Bureau has been glad to extend its hospitality to you and to have contributed in this way to carry forward your studies of the economic factors and policies involved in the European crisis. When you are in the vicinity of the National Bureau at 1919 Broadway or at Hillside, I hope you will always feel free to stop in and see us. Indeed, we hope you will make every effort to call when you can. Also in 1945, Leonard Reed left California for New York to become Vice President of the National Industrial Conference Board. Reed's purpose in coming East was to spread the libertarian ideas, which he was convinced were the only means to keep America and the world going. He only stayed with the conference board for a year. He soon discovered that the flow of ideas for individual liberty was restricted by the influence of labor union leaders. So some close friends, including J. Howard Pugh, B.E. Hutchinson, a vice president of the Chrysler Corporation, and H.W. Lunau, president of the Volcker Fund, got together and decided to establish their own institution to spread libertarian ideas. They bought a beautiful estate in Irvington, New York, where, in 1946, Leonard Reed established the Foundation for Economic Education, or FEE, and became its president. It was a touch of genius combined with a shrewd sense of business that caused Leonard to associate Lou with FEE. It was the best idea he ever had, for he knew pretty well that if he could anchor the most eminent fighter for the free market to his foundation, not only the existence of the foundation was assured, but it would arouse the widest interest all over the country. In October 1946, Lou was made a regular member of the FEE staff, and in later years he promised to give a series of lectures in Irvington every year. The spiritual and intellectual atmosphere there was completely to his taste. The FEE mansion is located in a beautiful garden with tall old trees. The lawn is kept immaculately and flowers bloom everywhere. The house itself, built in 1888, has a dignity of its own. The rooms are large, the library well-stocked, and all over the place there is a harmony of quiet, concentrated working. The creator of all this was Leonard Reed. 
The first one at his desk, at eight every morning, he was the last one to leave in the evening. His studio was tremendously large, and his oversized desk in a far corner reminded me of Mussolini, who had intentionally placed his desk in the remotest corner of his room to make his visitors feel small and lost whenever they had to cross the room to speak to him. Leonard Reed was quite the opposite. As soon as someone appeared at the always open door, he got up, greeted his visitor, and made him feel at ease. Always working on an article or writing a new book, Reed found time to talk to everyone. Aggie, Leonard's wife, was one of the most charming women I ever met. She was so delicate and lovely, so full of gaiety and laughter. Everybody loved her, even women. Never did Lou and I leave Fee without a big bunch of flowers she secretly put into our car. She died of cancer in 1974, and Leonard, after that, tried to work even harder than before. One of the regular tasks of the Foundation was to arrange seminars for teachers, journalists, and students. Lou enjoyed speaking there. He knew that the participants were carefully questioned about their education and interests, and were eager to hear him. It was interesting to note how many women attended these seminars. Before the classes started, Lou regularly made the rounds. First he had a little talk with Reed, then he went to see Edmund O'Peats, for whom he had a special appreciation. Then he visited with W. Marshall Curtis and Paul Poirot. Paul usually had to discuss an article that he was about to publish in The Freeman, Fee's monthly magazine. Finally, Lou went into Bettina Bien's office. As a rule, Bettina had a pile of his books ready for him to autograph, or letters to sign, which were typed for him in her office. On his way down to the lecture hall, all these offices, with the exception of that of Dr. O'Peats, were on the second floor, he had a friendly word for every one of the employees. His lectures were calculated for a special Irvington audience. He was able to evaluate his listeners immediately by asking one or the other question. He counted on people who had read Planned Chaos and Omnipotent Government, but who had to be led up the road to human action. Though the content of his lectures in Irvington was lighter, his mode of delivery was the same as at New York University. The interest was great, and so was the demand for Lou's books, which Leonard Reed always kept in print and ready for distribution. For thirty years, Lou complained about the lack of a really good, serious, truthful libertarian magazine. He always hoped that someone would bring together the people and the money to create a libertarian weekly, or fortnightly, which he thought so necessary for the country. This was the dream and the greatest aspiration of his life. Plain Talk, published by Isaac Don Levine, had folded. That magazine, and later The Freeman, financed by J. Howard Pugh and edited by Henry Hazlitt, came nearest to Lou's conception of a libertarian journal. Isaac Don Levine, Russian-born, often joined our circle. He and Lou had more than one thing in common. Through education and experience, they both had a full understanding of Russian policies, and Lou, to the last year of his life, warned everyone to watch the communist doctrines. In 1949, Don Levine wrote these warning words, the premises for a constructive foreign policy are not subject to discovery by any advisory board. They are time-tested and well-known. First, you must know your enemy and gauge the range of his operations. In the present instance, that range is global. Europe and Asia, the North and the South Poles, are all on America's first line of defense. Mind you, this was written in 1949. Lou's contract with New York University was renewed through the years until 1949. Raises brought his compensation to $2,000.
1947, we spent a few days in the Catskills, where Lou persuaded me to start writing a film script. He gave me the idea, but I did not like it very much. It had an historical subject, the Hessians, and from my feeling it was too dry. But we finished it in one of the following country summers. It is still hidden somewhere in one of my drawers. One morning on our way back to New York, I saw that Lou was especially tense while driving. As I mentioned in an earlier chapter, he was never a good driver, and I never felt safe with him. I offered to take the wheel, but he would not let me. Half an hour later, near Sagartis, when he saw a truck coming toward us, he lost control of the car. We crashed into a tree. I was thrown out of the car after my head had gone through the windshield. For a moment I was unconscious. Lou was apparently unharmed. In no time a doctor was there, giving me an injection. I was taken by ambulance to the hospital in Sagartis. I remember the first words I spoke to Lou as the doctor took care of me. I'll never drive with you again. My cheekbone was broken. I was operated on, and when I was brought to my room, Lou was sitting quietly next to the bed. He was terribly pale and did not move. When he got up, I noticed the difficulties it caused him. I asked him whether anything was wrong, but he brushed my questions aside. I was almost certain that something had happened to him, and I asked the doctor to examine him. We discovered that Lou had broken five ribs. He must have suffered terrible pains, but he would not say a word, and as usual, he never complained and never left my side. I kept my word. I did not ride with him again. He often asked me to let him drive. I told him he would have to drive alone, and as he never liked to drive alone, he had to give it up. I was rather depressed the first few weeks after the accident. I had a big scar on my face. The car was smashed and would never be safe again, even if we had it thoroughly repaired. But then came the great surprise. Philip Courtney called. Margaret, you and Lou need a car. I don't want you to drive a car that is not absolutely safe. There is a tempest waiting for you at the Pontiac garage. See whether you like it. It's yours. How well he understood Lou. He wanted to help him overcome his self-reproaches and lift me out of my blues. It took me quite a while until I had fought my fear and could drive again. The car gave me tremendous pleasure. Every Sunday we went into the country, usually taking some friends along. Until they left New York to live in Switzerland, Dr. and Mrs. Rudy Klein often came with us. Rudy had been a student of Lou's in Vienna. He and his wife, Lilo, who lived in our neighborhood, were good companions and close friends of ours and loved hiking as much as we did. Rudy had a wonderful memory, and he remembered conversations with Lou decades earlier. Once he reminded me of an afternoon shortly after America had entered the war in 1941, when he and Lilo had tea with us in our apartment. Another guest was a son of the famous Italian economist Luigi Aenaudi. The younger Aenaudi was greatly worried about the fate of his native country under German mastery. Lou tried to encourage him, saying, The Germans will not win the war. Italy will rise again, but England will become one of the poorest nations in Europe. Perhaps the day will come when we will see your father as the president of the Italian Republic. Twenty years later, Lou's prophecies came true. Klein told me of another episode which happened at the time Nixon was first elected president. Rudy told Lou he could see a ray of hope in Nixon's choice of advisors. Lou answered, It is not sufficient that the advisors understand the economic problems. The head of the government must understand them himself. Otherwise, he won't be willing to die for his ideas. Nobody dies for the ideas of his advisors. Milo and Rudy Klein were the last friends to see us in 1973, 
when we were in Saint-Mat, the health resort above Lucerne. Twice they traveled six hours a day to be with us for only a few hours. They were and still are very good friends. Chapter 8 The Story of Human Action I should know human action very well. I typed 890 pages of it, and after the index was finished, I checked it. Lou was very strict boss, at least with me. Whenever he saw a typing error, he made me redo the whole page, exactly as I had to do at the Delahanty School of Business. Erasing was strictly prohibited there, and so it was with Lou. It is no news to most of my readers that human action is the English revised edition of Nationale Economie, published in Geneva in 1940. Nationale Economie was published in 1980 in a new edition by Philosophia Inc., Munich. The war did great harm to the book. In spite of excellent reviews, it never reached German-speaking countries, and the Swiss publishing firm did not survive the war. In 1942, when we were only partly settled in our new apartment in New York, Lou started planning on a revised English edition. It was not a translation, since the new book refers much more to American than to European conditions, and it was greatly enlarged. He worked for many years on it. Each day I could type only a certain number of pages, as my days were filled with many other tasks. That is how I came to live with human action as well as with Lou. It was part of my life as well as his, and I shared all the joys and the disappointments that the coming years brought. Human action meant more to Lou than all the work he did before or after, and therefore he suffered more by the maltreatment of his work by the Yale University Press when they published the second edition than he had ever suffered before. But I don't want to anticipate events. I shall describe them chronologically and thus make it easier for the reader to understand how the book was created, how many difficulties there were to overcome until it was finally printed, and the real suffering Lou had to go through when he saw human action, the most important contribution of his created life, mutilated in its second edition. Lou's first contact with Yale University Press involved his omnipotent government, and he was directed to Yale by Henry Hazlitt. When I look through the files, I see more clearly than ever how much Henry Hazlitt has done, and is still doing to spread my husband's ideas. In the first years of our stay in America, Harry, himself a busy and hard-working man, read all of Lou's manuscripts and corrected them, a huge task. Hazlitt shared my husband's belief and convictions. They both scorned wanting something for nothing and expecting pay for no work. One day, I remember, I was in bed with a sore throat. Lou came into my room with a manuscript under his arm. Read this, he said. I have just finished a book. It was omnipotent government. It was handwritten. I read it without a break from beginning to end, and I immediately knew it would be a success. If I could read a book of his, spellbound, without being able to stop, the public would go for it. In April 1943, Hazlitt wrote to Lou, The Yale University Press has expressed an interest in seeing your manuscript. I suggest that you send it to Mr. Eugene Davidson at the Yale University Press. Lou did as he was advised, and a friendly and congenial relationship between Lou and Davidson soon developed. Once a month they met, usually for lunch, to discuss their publishing plans. Davidson wrote Hazlitt thanking him on December 16, 1943. Yesterday, Professor von Mises was here, in New Haven, settling the final details of his manuscript. Needless to say, we all feel the book will be a highly important and challenging contribution to present-day thought. We are immensely grateful to you for the share you have had in its completion. 
Norman V. Donaldson, director of the Yale University Press, shared Davidson's enthusiasm. Four days later, Donaldson wrote to Lou, It was fine that you could come up to New Haven and that we were able to accomplish so much. I do not need to tell you again that I have the highest hope for the book. On January 24, 1944, Davidson wrote, The more I've been thinking about your views about bureaucracy, the more it has seemed to me that we ought to discuss very seriously the possibility of your writing them up in book form. Again and again I find myself remembering your vivid description of the branch office of the Yale University Press as compared with that of the Internal Revenue Service, and I'd be very much mistaken if a great many people wouldn't find that kind of statement clarifying their opinions. January 31st, Lou answered Davidson, I am seriously considering your suggestion to write a small book on the economic and social problems of bureaucracy. It is a subject very tempting to me, and I think of real interest to a large public. Very quickly, on February 2, 1944, came Davidson's answer. I am glad to know that you are giving serious consideration to the idea of writing a short book on bureaucracy. I am glad to hear the proofs, omnipotent government, were in such good shape and were much nearer to publication. The choice for a subtitle for omnipotent government created some difficulties. Davidson proposed to meet on February 16th for lunch. We can discuss the subtitle and the bureaucracy book, and I hope we can report progress in both instances. At this luncheon, Lou must have agreed to write bureaucracy, for on March 1, 1944, Davidson wrote to Lou, Both George Day, George Parmley Day, chairman of the board, and Norman Donaldson were delighted to hear that you thought well of the idea of going ahead with the book on bureaucracy. And on March 3rd, he wrote again, I'm delighted to be able to tell you that our committee has been glad to approve our commissioning the book on bureaucracy. We all look forward to the successful outcome of this new venture. On June 2, 1944, Davidson could acknowledge receipt of the manuscript and wrote, The manuscript seems fine to me. In fact, I think we have quite a book here. I wanted to get this word of my own enthusiasm for the new child off to you as quickly as possible. Omnipotent Government and Bureaucracy were the first books Lou had written in English, and the public response and the reviews were excellent. But these two books were only the beginning of the immense output of his writing in the United States. From the beginning, he was determined to revise National Economie for an English-speaking public. In December 1944, he sent Davidson this following summary of National Economie. My objective in writing the treaties, National Economie, Theorie des Handelns und Wirtschaftens, was to provide a comprehensive theory of economic behavior, which would include not only the economics of a market economy, free enterprise system, but no less the economics of any other thinkable system of social cooperation, be socialism, interventionism, corporatism, and so on. Furthermore, I deemed it necessary to deal with all of these objections, which, from various points of view, for instance, of ethics, psychology, history, anthropology, ethnography, biology, have been raised against the soundness of economic reasoning and the validity of the methods heretofore applied by the economists of all schools and lines of thought. Only such an exhaustive treatment of all critical objections can satisfy the exacting reader and convince him that economics is a science both conveying knowledge and able to guide conduct. The book starts accordingly from a general theory of human action, of which the behavior commonly called economic is only a special case. It analyzes the fundamental epistemological problems of the social sciences 
and determines the role assigned in their framework to economics. On the basis of these more general investigations, it then proceeds to a more thorough treatment of all problems of economics. The English language edition will not be a simple translation of the book published in German in Geneva in 1940. Besides the revision of the whole text, which will involve entirely rewriting some chapters, other important changes seem to be necessary in order to adapt the book better to the intellectual climate of America. In fact, an American reader approaches the economic problems from a different angle than the German reader, who is more or less under the spell of Hegelianism, the Nazi philosophy, and other isms, fortunately less popular in this country. It is, for instance, superfluous to America to refute the spurious doctrines of Werner Sombart and Othmar Spann. The treatise is purely scientific and certainly not a popular book. However, as it does not use any technical terms, but those precisely defined and explained, it can be understood by every educated man. It is true that the public is at present not much interested in reading ponderous economic books. But the wide response which works discussing the most complicated questions of physics, biology, and the philosophy and epistemology of the natural sciences have found among our contemporaries proves that this lack of interest is not due to an aversion to occupation with intricate studies. It is very likely that the great issue of post-war reconstruction will stimulate interest in a book which deals exhaustively with such problems as prices, monopoly, money, and credit, the business cycle and unemployment, and discusses thoroughly all proposals for an economic and social reform. On December 28th, Davidson thanked my husband and asked for the amount of advance he would need to do the book. And Davidson continued, I can then take up the whole matter with the members of our executive committee soon after the first of the year. On January 15, 1945, Davidson wrote to Hazlitt, Mr. von Mises may have told you that we have discussed the possibility of his translating and partly rewriting his book National Economie. It would be a very real help if you could give us a statement of the book's importance. In order for our committee to approve a project of this size, they will want to be convinced of the width and depth and fundamental character of the contribution. My reason, of course, for writing this letter to you is that we greatly value your judgment and are in your debt for having introduced von Mises to us in the first place. Hazlitt answered Davidson on January 18, 1945, referring him to men who knew Lou's work and could speak with authority about national economy. It might be worth writing to some economists who may know this particular book or who knew Mises' general work. Among these I may mention Fritz Machlup of the University of Buffalo, Professor Gottfried von Haberler, now of, at Harvard University, Dr. B. H. Beckert of Columbia, once a student of Mises, Professor John B. Van Sickle of Vanderbilt University, who I believe was also once a pupil of Mises, Professor B. M. Anderson of the University of California at Los Angeles, who is familiar with Mises' work, especially on monetary theory, Garrett Garrett National Industrial Conference Board, and if you think there is time to reach them, Professors Lionel Robbins and F. A. von Hayek of the London School of Economics. On January 19, 1945, Mr. Davidson received this letter from Benjamin Anderson. In regard to your request about von Mises' National Economy, my own belief that it is important that it be published here is based on my knowledge of all the work of von Mises that has been published or translated into English, as well as the knowledge I have gained from conversations with him. I should like to say that, in my opinion, 
Excellent as the two books are that Yale University Press has already published, the works that hitherto have been translated out of the original German are even better and more important. They are his works on socialism, an economic and sociological analysis, and the theory of money and credit. The first of these volumes was the first Mises volume I had ever read. It struck me as by far the most profound and important critique of the whole theory and implications of socialism that has ever been written, not excluding the classic work of Baumbauer, which was narrower in scope. Mises' Theory of Money and Credit, Professor Lionel Robbins of the London School of Economics wrote in his introduction, has long been regarded as the standard textbook on the subject in continental circles. National Economy is von Mises' book on general economic principles. It is the central trunk, so to speak, of which the subject discussed in his book on money and his book on socialism are merely the branches. It is the fundamental theory of which the conclusions in the books on socialism and money are the corollaries. It is many years since a first-rate comprehensive book on basic economic principles has appeared in English. I think, therefore, that a book by von Mises, translated and brought up to date, would have a very important effect on economic thought in America. On February 1, 1945, Lou had a letter from Professor Hayek, in which Hayek informed him that he would be lecturing in April at Columbia, Chicago, Wisconsin, Oklahoma, and Stanford Universities, and would see us the first days of April. Lou wrote to Hayek on February 23, 1945. The news of your impending lecture tour is very gratifying. It is almost a public sensation. You probably do not realize how great the success of your book is, The Road to Serfdom, and how popular you are in this country. The Yale Press plans to publish a revised English edition of my National Economy. I have already started to write it. But as the book is rather voluminous, and its publication involves a considerable investment, the press's new board wants to have a statement on the book's importance from a renowned economist. As practically no American economist reads foreign language books, you are the only scholar who could write such an appraisal. On July 1945, Lou sent Yale University Press's Donaldson another explanatory letter about national economy, telling him, The German-language edition of my national economy published in 1940 in Switzerland, has 756 pages. For the English edition, I am trying to eliminate all critical references to European doctrines, unknown or long since discarded in the Anglo-Saxon countries. But on the other hand, I must deal more thoroughly than I did in the original edition with doctrines popular in America, especially with the Keynes-Hansen approach. I think these changes will shorten the length of the manuscript as compared with the 1940 text. I know very well that conciseness is one of the main virtues in a book, and I am eager to do my best. But a treatise dealing with the whole concept of economic problems must be more voluminous than a monograph. On May 7, 1948, the Yale University Press acknowledged receipt of parts of the manuscript. Eugene Davidson wrote, The new section is here, and I am glad to see you are close to the goal now. Norman Donaldson has just reminded me of a serious oversight on our part that we were to pay you as each section of the manuscript is received and approved. That clause in the contract completely slipped everyone's attention here, and please let me know how you would like the matter handled. That is, how you would prefer to have the installments reach you from here on. As a possibility, I would suggest that we make a lump payment for the months that have passed, and then continue according to schedule. But we will be pleased to meet your wishes. Lou answered on May 12, 1948. 
Thanks for your letter of May 7th. I fully agree with your suggestion and leave the determination of the amount of the lump sum payment for the months past to your discretion. Nothing can prove more clearly how much the work meant to Lou, how little he cared for money, how completely he forgot about himself than these two letters. By the spring of 1949, the printing of human action was well on its way. Davidson supervised everything. Not the slightest detail was unimportant to him. He wanted a perfect book and a satisfied author. He even sent Lou a proof of the binding of the book for his approval. On May 31, 1949, Norman Donaldson wrote to Lou, Advanced copies of your human action have now reached us, and we have sent one copy to you. Our probable publication date is September 14th. I hope you are pleased with the way the book has turned out. It is a big, handsome volume and looks all of the $10 price that we are placing on it. May I take this occasion to extend to you my personal congratulations on your successful completion of this immensely important piece of work. Lou immediately confirmed receipt of the advanced copy and thanked Donaldson. On June 7, 1949, Donaldson answered, It is a great pleasure to have your note in response to your first copy of Human Action. We are delighted that you are so enthusiastic over the way the book looks. On September 14, 1949, Human Action was published, and the book created a tremendous impression all over the country. Almost a hundred review copies were sent out, which may seem a small number in comparison to the 200 copies or more that publishers are sending out these days. On October 10, 1949, Donaldson wrote Lou, Orders are keeping up splendidly, and we are today ordering a third printing. That was three and a half weeks after publication. For the first time, life looked more hopeful to Lou. For years, he had worked hard. In spite of his career in Europe, his excellent reputation, his respected writings, he had not found the same academic recognition in the United States that he had enjoyed in Europe. His financial position was, to say the least, modest and insecure, but human action was even more of a success than his two previous English books. Yale University Press did its utmost to answer all the inquiries about foreign translations. The book has now been published in Italian, Japanese, Spanish, and Chinese editions. I was told that Lou's most ardent readers and admirers have always been in the Spanish-speaking countries. Apparently, the more subjugated a country is, the deeper the longing for freedom. In the summer of 1983, the French translation by Professor Raoul Audouin was ready for publication and is now in the process of being printed. On January 9, 1950, Mr. Davidson informed Lou, the Book of the Month Club will list human action in the back part of its monthly bulletin. This is, technically, I believe, known as the alternate selection, which may be chosen by the Book of the Month Club subscribers in place of the Book of the Month. This was, of course, very good news. Gradually, the reviews appeared in the newspapers and the magazines. Lou was never offended or hurt by an unfavorable review, if they were based on knowledge and understanding. The more they attack an author, he used to say, the more curious they make the public. The only deadly attack is silence. Following the publication of Human Action, Yale University Press published a new enlarged edition of Socialism, which was first published in Germany in 1922 under the title Gemenwirtschaft. In 1953, Yale printed a new enlarged edition of The Theory of Money and Credit, followed in 1957 by Lou's Theory and History, an Interpretation of Social and Economic Evolution. Next to Human Action, this book meant the most to Lou among his own writings. All these books were translated into foreign languages, which meant a good study income for the Yale Press.
On May 15, 1959, there was a short notice in the New York Times reporting that Norman V. Donaldson, director of the Yale University Press since 1945, will become chairman of its governing board on July 1st. George Parmley Day, the present chairman, will become chairman emeritus. Chester B. Kerr, secretary of the press since 1949, will succeed Mr. Donaldson as director. Eugene Davidson was not mentioned. He left Yale Press soon after to become its chief editor of Modern Age, an intellectually stimulating quarterly magazine. These changes completely altered Lou's relations with the press and brought the beginning of the greatest period of frustration he had ever suffered. I know of only two crises in Lou's life that so emotionally upset him that his physical well-being was affected. The first one came shortly after we were married. Lou received a letter in Geneva dated Vienna, July 29, 1938, which stated, based on paragraph 4, section 1 of the Code for Reorganization for the Austrian Civil Functionaries, dated May 31, 1938, page 607, you are dismissed. This dismissal goes into effect with the day of receipt of this letter. No appeal is allowed against this dismissal. This from his native country, after 27 years of devoted service as legal advisor and financial expert of the Chamber of Commerce in Vienna. But it was not altogether unexpected. Lou had foreseen the actions of the Nazis. He was much younger then and could recover from it. The second crisis came when the second edition of Human Action was in preparation. Human Action had been recognized as one of the great books of all time. After many years of hard work, fighting against odds with tremendous courage, Lou felt firm ground under his feet, and he looked forward with great anticipation to the new edition. But complaints against the press were coming in from all sides. Human action had disappeared from bookstores, the second revised edition was delayed from month to month, and inquiries from readers were not being answered by the press. Even Lou's letters were not answered. He did not get the proofs in time to make the index, nor was he given the date of publication. They did not even send him a complimentary author's copy. In short, they treated the author and his work as they might have treated a young high school boy who timidly had sent him his first literary output. Finally, the long-awaited new edition of Human Action appeared. It was a shock to everyone. Henry Hazlitt, in Managing a Masterpiece, an article in the May 5, 1964 National Review, explained why. The press does not honor Professor Mises in this new edition, and it does not honor itself. The new edition is a typographical disgrace. The 1949 edition was originally priced at $10. The revised edition is offered at $15. Yet qualitatively it is cheaper in every respect. It is full of misprints. On page 322, four lines are omitted. Page 468 is missing altogether. Page 469 is printed twice. On page 563, two paragraphs are transposed. On page 615, eight lines are wrong. The running heads that appeared at the top of each page of the 1949 edition are all gone. In belated reparation, the Yale University Press has printed errata pages, although they are not bound in. But these make wholly inadequate amends for an inexcusable printing job. On page after page, one finds some paragraphs printed in a comparatively light type, and others offered in a blacker, thicker type that can only be described as at least quasi-bold face. The reader will inevitably assume that this marked contrast is intentional and that the author meant to give special emphasis to the passages printed in accidental bold. I started to note merely the pages on which the contrast in type 
between various paragraphs was particularly glaring, and got a list of seventy. I leave it to the Yale Press to explain the technical reasons for the type contrasts. I have said nothing about the uncountable instances in which whole pages of quasi boldface are pound opposite pages of lighter type. This must irritate any reader sensitive to typographical tidiness, but it is at least less likely to mislead him into supposing that changes in emphasis are intentional. What possible human explanation can there be for this typographical botch, which would disgrace a third-rate commercial publisher? Who read galley proofs? Who saw page proofs? Who let this mess pass? I asked Professor Mises what light he could throw on the matter. He was able to supply very little because the publishers had been extraordinarily reticent. It appears that in order to do as cheap a job as possible, the press has resorted to some mixture of photo offset and reset never tried before. When Dr. Mises asked for page proofs, they were denied for mechanical reasons. When he protested, Chester Kerr, director of the press, replied on January 22, 1963. We are entirely willing to take responsibility for seeing that the new edition of Human Action is printed without error. I am confident that you will have no cause to regret not having seen page proofs. When the first copies were sent out to the distributors, the author did not receive one. The press has conceded in a letter of September 30th that the general quality of the work is undeniably below our customary standard. But it apparently does not intend to do anything but go on selling the new edition at $15 the least reparation that could be made to the author and to the readers of Human Action would be to order the press to start on a new edition immediately, instead of waiting till the botched present edition is exhausted, and meanwhile to sell copies of the present edition at a cut price in candid recognition of their defectiveness. A final question. Why, in a press that has shown itself capable of producing first-rate work, did this particular book go wrong? Do the present editors of the Yale University Press, who are not those who originally accepted the book, know that this is the most important work on general economic theory that has appeared in our generation? They know it is commercially profitable. They know it sold six printings and brought in revenues from translation and quotation. But if they had any idea of its true greatness, if they even had any real respect for its author and its readers, if they had any respect for their press's own reputation, would they have permitted such a slovenly addition to go out under its imprint? I was with Lou during all those days of upset. No one else will know what he went through at that time, for he was not a man to show his feelings in public. Outsiders may have considered the misprinting of human action an episode in the life of a great man, accepted and forgotten, but it was not so. It was the only time in his life that he had sleeping problems, though he steadfastly refused to take any pills. He was angry. It was an ice-cold, quiet anger directed against what he felt was an unknown enemy at Yale University Press, menacing his great book, his creative strength, his very existence. He only regained his composure after he signed a new contract with Regnery and saw the active interest that Henry Regnery took in bringing out a new edition of Human Action. And when I noticed that Lou's sleep was sound and regular, as in former years, I knew he got back his philosophical inner balance, but he never forgot this traumatic experience, nor have I. The depth of Lou's feeling is revealed in this letter he sent to a friend in December 1963. You are perfectly right. The typographical makeup of the new revised edition of my book Human Action, as published by the Yale University Press, is a shocking scandal. 
Never before has any decent publisher dared to bring out such a defective product. There is, first of all, the strikingly perceptible difference in the heaviness of the impression between the passages that have been retained unchanged from the first edition and those that have been altered or added. With the former, the print is darker. With the latter, it is lighter. This must necessarily give the reader the erroneous idea that this difference means something, that the author wanted to make some distinction between the content of the lighter and that of the darker paragraphs or lines. The book is full of misprints. One page was entirely omitted. Another was printed twice. Paragraphs were transposed. Others were left out. The text is marred by blurs and other marks that impair its readability, especially as many of them look like periods, accents, or other signs of punctuation. There are no running heads, and there are many other minor defects that disfigure the book. There are two ways open for the explanation of this disgraceful case of botchery. It was either unintentional or intentional. If we were to assume that it was unintentional, we would imply that all the people who cooperated in the production of the volume are clumsy, inept, inefficient, and negligent in the highest degree. Against such an assumption stands the fact that the press published and still publishes books of normal quality. To a professor who complained to the press about the poor appearance of the book and told them that their reputation will suffer, the press answered, September 12th, that its reputation does not depend on this one instance, but on the accumulative flow of high-quality work which comes from us steadily. Thus the press itself comes near to admitting that its failure to produce the new edition of Human Action as a book of normal American shape, was the result of a purposeful design to prejudice both the circulation of the book and the reputation and material interests of the author. The present management of the press regrets, for political reasons, the fact that their predecessors published my books. They are especially angry about the great success of human action. If they had any sense of propriety at all, they would openly tell the author that they do not want any longer to publish his books and that he is free to look for another publisher. When in the course of seeing the book through the various phases of publication, I noticed how the press insidiously delayed from month to month the publication of the new edition of Human Action, and how it muddled the printing presses, I suggested this solution to them. But the press does not want to lose the very lucrative rights to Human Action, while the press, as it told the representative of a distributor who ordered copies of the books, loses money on about 90% of its publications, Human Action sold six printings and brought in revenues from translation and quotation. It was a very profitable job for the press. The press wants to make money on my books and at the same time to punish the author as well as the readers by giving them the most wretched service. Without informing me, the press chose for the publication of the new edition of Human Action a process devised by an incompetent bungler and never tried before. The inadequacy of this procedure delayed the production for many months and finally gave the press pretext to deny me, for mechanical reasons, the right to see the page proofs. When I protested, Mr. Chester Kerr, the director of the press, replied on January 22nd, We are entirely willing to take responsibility for seeing that the new edition of Human Action is printed without error. I am confident that you will have no cause to regret not having seen page proofs. It is obvious that the press withheld from me the page proofs because it wanted to bring out a defective book. And when the book was finally ready and the first copies were sent out to the distributors, the press tried to keep the fact secret from me and did not even send me, the author, a copy. The press cannot help admitting, in a letter to my attorney on September 30th, 
that the general quality of the work is undeniably below our customary standard, but it stubbornly refuses to substitute a new normal quality book for this scandalous botchery. In writing this letter, I am not concerned with the reaction of the Yale University Press. What I do want to do is thank all those who, in reading the new revised edition of Human Action, take no notice of the glaring deficiencies of its printing, and thus thwart the heinous machinations of the simpletons who think that they can refute an author by mangling the outward appearance of his book. The villain in a Perry Mason story is easy to detect. It is always the one whom you suspect least, and whom the author treats with a certain indulgent negligence. But who was the guilty party causing the unbelievably bad printing job at Yale University Press? Whom prepared the second edition of Human Action? Who wanted to harm my husband by preventing, with this unbelievably bad printing, the book from being read? Was Eugene Davidson the only person whose support had brought human action to life? I don't know any other time in my husband's life when he had to consult a lawyer, except in 1938 when he needed legal help to obtain my documents from Vienna. It was claimed that no lawyer ever would win a case against the Yale University Press. If this was the case, why was the press so eager, after all the bad publicity it had, to hush-hush the affair and settle with my husband's lawyers out of court, giving in to almost all his demands. These demands never involved any money, as is clearly seen from the foregoing letter. And why, since the case was so strong and the right so clearly on my husband's side, did the lawyers give in without trying their case before a jury? The mystery is unsolved to this day. The Yale University Press answered all charges with deadly silence. That was their defense. Yale University Press is a faceless organization that is so huge, so powerful, that if attacked, the responsible party can hide unrecognized behind the impenetrable walls of the institution, as in the past warriors might have hidden behind the ramparts of a fortress. But one thing is sure. The ideological differences that may have existed between Ludwig von Mises and the Yale University Press did not hinder the press from taking its cut. All through the years, the press insisted on its contract and its percentage. Every year, when the Yale statement arrived, Lou read it, then gave it to me without a word. But the shrug of his shoulders and his slight gesture of contempt revealed his feelings more clearly than words ever could. Chapter 9. Lou's Famous Seminar Lou's seminar at New York University began in 1948 and ended in 1969. For 21 years, the seminar gathered at the graduate school in Lower Manhattan every Thursday from 7.25 to 9.25 p.m. When Lou entered the room with almost military punctuality at 7.20 p.m., a small flat briefcase under his arm, he always had a friendly smile for everyone and a quick searching glance for me. He liked me to attend the meetings. He would sit down at the center of the long side of the table and take a small sheet from the inner pocket of his jacket. This tiny piece of paper was all he needed for the evening. Then he would start to talk. He presented his ideas clearly in simple words, in contrast to the often difficult terminology used in his books. The composition of his lectures was always the same. He began with a statement and returned with a closing word to exactly the point from whence he had started. His thoughts had completed a perfect circle. On Lou's 89th birthday, Leonard Reed presented him with a plaque to a great teacher you, Mises, are truly a teacher. Two generations of students have studied under you, and countless thousands of others have learned from your books. 
Books and students are enduring monuments of a teacher, and these monuments are yours. This generation of students will pass away, but the ideas set in motion by your writings will be a fountain source for new students in generations to come. Yes, Lou was a great teacher. He had the ability to lift minds of his students, to incite their mental curiosity, to arouse their imaginations to new visions. Frank Dearson, a prominent corporate lawyer in New York City who attended Lou's regular course at New York University from 1946 and regularly came to the seminar from the beginning in 1948 to 1955 and in later years sporadically, told me, The seminar was the most enriching experience of my life. It opened new worlds to me. Keynes once said, At 25, your ideas are fixed. But in Dr. Von Mises' class, men of 40 and 50 abandoned earlier convictions to accept the truth that he taught. Every lecture was a mind-stretching experience. In the first seminar, I remember Dr. Mises had finished his lecture on welfare legislation, attacking the economics of various social policies. The entire class was astonished at his critical attitude. They arranged a special meeting after the lecture and invited the professor to attend. They wanted to teach him the social facts of life. And what happened? Wonder of wonders. After all the arguments had been submitted and Dr. Mises had explained everything anew, the class came away in complete agreement with Dr. Mises and shared a new conception of economic realities and economic freedom. Jack Holman, who for many years was director of Johnson & Johnson and has a Ph.D. in economics and is a licensed professional engineer in the state of New York, felt similarly about Lou. He attended the seminar from 1950 to 1952, and he told me, I have never known a man as erudite as was Dr. von Mises. He was extraordinarily learned in every field of knowledge. In discussing economics, he would bring in examples from history to illustrate the points he was making. I remember only too well some of the sentences he said during his lectures. Some of them I noted down. On September 21, 1950, he said, One of the indispensable prerequisites of a mastery of economics is a perfect knowledge of history, the history of ideas and of civilization, and of social, economic, and political history. To know one field well, one must also know other fields. On December 14, 1950, he said, An ethical standard is judging various modes of conduct from the point of view of a scale of values which derives from divine commandments, or from that which is in the soul of everyone. The realm of ethics is not something which is outside of that of economic action. You cannot deal with ethical problems apart from economic ones, and vice versa. On December 21, 1950, he said, The fundamental contribution of the classical economists, what is good for the individual, is good for society. Yes, Lou was a great teacher, though his English pronunciation was never perfect. I often wondered whether others would be affected by it. I looked around, watching their expressions, but they always listened attentively, their eyes fixed on his face, occasionally making notes. I was the only one whose thoughts were diverted, perhaps because I loved him so much and wanted so badly for him to succeed in whatever he did. He himself was completely absorbed. Sometimes he folded his hands close to his face, his elbows resting on the desk. Sometimes he leaned back in the chair, his hands pressed against the table, his head thrown back, his eyes introspective, seeing nothing. He may have looked at people, but he did not see them. Once in a while he shot a furtive glance back to my place. I felt he saw me, and then back he was in his thoughts, fully concentrated on the lecture. 
During the discussion, he was vigorous in his arguments, but he was always polite and civil. He never offended people, but he found no excuses for socialists. He explained every subject to the point of disarming his opponent, but never, never did he persuade anyone against his will. Occasionally, the discussion became too lively and excited. Then Lou, with a single remark, brought the students back to the subject and released the tension. He always knew how to guide them. His restraint and civility were unparalleled. The students may have differed in their views about a subject, but they were united in their feelings of admiration and respect for Lou. In the last five or six years of the seminar, it was a great relief for him when I brought the car to NYU to take him home. When I was not there and he was brought home by others, he was forced to talk or to discuss further some problems, and he was too polite to tell them how tired he was. With me, there was no need to talk. He could relax. But regularly, he asked me, Did you like the lecture? Were you satisfied? To ask me that question, it touched my heart. I was never as attentive in his seminar as I should have been. I took too much interest in the students who attended. I watched them. I studied their faces. I saw many come and go whose names I did not even know, but others I saw grow and develop, acquiring stature and insight. Lou met every new student, hopeful that one of them might develop into a second Hayek. If he saw a tiny spark, he hoped for a flame. Never did he show any sign of impatience, and he encouraged everyone to speak out and give his opinion. Again and again, he advised them to read and to learn foreign languages. It is a great pity, he often said, that American scholars do not know foreign languages and are unable to read foreign literature. Every economist should study Marx and Engels in the original language. Only if they know their subject from every angle will they be able to discuss it successfully. He pointed to the example of Keynes, who hardly knew any German or French and was therefore unaware of solutions for economic policy, which had already been advanced by French and German authors. One evening at the seminar, Lou cited authorities in French and in German. A student objected. Why are you giving these citations, professor? he asked. I can neither read French nor German. Learn it, was Lou's answer. You are engaged in scholarly activities. Among the students I knew best was Hans Sanholtz, who was born and raised in Germany. He was a pilot in the German Air Force during the Second World War, was shot down and captured, and became a prisoner of war in the United States. During his captivity, he became acquainted with my husband's books. He had already finished the study of law and political science in Germany, but he decided to remain in the United States. In 1949, he started studying economics with my husband at New York University. For years, he was a participant at the seminar, and he wrote his doctoral thesis with Lou. Today, he is head of the economics department at Grove City College. He lectures frequently throughout the country and is known as one of the staunchest defenders of the free market. A new generation of Mises disciples, advocates of the Austrian school, have emerged from Professor Sanholtz's courses at Grove City College. He has written many books. The latest one, Age of Inflation, became a bestseller. His wife, the former Mary Homan, who usually participated in the seminars at the Foundation for Economic Education while she was Leonard Reed's personal secretary, is his close assistant. I always had, and still have, a special interest in this marriage. One day, shortly after Hans and Mary had met, I invited them to our house and told each of them, separately and in private, how much I thought of the other one. It was a very simple way of bringing them together. They married, and in due time their son Robert was born, became my godchild, and is still a favorite of mine. Mary Senholtz later edited On Freedom and Free Enterprise, 
a collection of essays by 19 scholars in honor of my husband on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of his doctorate, February 20th, 1956. The best known of all Lewes American students today may be Professor Murray Rothbard. He came to the seminar in 1949 and became one of the most devoted and able advocates of Lewes teaching. Lew may not have agreed with all of Rothbard's views, but he always considered him to be one of his most gifted students. Those who have read Rothbard's pamphlet, The Essential von Mises, know his deep insight and warm understanding of my husband's work. Today, Murray Rothbard is a professor of economics at the New York Polytechnic Institute in Brooklyn, a prolific writer famous as a scholar and historian in his own right. He and Joey, his wonderful wife, are very good friends of mine. Another man in whom Lou put great hope was Israel Kirzner. In later years, Lou chose Kirzner to be his assistant for the seminar, to help him with student problems and relieve the burden of the office hours. Now Dr. Kirzner is Professor of Economics at New York University, fulfilling and surpassing all of the hopes Lou cherished for him. Lou considered Kirzner's The Economic Point of View an important and valuable work and wrote a foreword to it. Professor Kirzner, who is highly regarded among students, headed the circle of scholars who, since my husband's death, succeeded in proving the great importance of the Austrian school. Thanks to his never-ceasing effort, this movement is expanding more and more. I am sure my husband would have been delighted about Professor Kurtzner's latest important work, Perception, Opportunity, and Profit, published by the University of Chicago Press. Louis Spadaro, a quiet, positive, earnest scholar, attended Lou's seminar for many years and wrote his doctoral thesis with Lou. He is now Dean of the Graduate School of Business Administration at Fordham University and President Emeritus of the Institute for Humane Studies. Most of the seminar students became, over the years, good friends of ours. Mr. Stanton Evans attended Lou's regular course at New York University and was a member of the seminar for one year. He once said about my husband, the first thing Professor von Mises tried to teach us in his seminar was the science of epistemology, the science of how we know things. It is not an easy topic, for the most difficult topic for the human mind to grasp is the extent of its own ignorance. Stanton Evans became an editor and journalist and writes a syndicated column for the Los Angeles Times Syndicate. He wrote various books such as Revolt on the Campus and The Future of Conservatism. Since 1980, he has been president of Consumers Research, Inc. and publisher of Consumers Research Magazine. Percy Greaves first came to the seminar in 1950 and attended almost all the meetings until Lou stopped teaching. My husband thought very highly of Percy's knowledge and understanding of economic theory. It is a great pity, he often told me, that Percy did not make his Ph.D. Lou's work was like scripture to Percy. He was the chairman of the dinner meetings that the students arranged from time to time with the financial help of Isidore Hotz, another faithful and devoted participant of the seminar. Greaves and his future wife, Bettina Bien, later became friends of ours and spent their honeymoon with us in Vermont. Ronald S. Hertz, now a prominent certified public accountant with a large firm on Park Avenue, attended Lou's seminar for many years beginning in 1949. No matter how verbose, inane, inept, or belligerent the question or the questioner, Ronald Hertz wrote me once, he was heard through and then received a patient, meticulous response. It must have been the respect which Professor Mises showed to students, which kept even those who began with great antagonism coming back. There was a whole group of high school students whom Lou allowed to attend his seminar. 
They were bright young boys, eager to learn and deeply interested in today's problems. They had discovered that Lou was their man of the future, and not a reactionary, as friendly economists would call him before they shelved his uncomfortable words of truth. One of the youngest members of this group was George Reisman. One evening in the autumn of 1953, he rang the doorbell at our apartment. I opened the door and saw a young, blonde, shy boy of about 15 years who asked to see Dr. Von Mises. I asked why, and he told me that he was in high school, had read all of Lou's books he could get a hold of, and was wondering whether the professor would allow him to attend his course and the seminar. My husband talked to him, and helpful as always, admitted him. From then on, George Reisman came regularly for years. He wrote his doctoral dissertation with Lou, and often came to the house to converse with him. Reisman was hard-working, thorough, and inquisitive. In later years, he translated one of Lou's books from the German. It was published in 1960 by Van Nostrand under the title Epistemological Problems of Economics. After many years as a professor of economics at St. John's University in Brooklyn, Reisman is teaching now in Los Angeles at Pepperdine University. In 1979, he published a book, The Government Against the Economy. It is widely discussed and received especially good reviews. George became a credit to his teacher. Ralph Rako was another one of the high school students whom Lou watched with great expectations. Rako later went to Chicago to continue his studies and is now teaching history at the State University of New York at Buffalo. He wrote in The Alternative, February 1975, To know the great Mises tends to create in one's mind lifelong standards of what an ideal intellectual should be. These are standards to which other scholars whom one encounters will almost never be equal, and judged by which the ordinary run of university professors at Chicago, Princeton, or Harvard is simply a joke, but it would be unfair to judge them by such a measure. Here we are talking about two entirely different sorts of human beings. Another one of these young men whom Lou admitted to the seminar was Lawrence Moss, who at that time was a junior at Queens College. Moss had heard Lou speak when Lou sat on the platform with Senator Barry Goldwater. He was so impressed by Lou's ideas that he tried his very best to meet Lou and get into the seminar. Rothbard helped him and arranged it for him. From then on, Moss was a regular in the seminar. Having been indoctrinated in his college with rather liberal ideas, Moss and a friend who also joined the seminar started to ask Lou many questions, which Lou answered with never-ending patience. One of the older students was annoyed at the steady questioning of the newcomers. The older student wanted only to listen to the professor. He was not interested in the mental gymnastics of these youngsters. So he called the dean of students at Queens College and reported these two young boys, saying that they were on the grounds of New York University without permission of Queens College, without paying admission fees and disturbing other students. The dean called the two students and asked for an explanation. They told their story and asked the dean to call Dr. Mises to hear from him whether they had behaved improperly. But the dean believed them and said, if you are reported a second time, I will make a note on your record. It did not happen again. Lou's friend Henry Hazlitt often came to the seminar. He always sat next to my husband and participated in the general discussion. Lou was especially pleased with his presence. Once in the academic year 1957-1958, Ayn Rand, the famous author of Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, also attended. She was one of the strongest believers in my husband's theories and often spoke and wrote about him in her various lectures and publications. If I remember correctly, Alice Widener also attended the seminar once. 
For many years, she has published USA, a bi-monthly periodical. She reads tremendously, travels frequently, speaks various languages, and knows many important people in the political arena. My husband had a high opinion of her and called her one of the best-informed reporters of the United States. She is a member of the Mont Pelerin Society, and it was during one of their meetings that I met her for the first time. The seminar was frequented by people of various nationalities and professions. For five years, two Jesuit professors attended, Father William McGinnis, a professor of economics and management at Weston College, and Father Michael Mansfield, a former economics professor at Hong Kong University. I remember them especially well, for Lou always took a special delight in leading these and other clergymen into philosophical and theological questions with respect to social and economic problems. And I remember clearly also a young Catholic priest, now Reverend Monsignor F. Davis, who in 1979 in a small book, This Priest is Thankful, which is touching through its honesty, spoke about the great influence that Lou exerted on his life. I also remember Captain Richard L. Fruin, a medical doctor from the Naval Station at Lakehurst, New Jersey. He was working with the Air Force on problems specific to flying. He traveled five or six hours every Thursday to attend Lou's seminar, even in winter when the roads were icy and dangerous. He never missed a meeting. Now retired, he lives in California. A good friend of mine is Phoebe Tan, a very gifted, beautiful young Philippine woman, who wrote her doctoral dissertation with my husband, and later married Edward Facey, another student of Lou's whom she met at the seminar. Both have been teaching for years at Hillsdale College in Michigan. Another participant in the seminar was William Peterson, who for some time was professor of economics at NYU and is now teaching at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. In the course of years, he became more and more convinced of the truth and importance of my husband's ideas. He writes frequently for the best magazines, using quotations from Lou's books to emphasize his own ideas. Mary, his talented, elegant wife, also visited the seminar frequently. She became well-known through her book reviews in the Wall Street Journal and is very successful in her work in General Motors, which she took up after they moved to Washington, D.C. In this connection, I would like to tell a little story that happened in June 1955. The Petersons and their children, then perhaps four and five years old, attended a seminar arranged by the Foundation for Economic Education and conducted by Lou at Buck Hill Falls Inn in the Poconos. My husband was the main speaker. The seminar was held in a special building on the beautiful grounds of the hotel. The conference room was large, with a long oval table. I took my place as usual somewhere in the back. The first day of the meeting, Lou spoke about the gold standard. Mary also sat in the back with her two children. According to the lecture notes of Bettina Biangreves, my husband said during his speech, there will be, one day, a period of history in which the government will leave the butter price as it is, and people will be in a position to eat butter at the lowest possible price. This little girl, sitting so quietly in the back of the room, who is listening without too much interest to what we are saying, will perhaps live in a world where the butter price will be left to the free market. But this will certainly not happen if we don't study these problems, and if we don't tell the result of our thinking about these problems to the people. This clearly shows that Lou had noticed the children. The next day, Mary sat down at the table between her two children, directly opposite Lou. I was flabbergasted. I could not imagine these small children staying quiet for two hours. I was afraid they would disturb my husband. But Mary knew what she was doing. She had given them books and drawings, and the children behaved as if they were glued to their chairs, 
turning the pages of their books, glancing at pictures, drawing, never looking up. Only toward the end of the lecture did they get restless, fidgeting about on their chairs, pulling at their mother's sleeves, whispering into her ears. Lou had hardly spoken the last word when Mary jumped up and rushed out of the room, holding a child at each hand, looking neither right nor left. Today, one of these children, Mark Peterson, whom I remember so well through this amusing incident and through later meetings, is working for his Ph.D. at the University of Virginia and is an enthusiastic defender of the free market and of freedom for the individual. The little girl, now a beautiful young lady, studies law at Stanford University in California. I wrote about our friend George Kutter in my acknowledgments at the beginning of this book. He and his wife, Elo, were very close to us. He was a journalist and economist who started attending Lou's seminar in 1949. Active, enthusiastic, always full of new ideas, he had one feeling, one conviction that never changed after he started studying Lou's ideas. My husband was to him, and ought to be to all the world, he said, the light burning in the darkness. Then there was Bettina Bien, now Bettina Bien Greaves. She first came to the seminar in 1951 and attended it to the last session, not missing a single meeting. With the passing of years, she became a household word with Lou and me. If there was any information Lou needed, any refreshing of his memory, he would say, call Bettina, and surely enough she had the answer. After four or five years in the seminar, Bettina took her seat next to my husband, taking notes in shorthand, and no one would have dared to contest for that seat. I spoke first to her in 1952 during a seminar in California. At that time she was still rather quiet, hardly asking any questions, but later working with tremendous zeal, studying Lou's books from beginning to end, reading them again and again, her inner security grew in relation to her knowledge. She wrote an excellent bibliography for my husband's work, published by the Foundation of Economic Education, and for his 90th birthday she catalogued, with my permission and without Lou's prior knowledge, his whole library of about 6,000 volumes, to Lou's greatest surprise and delight. The location of the seminar changed three times in 21 years. Lou and I loved the second location best. It was Gallatin House, the former British embassy in Washington Square, a beautiful brownstone building. Two stone lions at the entrance of the tiny garden bore witness to the past. Looking out the windows of this office overlooking Washington Square, Lou once said that this might have been the view that inspired Henry James for his great novels. We all loved this place in spite of the parking problems we all had. When the seminar was held in the old NYU building where it had started, so many students attended that the room was often overcrowded, and not a single chair could be added. Some of the students may have come out of curiosity to hear the famous professor, but most of them had a goal and were studying hard. In later years, when the seminar was held in the new NYU building, the number of students was smaller, but what they lacked in numbers they made up in enthusiasm. Lou never missed a single seminar. His various lectures and out-of-town obligations were arranged in such a way that they never conflicted with the seminar. Once in December 1961, Lou had to go to the Presbyterian Hospital for a hernia operation. He checked in two days before on a Sunday morning. They did the necessary tests, and with permission of the surgeon, Dr. David Habith, I picked him up Monday evening and took him to NYU, where he gave his course. I then took him back to the hospital, where he was operated on the next morning. Lou was a great defender of women and never doubted their mental capacities or potentials. His seminar in Vienna was well known for the many highly gifted women who attended, and who later became leading figures in economics and education. 
I would not be astonished if one day women's lib would discover Lou, once the activists have overcome their anxiety problems concerning the equality of sex and consider politics and economics their most important tasks. If they do, they may well declare my husband one of their heroes. Lou explained in Socialism, All mankind would suffer if woman should fail to develop her ego and be unable to unite with man as equal, freeborn companions and comrades. To preserve the freedom of inner life for the woman is the real problem of women. It is part of the cultural problem of humanity. In closing this chapter, I want to tell a little episode that is absolutely true, though I cannot give the names of the persons concerned. Some years ago, a graduate student at NYU was revising his program of studies and wanted to include Lou's seminar in his official curriculum. His faculty advisor told him that he could take the seminar course on his own, but not as a part of his official program. Mises' theory, said the professor, is a religion, not economics. Eight years later, that same professor, reminiscing over the great social experiments of the last generation, was greatly disturbed at the fact that the experiments were always a dismal and known failure. I have always tended to be liberal over the years, and I favored all these new programs, he said, but one by one, I have seen them all fail and have to be discarded. You know, perhaps Mises was right after all. Chapter 10. His Work and Influence When friends talked about my husband, they spoke of him as being polite, distinguished, and gentle. The first two qualities were so obvious they needed no discussion, but after the word gentle, I would like to put a question mark. He was gentle with me because he loved me, but actually he was not gentle. He had a will of iron and a mind like a steel blade. He could be unbelievably stubborn, but people would not detect that in daily life, for he had excellent manners. He was brought up at a time when Austria was an empire, and good manners and self-discipline were not only a prerequisite of the court, but a must for a member of every cultured family. One does not lose good habits in later years. On the contrary, not only does age show one's true character more distinctly, but lifelong habits become more pronounced. Lou would never sit down with me at mealtime, even on the hottest day, without wearing his jacket. I tried to convince him that he would be more comfortable in shirt sleeves, but he would not listen. One evening, however, it was unbearably hot, one of those humid 90-degree days we have so often during the summer in New York City, and we had no air conditioning at that time. I prepared dinner, set the table, put on my most beautiful nightgown, and called him to dinner. He came, as usual, with his jacket on. I felt hot just looking at him, and we started to eat. He did not notice anything until I got up to change the plates. "'What are you wearing there?' he asked. I laughed and said, "'Don't you feel how hot it is?' He understood and laughed so hard he had to wipe his eyes. Then he kissed me, took his jacket off, and for once I had won. But it was not a real victory, for to his last days he would never take his jacket off when he was with other people. To make him change a decision he had reached was even more difficult. He hated the noise of air conditioners. In those days they were not as quiet as they are now, and he simply refused to have one installed in his studio. Nothing I said would change his mind. I finally had to ask the help of his doctor to convince him that his health would suffer from the heat in our apartment, which, he himself admitted, was tropically hot in summer and arctic cold in winter. Once I spoke to Franz Machlup about his stubbornness, and he answered, With a man like Ludwig von Mises, you don't call it stubbornness, you call it character. 
When the doctor advised Lou to give up smoking, I was sorry. I liked to see him with a cigarette, for then he was relaxed and in a good mood. He loved smoking, though it was not a passion. Nevertheless, it was not easy for him to give up, especially while he worked. Sometimes when I entered his studio, I could tell he had been smoking. I understood and would not have said a word, but he felt almost ashamed that the longing for a cigarette could overpower him and break his will. Lou was so little interested in material things that it was difficult for me to give him a present. But one day I hit it. I gave him a subscription to the Metropolitan Opera. In the late 1940s, it was very difficult to get a good seat, and only with the help of friends who had connections could I get an orchestra seat in the third row. This was still in the old opera house on Broadway. I did not have enough money to buy two tickets, and for more than ten years, my poor husband, with something of a heavy heart, had to go alone until one day he succeeded in getting a second seat, and we had the same good seats in the new Met at the Lincoln Center until he died. The opera, our drives to the country, and our long walks were the only diversion and relaxation Lou took from the enormous amount of work he was doing. Other people in their sixties start to take life easier, slow down. With him, it was just the opposite, and the simple explanation was that he loved his work. It was a great satisfaction to him when the idea of a society for the free market and individual liberty, which he so often had discussed with Rupke and Hayek, came into being. As a memorandum of the society later explained, the Montpelerin Society was organized in 1947 at an informal meeting of a group of European and American scholars. Who had become seriously alarmed about imminent threats to the preservation of a free society? The original group consisted of about forty economists, historians, philosophers, and journalists. Invited at the suggestion of F. A. Hayek and W. Rupke by a group of men in Switzerland who shared concern about these problems, the participation of sixteen Americans was made possible by a donation of a similar American group. After ten days' discussion of the most burning topics. At a place near Vevey called Montpellerin, the group decided to constitute itself into a permanent association for the study of these problems, and to add gradually to its numbers by election of other persons holding the same basic beliefs. My husband was one of the founding fathers of the society. He attended the first meetings without me, but in later years I usually went with him. The meetings were held in the beginning of September, so we combined them with our annual vacation and spent the summer in Europe. I loved the Montpellerin meetings. They were not only intellectually and spiritually stimulating, but were also enjoyable social affairs. Held in a different country each year, they were beautifully arranged for many years by our good friend Dr. Albert Hunold, the society's first secretary. Later, Ralph Harris, now Lord Ralph H. Harris of Highcross, took over, and until recently, he was the indefatigable, always good-humored, and diplomatic successor for this difficult task. At present, he devotes his time partially to his political activities in the House of Lords, and in part to the further development of the IEA Institute of Economic Affairs in London, and is now president of the Montpellerin Society. Going through the Montpellerin reports, I have discovered that Lou delivered only four papers to the society: one at Blumenthal, Holland, in 1950; one in Berlin in 1956; the third in Princeton in 1958. And the last at Turin, Italy, in 1961. This does not mean that he was not active during other meetings. He participated in all discussions without any notes. One of his frequent quotes was from Luther: "Eine Rede soll keine Schreibe sein." A speech is not an essay. These meetings were rather strenuous for Lou. 
Everyone wanted a discussion with him, or at least to share his company during a meal. Few of the members attended the conferences and reading of the papers as conscientiously as did my husband. He was in the conference room all day long, but whenever a discussion or a speech bored him, he took out one of the little scraps of paper he used to carry with him and started to write. People who watched him must have thought he took notes, but he wrote nothing but irregular rows of figures, and once in a while he added them up. They surely had no meaning at all, and I considered them a sort of doodling, but I never asked him about it. The Mont Pelerin meetings were important to Lou. He met old friends, made new ones, and from all over the world streams of thought flowed in, unheard and undiscussed before. Friends like Jacques Ruff, Louis Baudin, Ludwig Erhard, Hayek, Machlup, Helmut Schuck, Herberler, Roquepiquet, Gaston Le Duc, W. H. Hutt, and Louis Rogier met and had the opportunity for long debates, and all of these famous scholars were united in their dedication to human freedom. Once in a while, however, someone, in my husband's opinion, must have taken a crossroad or made a wrong turn. I remember a Montpellerin meeting that took place in Stresa. I sat next to Lou in the conference room listening to Maklup read a paper. Suddenly I noticed Lou moving. I looked at him and saw that he was very excited. He seemed shocked by something Maklup was saying. It was near the end of the speech. When we got up and went out, Maklup joined us, saying some pleasant conventional words to me, putting his arm around my shoulder. When Lou saw this, he pulled me away from Maklup. I don't want you to talk to him, he said. I don't want you ever to talk to him again. He was so excited that I became frightened, gave Maklup a sign, and stayed behind with Lou. We went to our room, and I saw that Lou was really unhappy about Maklup. He was in my seminar in Vienna, Lou said. He understands everything. He knows more than most of them, and he knows exactly what he is doing. As a matter of fact, I did not know what Maklup had said that hurt my husband so much, and I still do not know. Maklup may remember, and so may other scholars who attended this meeting. It was a hard task for me to make Lou forget and agree to see Maklup again. Maklup may have become an intellectual apostate, but he never changed his feelings of personal devotion to his beloved teacher. Two years later, when he and his wife Mitzi came up one day for tea, Lou really had forgiven and forgotten, and there was the same friendly atmosphere that had existed in former years. More amusing may be the little story Dr. Albert Hahn told me at one of the Mont Pelerin meetings. The other day, said Hahn, I was asked, what really is the difference between Haberler and Mises? They both come from Austria, from the same university, from the same school of thought. Hahn said that he answered, Haberler says, Tout comprendre, c'est tout pardonner. To understand everything means to pardon everything. Mises says, Tout comprendre, c'est rien pardonner. To understand everything means to pardon nothing. Then Han added, And of some economists you might say, Rien comprendre, c'est rien pardonner. You can't pardon something if you don't understand anything. At a 1953 Mont Pelerin meeting in Silesburg, Switzerland, the wife of J. Howard Pugh asked me one morning to do some shopping with her, which I did. In the course of the conversation, she told me, You know, Margaret, I ought to be very angry with your husband, but of course I am not. I asked, What is the matter, Mrs. Pugh? What has happened? She replied, It was in 1949. I wanted so much to take a cruise with my husband, and finally he agreed. For months I had been looking forward to this cruise, for I knew I would have him all to myself for two weeks. And what happened? On the night of the departure, he went out and bought human action. We boarded the ship, he started reading, and that was the last I got to see of him.
He never stopped reading until we came back to New York. That was my cruise. Every Mont Pelerin meeting brought new and interesting experiences. One day during the meeting and tour in Italy, we were invited by Italy's president, Luigi Iannaudi, who was a colleague and good friend of Lou's, to visit his summer house. The first thing for my husband, as usual, was to have a look at the library, and when he noticed all the familiar names of the famous economists, he said, What a rare occasion to see all economists together in one corner. The meeting in Turin had been arranged by Professor Bruno Leone, who at that time was secretary of the Montpelerin Society. A gifted scholar and professor of law, Leone headed the Department of Political Science at the University of Pavia and shared Lou's views on politics, the free market, and human liberty. My husband felt it deeply as a great tragedy when Bruno Leone was brutally murdered in November 1967. After 1965, Lou knew it would be too strenuous for him to attend further Mont Pelerin meetings. He was especially sorry to miss the meeting in Japan, for in the early 30s he was offered a chair at one of the most important universities in Japan, and he then had promised me never to go to Japan without me. Now we could not go, even together. But there was an even more important reason for him not to attend further conferences of the Mont Pelerin Society. He believed that the Society's policy on admission of new members was not consistent with its original statement of principles. Nevertheless, the relationships with individual members of the society remained as friendly as ever. Whoever came through New York never failed to visit Lou. Hayek, Hunold, Hout, the Ropkeys, Ruth, Arthur, and Barbara Shenfield. They often continued their discussions in our home. Rebecca West and her husband Henry Maxwell Andrews also came to call on us. I did not know that that time that her son, the writer Anthony West, called H.G. Wells his father, I knew only that it was taboo to talk of Wells in Rebecca's presence. I had read almost everything she had written, and I thought her report about the war trials in Nuremberg was one of the finest pieces of journalism I knew. I admired her greatly. She had indescribable charm and was a great lady. Another reason I liked her so much, I confess it frankly, was her outspoken and genuine admiration for my husband. Of all the Mont Pelerin members, we most frequently saw the late Frederick Neimeyer, who was an enthusiastic and dynamic follower of my husband's ideas. Fred Neimeyer first wrote Lou in 1946, when Fred was still a business counselor to many large firms and had to travel a great deal. Until his death in 1981, he lived in Chicago. Reading Lou's books changed his life. On January 12, 1951, he wrote to Lou, As you know, I have resolved to have a fling in the publishing field, and I am interested in trying it out on Bon Bavarque. If I have any luck at all, I shall be interested in expanding the endeavor in order to provide people in this country with the whole framework of ideas with which you and associates of the same school work. He started his new enterprise by promoting a speech my husband gave at the University Club in New York on April 18, 1950. Middle-of-the-road policy leads socialism. This speech was published in the Financial and Commercial Chronicle on May 4, 1950, under a title Lou did not approve of. Neimeyer sent out hundreds of letters along with the pamphlet of the lecture text and the, the original title to awaken the public to the danger of interventionism. Neimeyer's first great enterprise, however, an enterprise that led to the founding of the Libertarian Press in South Holland, Illinois, was publication of a translation of Bambavark's Capital and Interest, for which my husband had recommended Hans Senholtz and George Hunke as the ideal translators. 
the correspondence between Lou and Fred Niemeyer was frequent, detailed, and extensive. Niemeyer, who in the 50s came regularly to New York once a month, never failed to take us out for dinner so he could talk quietly and at length with Lou. Being the gentleman he is, he had to take us home to our door by taxi and convince himself with his own eyes that we were safely indoors. While my husband was in the hospital in September 1973, Fred Niemeyer wrote me a few kind words almost daily to help me keep up my courage. He, just like Lou, could never talk about his feelings. Our financial situation improved in 1948. From the moment the Volcker Fund, through the intervention of Leonard Reed and Larry Fertig, agreed with New York University to underwrite Lou's seminar. H.W. Lunhau, president of the Volcker Fund, and the two brothers Cornuya, who worked with Lunhau for years, took a great interest in Lou's ideas and teachings. Besides providing the funds for the New York University seminar, the fund arranged other seminars for Lou. The 1952 seminar in California, the June 1954 seminar on economics and freedom sponsored by Wabash University, Indiana, and a 1956 seminar at Chapel Hill, North Carolina, were made possible by the fund's contributions. The Volcker Fund also helped Lou to get a book by Luis Boudin translated. Professor Boudin had spent his childhood in Peru, where his father was a French diplomat. My husband considered Boudin's book on the Inca Socialist Society to be very valuable, and he spent a great deal of time and effort to get it published, again with the help of the Volcker Fund. Lou also wrote the foreword for the book. Nevertheless, it took five years until Van Nostrand published the English translation under the title A Socialist Empire, The Incas of Peru. The Volcker Fund went out of existence in 1964. With the help of other foundations, Larry Fertig, who since 1952 had been on the board of the New York University, kept Lou's seminar going until 1969. I am afraid I have skipped a few years and must now return to the year 1949. September 14th of that year must have been the equivalent of V-Day in Lou's life. This was the day that Human Action was published. Although we were in the Berkshires and spent the day as usual, hiking and sightseeing, we both felt it was an important milestone. All through the years, from the day Human Action came out, Lou had the book always near him. Almost daily he took it up, read a few words here, a passage there. Had he done so before a speech or before his lectures, I certainly would have understood. But with his wonderful memory, Lou must have remembered every word he wrote. I never found an explanation. Why didn't you ask him, one might say? I could not. Everyone has in his heart and in his mind a certain guarded territory that should stay untouched and sacrosanct, even in a marriage partner. A question at the wrong time may mean trespassing and should be avoided. Nevertheless, for the twenty-five years I tried to find the reason for Lou's constant re-reading of his own book. It was not vanity or pride. He was too humble for that. And never would he read his book in the presence of other people. With me it was different. I was as much a part of him as were his eyes, his mouth, his hands. In January 1950, Professor Hans Kelsen was in New York and became ill. He called us and we went to see him in the Roosevelt Hotel. In the course of the conversation, he said to Lou, You know, Mises, one thing bothers me already today. What's that? asked Lou. That after your death the Austrians will define you in all biographies as one of theirs. In 1950, Lou and I traveled to Peru on the invitation of Pedro Beltran. This was a lecture tour sponsored by the Banco Central de Reserva, of which Pedro was chairman of the board. 
Pedro Beltran, who opposed the government's policy of interfering with the freedom of elections due later that year, realized his activities might lead to his having to resign from the bank. So he delayed writing to Lou, and we had no idea whether we could make the trip or not. Finally, on March 16, 1950, Pedro was able to write to us confirming the invitation for March 31st. Lou lectured on Plans for Economic Unification at the Universidad Nacional Mayor de San Marcos de Lima. These two weeks in Peru were very exciting, for Pedro Beltran was forced to resign April 8, 1950, as president of the Banco de Reserva. He was a wonderful host, but it was also a very strenuous time for my husband. Besides his regular lectures, he had to attend many official luncheons, meet many new people, answer many questions, and give frequent interviews to the press. On top of that, we were shown everything that was worthwhile seeing in Lima and its surroundings. At the end of the trip, we were both exhausted and glad to get back to New York. Nevertheless, two days after our return, Lou made a speech at the University Club, the economics of middle-of-the-road policy. Many of the previous and following summers we spent in Seefeld, Austria, which is very near Innsbruck. We stayed in a charming hotel built right after the war with the help of the Marshall Plan. Every room had a porch where breakfast was served in the morning with the view of the Austrian Alps. Although we took many excursions, we spent a great deal of time on our private balcony. There were many beautiful walks. Often we went with the chairlift up 300 meters to the Geschwankodl, a mountain with a restaurant and a sun terrace. Usually we walked back. Some days we went up to the Wildmusalm, 1,300 meters high. On the wide green meadows we saw nothing but cows, grazing and chewing incessantly, watched over by a very young, beautiful girl who was friendly and talkative. She said she never felt lonely, but I could not believe it. After all, one cannot converse with a cow. In later years, Seefeld became so crowded and overrun by tourists that we did not like it any more. Traffic became heavy, and it was dangerous to cross the streets. One day my husband advised me, cross the street only when you can either follow a woman with a pram or be behind a priest. In both cases, nothing will ever happen to you. In 1953, after a few weeks in Seefeld, we left Innsbruck for Rome by train. The conductor told us that at 9 o'clock p.m. we would be in Verona, remaining there for an hour and 15 minutes. That gives us time, said Lou, to go into town and see where Romeo and Juliet lived. I was amazed at this. I never would have dared to do it. I would have been too much afraid to miss the train. When we arrived in Verona, the conductor locked our compartment, and, as usual, we took a bus that took us to the center of town. We not only saw the House of the Capulets, but also the Piazza Bra, main center, and the famous amphitheater. All the coffee houses were crowded, people sitting in the streets sipping their white vermouth or drinking a demitasse of strong, sweet black coffee. Crowds came out of a movie house. The streets got more and more jammed. The screaming and all the loud voices made me nervous. Lou flagged a taxi, and we made it in time for our train and our friendly conductor. We traveled all night, and the next morning we arrived in Rome, blanketed by a heavy fog. We stayed in the Hotel de Via, one minute away from the Piazza Trinita di Monti, with its lovely church and the beautiful broad staircase that leads to the Fontana della Baracchia on the Piazza di Spagna. Wherever we looked, there were women selling flowers. Lou was a wonderful guide. He had been in Rome before, and he showed and explained everything to me. We went to the Pantheon. We saw the tombs of King Humberto, King Emanuelo II, and Raphael. For lunch on August 24th, we were both invited by Luigi Iannati, the Italian president. It was informal and intimate, and both the president and Lou spoke mostly about politics and about the past. 
In the evening we had dinner at Carlo's, an elegant place frequented by many well-dressed people. To my great amusement, I discovered a bidet in the ladies' room. My husband laughed about my discovery. He said that it brought to mind a story a friend once told him about an American businessman traveling to Argentina with his secretary. The secretary had a bidet in her bathroom, and she asked her boss, Is this to wash babies in? The boss replied, On the contrary, it is to wash them out. The next day we made an excursion to the Castel Gandolfo, the Pope's summer residence, and we passed the Anzio beachhead. Until then I never realized how near it is to Rome. In the evening we had dinner at Alfredo's, a must at that time for every visitor to Rome. Alfredo's specialty was noodles and macaroni. The owner himself prepared them, mixing them, whipped and beat them with a golden spoon and a golden fork, and only after this imposing ritual was the waiter allowed to give everyone his portion. After this amusing ceremonious dinner, we walked back to the hotel, over the Piazza Augustus, in the beautiful moonlight shining on the tomb of Augustus. We followed the Corso to the Piazza del Popolo, and back to the Piazza di Spagna, where we climbed 132 steps to the little church near our hotel. On August 27th it was raining so hard that we could not get out of the hotel. Part of the wall of the Vatican had tumbled, the lights and telephones were out of service, the post office was flooded. In the afternoon, when we could go out, the shops in the streets and the windows in the houses were all lit by candles, adding to the somewhat small-town impression we got walking through Rome's narrow streets. One day we visited the American Library, at that time, Mrs. Claire Booth Luce was the American ambassador to Italy. Lou was shocked. Not a single book by a modern conservative or libertarian author was on the shelves. We stayed in Rome two weeks, and it would have been one of the happiest and most beautiful trips we ever made if my husband had been feeling better. He had stomach trouble all the time, and this frightened me so much that I could neither eat nor sleep. Only a year later, on a lecture trip, was I to learn what was wrong with him. Lou was constantly working, but he never felt disturbed when Gitta, who at the time was still living in New York, came to see us with Chris, her little son. Chris and Lou had a very close relationship. The little boy used to march right into my husband's study, and the best toy he knew was Lou's library ladder, which he climbed up and down perhaps twenty times in a row, Lou closely observing him, catching him in his open arms, both enjoying themselves enormously. Later Lou might take a book with pictures of foreign cities, and explained them to Chris until I came in to take him out, for I knew Lou needed his time. Once in a while, however, he took time off from his work to go with Chris to the Metropolitan Museum, where he showed him the armor and other collections interesting to a little boy. A few years later we were visiting London. At the time, Chris was a boarding student at King's School in Canterbury. The day before school vacation started, parents were invited to attend a student performance of Macbeth. Don and Gitta decided that we would all drive out to Canterbury so we could see the show and visit the beautiful cathedral. Chris was overjoyed when we arrived, and we asked him what part he played in Macbeth. Proudly, he answered, I am a knight. Lou and I wondered whether we would recognize that knight among all the other fighters, but we did discover him. A huge beard was plastered on his rosy cheeks, heavy high boots covered his legs, and in his hands he held something like a weapon. It was not only fun to see him, it was interesting to observe the intelligent way the English schoolmaster had produced his Shakespeare with these young actors, and it was really enjoyable to hear their excellent pronunciation. We saw Chris afterwards, still in boots and beard, and we arranged for him to drive home with us the next morning. 
When we met him at the planned time, he was still in his high boots. He could not get them off, so he had to sleep with them and wait for his father to help him. In later years, I often wondered why Lou did not talk about serious problems with Chris. I once asked him, and he said, I am not going to influence him. As soon as he is ready, he will start asking questions. In 1954, Wabash College, with the help of the Volcker Fund, arranged the Conference on Economics and Freedom. We made the 870-mile trip to French Lick, Indiana, by car, and on June 15th, Lou gave his first lecture. He shared the platform with Professor Friedrich August Lutz of Zurich and Professor George William Keaton of London University. His subject was the market and the role of saving. I remember this summer so well because the second day after our arrival in Indiana, my husband got seriously ill. I had to call the doctor at night. He had to give Lou morphine to ease the pain. But the following day, Lou continued his lecture, and again he had a very serious attack, caused, as we knew then, by the gallbladder. Fred Neimeyer, who had heard of Lou's illness, flew in from Chicago, ready to help if necessary. Every day, Lou delivered his lecture in spite of pain and medication, and he had to go to bed immediately afterward. It was a terrible ordeal for him, and the drive back to New York was also an ordeal for me. Back in New York, it took time and many medical consultations before Lou was admitted to the Harkness Pavilion to be operated on. His surgeon, Dr. David Habith, proved to be not only a first-class surgeon, but also a good psychologist and a warm-feeling human being. Nowadays, people talk so much about the changed relationship between physicians and patients, with doctors coming more and more under attack. It is not my task to defend them, but I have to say that Dr. Habif earned my greatest respect and admiration, which was shared by Lou after he recovered. Lou never was a good patient. A hospital met confinement, and his spirit would not take it. The third day after his operation, Dr. Habif noticed that Lou rested quietly only when I was with him, so the doctor dismissed the private nurses and ordered the head nurse to show me everything I could do for Lou. The doctor himself came every morning before he started operating, and he paid Lou another visit at night before leaving the hospital. I remember one evening, it was very hot and humid, and Lou was perspiring profusely, when Dr. Habif came in. He examined him, and without saying a word, he went to the drawer, took out a clean gown, and changed Lou, never calling for a nurse. Lou recovered very slowly. He had been in the hospital three weeks when Dr. Habif told me, I want you to take your husband home tomorrow. Doctor, I said, how can I? He is still draining. Never mind, the doctor answered. You do what is needed. You'll keep him home for a week, and whether he wants to get out of bed or not, you pack everything. Have the car at the door and take him to the Poconos. You told me you have rented a house there for the summer. I give you my word, in three days he will be all right. I did what the doctor advised, and it worked like a miracle. Lou started walking the second day in the country, and after a week he was completely well, and felt better than he had in years. The months following his illness, my husband worked constantly. He wrote articles for The Free Man and for Dr. Howard E. Kirshner's Christian Economics. Kirshner never could get enough of these contributions. Besides these articles, he wrote several German articles for his friend, Dr. Volkmar Mutisius, in Frankfurt, whose monthly magazine, Freiheitliche Wirtschaftspolitik, Lou thought to be an excellent contribution to the freedom of thought. In 1961, Lou praised Dr. Mathesius in Foreign Spokesman for Freedom, an article in The Free Man, March 1961. 
The great catastrophes that befell Germany in the first part of our century were the inevitable effect of its political and economic policies. They would not have happened at all, or they would have been much less pernicious, if there had been in the country any noticeable resistance to the fatal drift in the official policies. But the characteristic mark of Germany in the age of Bismarck, as well as later in that of the Ludendorff and Hitler, was strict conformity. There was practically no criticism of the interventionist economic policies, and still less of inflationism. The great British economist Edwin Kanan wrote that if anyone had the impertinence to ask him what he did in the Great War, he would answer, I protested. Germany's plight consisted in the fact that it did not have, either before the armistice of 1918 or later, anybody to protest against the follies of its monetary and financial management. Before 1923, no German newspaper or magazine ever mentioned, in dealing with the rapidly progressing fall in the mark's purchasing power, the boundless increase in the quantity of banknotes printed. It was viewed as un-German not to accept one of the loyal interpretations of this phenomenon that put all the blame on the policies of the Allies and the Treaty of Versailles. In this regard, conditions in Germany certainly have changed. There is, in Germany today, at least one monthly magazine that has both the courage and the insight to form an independent judgment on the economic and social policies of the government and aims of the various parties and pressure groups. It is the Monatsblatter for Freiheit Liche Wirtschaftspolitik, edited by Dr. Volkmar Muthesius and published by the Fritz Knapp Verlag in Frankfurt. Excellent articles written by the editor and a carefully selected group of external contributors analyze every aspect of contemporary economic and social conditions. Dr. Mathesius and his friends are unswerving supporters of free trade, both in domestic and in foreign affairs. They reject the lavish bounties doled out to agriculture at the expense of the urban population, the immense majority. They are keen critics of the cheap demagogy of the government's alleged anti-monopoly campaign. They unmask the dangers inherent in the privileges granted to the labor unions. They prefer the Adenauer regime to the only possible alternative, a cabinet of social democrats. But they do not close their eyes to the shortcomings of the chancellor's policies. And they are not afraid of repeating again and again that it is only thanks to the policies of President Eisenhower that West Berlin is still free from Soviet rule. A periodical that openly and without any reservations endorses the free enterprise system and the market economy. This is certainly a remarkable achievement in the classical land of socialism, whether imperial or social democrat or nationalist. Muthesius, well known and appreciated for his writings on economics and his editorial work, was an enthusiastic Goethe scholar, and Mrs. Muthesius, born in Weimar, and a descendant of the Goethe family, shared this interest. Dr. Volkmar Muthesius died in 1979. His son, Peter Muthesius, became chief editor of the Nat Verlag, nurturing the same ideas and ideals as his late father. Another seminar, sponsored by the Volker Fund, was held in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, in 1956. This conference on free enterprise, freedom, and the good society took place September 5th to 14th, and had been arranged by Clarence F. Philbrook, a long-standing friend of Lou's. It was meant mainly for economists and other scholars. Armin A. Alshian, professor of economics at the University of California, and Bertrand de Juvenal, president of an economic research organization in Paris, 
and a well-known writer participated in the lectures. Lou spoke about the epistemological problems of economics. Besides the work mentioned above, Lou was supervising the new Yale edition of The Theory of Money and Credit, which had been published in German in 1912. An English translation with a brilliant introduction by Professor Lionel Robbins was published in 1934. In the spring of 1981, it was republished in English as a Liberty Classic, with an excellent introduction by Murray Rothbard, who calls the book one of the outstanding contributions to economic thought in the 20th century, the culmination and fulfillment of the Austrian School of Economics. At the same time, Lou started work on a new book, The Anti-Capitalistic Mentality, which was published in 1956 by Van Nostrand, and which received excellent reviews. This book was translated into German in 1958 and published by the Knapp Verlag, Frankfurt am Main. In 1979, it had a second English revised edition. On October 19, 1956, David Lawrence reprinted the book almost in full in U.S. News & World Report. Lou had known nothing of this beforehand, and I still remember his surprise when I brought him the mail and the magazine with the headline on the front page, What's Behind the War on Business? as revealed by Ludwig von Mises, world-famous economist. In December 1956, Lou received a note from Van Nostrand. You may be interested in the attached indication of interest behind the Iron Curtain. This note showed an order for the anti-capitalistic mentality from a bookstore in Moscow. Mention of the Russians reminds me of an incident that happened in 1959. Fortune magazine, commenting on a lecture by Professor Nathan Reich, wrote, Communism has had no more fierce theoretical opponent than the Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, now in New York. Nevertheless, communists may someday erect a monument to him. That is, if they adopt a suggestion made by the chief advisor to Poland's state planning council, Professor Oskar Lange. The story of Lange's paradoxical tribute to von Mises was told recently, in 1959, by economics professor Nathan Reich in a lecture to the young ladies of Hunter College in New York. In 1922, Reich recounted, five years after the seizure of power by the Bolsheviks, von Mises published a devastating attack on the economics of Marxism, in which he exposed its lack of any rational substitute for the functions of the market and the pricing process. Mises argued that if the economic system is to function rationally, that is, in accordance with the free choices of consumers, it must have an institution which would constantly and quickly register consumer preferences. While the run-of-the-mill socialist politicians could airily dismiss von Mises' challenge as another attack of a bourgeois economist, Lang could not fail to appreciate the relevance of von Mises' challenge, especially so since it came at a time when the new men in power were floundering helplessly in search of some workable substitute for the private market in their new society, they found no such blueprint in the voluminous Marxism literature. Like a faithful soldier in the cause of socialism, Lang took up the challenge. Like a good professor, he sat down and wrote a book in which he attempts to reconcile freedom of consumer's choice and other attributes of a market economy with the concept of all-over socialist state planning. The challenge itself compelled the socialist economist to acknowledge the problem and do some more homework on the whole subject of direction of economic activity in a socialist society. By hurling that challenge in the faces of the socialist theorists, Mises performed a useful service to the cause of socialism. 
When, in 1956, Lou received the William Voker Distinguished Service Award, he received congratulatory messages from all parts of the country. There were two files full of letters. They and all his posthumous scripts are now in the Boole Library of Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. Chancellor H.T. Heald of New York University wrote to him on June 21, 1956, as followed. I was delighted to read that you have won the $15,000 William Voker Award for your distinguished service as a scholar and teacher. The reward is recognition of your demonstrated capacity for leadership in your field and, of course, also redounds to the credit of New York University. Please accept our sincere congratulation. When I told Lou, Lou, darling, even you have to agree, you are famous. He smiled and answered, You can recognize the importance of an author only by the frequency of references to his work by other scholars written at the end of a page, under the line. Isn't it remarkable, he told me on another occasion, if a writer copies something from one book, they call it plagiarism. If he takes material out of several books, he's doing research. It was in 1956 that George Cother had the idea that a bust should be made of Lou for posterity. He spoke to his good friend Nellie Erickson, a sculptress who works mostly with wood and marble. George had seen her portrait busts, and he felt that she would be enthusiastic about doing the work. Nellie was enthusiastic about the idea, but George told her, There is one problem. Dr. Von Mises is a very busy man. I must first get his permission and see whether he is willing to have it done. So George invited Nellie and my husband for lunch, and Nellie told Lou that she could do the work in six one-hour sessions. Lou was horrified. He told her he could not spare that much time. But Nellie was persistent. I will work while you work at your desk. I won't disturb you at all. Finally, he agreed, and one or two days later, they started. She put her armature on rollers and pushed it around the desk, never talking to him, never disturbing him. He never really posed. But one day she had to come near to him, to take measurements with her calipers, and suddenly his face, with the beautiful complexion he always had, got dark red. It embarrassed him terribly that a strange woman could come so near his face and touch him. When he came home that night and told me about his adventure, I felt I had to see the woman who stayed for hours around my husband, and had to touch his face to be able to work. So the next day I went to his office in Gallatin House to meet Nellie, and immediately we became best of friends. I liked her. I liked the bust. But I asked her to change the hair, which she did. When the bust was finished, my husband looked at it approvingly, smiled and said slowly, Yes, yes. He obviously was pleased. Nellie took the bust and worked at home on the details. Then she cast it in plaster in her studio and took it to the foundry, where it was cast into bronze by the lost wax process, the same process the old Greeks used centuries ago, the only true and good reproduction for portraits. At a dinner party, George Cuther presented the bust to my husband. It has its place of honor in our living room, a fresh rose or a carnation always next to it. My husband, due to his books and lectures, has a far-reaching influence, and it extended to our wide circle of friends. Lou took great interest in Dr. J.B. Matthews, the well-known anti-communist. During the 1950s and early 1960s, Matthews and his wife, Ruth, often included us in their parties, which were gatherings for many conservatives. For a brief period in the 1930s, Dr. Matthews had been a fellow traveler, a term he popularized when he became a staff member of the House Committee on Un-American Activities. 
At a turning point in his life, J.B. wrote in a moving letter of gratitude to Lou how much he was influenced by his writing. Dr. Matthews fought the socialist trends in the United States until his death in 1966. Over the years, Ruth became one of my best and most loyal personal friends, and still is today. Among the many friends we had and kept for a lifetime was Sylvester Petro, for years professor of labor law at NYU, now director of Wake Forest Institute for Labor Policy Analysis in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. We saw Syl and his wife Helen frequently, and I remember well that wherever Syl lived, he was always working, trying to make the walls of his studio soundproof. He could not stand any disturbance while he worked. I asked Syl one day how he and Lou met for the first time. This was his reply. Lou and I first met, I believe, in 1951 or 1952. The occasion of the meeting was a letter of appreciation which I had written to him about human action. I told him in that letter that I had never encountered such a work and thought it should easily rank among the greatest writings of mankind. The main things that attracted me to Lou were the virtually superhuman qualities of intellect, of judgment, and of wisdom that he possessed in such extraordinary abundance. I have done my fair share of reading in the classics, in logic, in philosophy, in epistemology, in law, in economics, in social theory, in politics, and all the rest. In spite of this rather wide reading, Lou's work seems to stand out sharply and brilliantly. It was on a different level from anything I had ever read before. Even Adam Smith's great work, The Wealth of Nations, when compared with human action, seemed primitive and elementary. After reading Human Action, I read every other book of Lou's that I could get my hands on. Those that I could not buy, I borrowed. Shameful as it is for me to say so, I think I even stole one. That is to say, I never returned it to the person from whom I had borrowed it. Lou was on excellent terms with Syl, and on February 26, 1957, Lou, to the excitement of the class, substituted for Syl in the law school when Syl was on another important assignment. Another example of Lou's influence is Anthony Fisher, who founded institutes for economic research in London, Vancouver, British Columbia, Los Angeles, Amsterdam, and, recently, in New York. All my efforts, he once wrote me, originally stem from Lou's teaching, writings, and activities. Ideas have consequences. It would not have been astonishing with all the admiration and many honors he received in the course of time if Lou had changed, but he never did. He stayed as simple and humble as he was when I first met him. One day I told him, You pay so little attention to human beings, it is only history that really interests you. How wrong you are, he answered. Your presence means much more to me than any event in the past. Yes, he did love me. Human action and the anti-capitalist mentality were translated into Spanish by Joaquim Reik, a lawyer who lives in Madrid. When he read a Hazlitt article about human action in Newsweek, he got in touch with my husband and met him personally for the first time at the Mont Pelerin meeting in Kassel, Germany. From that day on, a warm friendship developed based on felty to the same ideals. In Stresa, during the 1965 Mont Pelerin meeting, Riggs once spoke to Lou about Monopoly and Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State, which had been published in 1962. Rake directed Lou's attention to the fact that Rothbard, one of Lou's most able and admiring pupils, did not completely agree with Lou's analysis of Monopoly. Lou replied, Whatever Rothbard has written in this work is of the greatest importance. About this, Rake told me, 
That was such a generous statement of Dr. Von Mises that my admiration for this man jumped sky high. Israel Kurtzner, Murray Rothbard, and Hans Senholtz became leaders of many young devotees of the Austrian school. Each of these scholars gave their students a living fund of Mises' ideas. By developing them, these disciples are now able to generate new ideas and share their knowledge with still another coming generation of Austrian students. This is the way ideas work. Men like Pierre Hamelis, Luxembourg, one of the ablest defenders of loose teachings and former editor of the Mont Pelerin Quarterly, Ludwig von Lachmann, South Africa, Toshio Murata, Japan, George Roche, Hillsdale College, Michigan, as well as the young, gifted Richard Abeling, are other notable adherents of the Austrian school. The Austrians in these last years have made major progress. The past became the future. For many universities, Austrian economic conferences are now an annual event. In 1980, followers of the Austrian school held their first conference in Graz, Austria, in my husband's beloved native country. In addition to our four trips to Mexico and our invitation to Peru, we also went to Argentina, Guatemala, and Costa Rica. The trip to Buenos Aires in June 1959 was especially exciting, as it took place immediately after the dictatorship of Perón had ended. The country was in political turmoil. We arrived there on June 1st after a trip of 29 hours, interrupted by two-hour stay in Caracas, where we met Guido, my son. At the airport in Buenos Aires, there was the usual reception, although it was the middle of the night. But thanks to Dr. Alberto Benegas Lynch, our host, everything went smoothly, and one hour later we went to bed and slept until 10 o'clock the next morning. The first day was fully devoted to sightseeing. The traffic was unbelievable. There were no traffic lights and no policemen. Once we got into a traffic snarl, everything was tied up. Suddenly a man jumped out of his car and started to regulate the traffic. Cars backed up until they reached a side road where they disappeared. It must have taken hours until order was restored. Lou's first lecture was preceded by a reception given by Dean Chapman of the University of Argentina. The entire faculty was present. The lecture hall, tremendously large, consisted of two rooms, one for the original English lecture, the other where only Spanish translators' voice could be heard. Both rooms were crowded to the bursting point, not even standing room was left. Rarely had I heard my husband talk so well. His voice was strong and the audience listened quietly. The text of Lou's lectures in Argentina has been published in Regnery's Gateway Editions in 1979. The title is Economic Policy, Thoughts for Today and Tomorrow, with the foreword by myself. The book has had wide distribution in colleges. There are Japanese, French, Chinese, and Spanish translations. A German translation has appeared recently, edited and published by Dr. Horst Poller of Bonn Aktuell Stuttgart. Lou lectured every third day, and the other days were filled with parties and receptions. He really was disappointed about the Argentine custom of separating men and women at parties, which meant that we were never invited together in the afternoons or evenings. When it had happened for the third time, I made a remark to Sofia Benegas Lynch, Alberto's wife, with whom I was very well acquainted by then. I explained to her that this was a custom unknown in the U.S. and Europe, and that my husband didn't like to be separated from me. The next day at the next cocktail party, I was invited together with Lou, but was asked not to tell anyone. I was the only woman present except the hostess. A few years later, through Lou's recommendation, the same group invited Sylvester Petro and his wife. By then everything was changed. 
There was no separation between men and women anymore, and Helen was invited to every party with Syl. Every time Lou lectured in Buenos Aires, the rooms were overcrowded. They even had to add a third room for the many people who came to listen to him. Lou spoke about interventionism and about capitalism, subjects that for years the professors and students were not even allowed to read about. If anyone in Perón's times would have dared to attack the communism as my husband did, the police would have come in, taken hold of him immediately, and the assembly would have been broken up. I had suggested to Benegas Lynch that he should show Lou's books to the audience. The next day, neatly piled up in a glass case, all his books were there, translations and originals, everything Benegas Lynch could get hold of in one day. He had an outstanding gift for organization, and if ever a man was talented for a political career, it was he. One morning, June 9th, after a reception at Dean Chapman's office, Lou spoke to the professors in a round aula. Inside this room was a sort of small cabinet with a table. Formerly this aula was part of the medical college, and the round table had been reserved for the post-mortem examination of the corpses. Lou spoke about economic calculation, a subject that most left-learning economists do not like. How Lou stayed alive through all these lectures, cocktail parties, and interviews is still a miracle to me. One of my nicest memories of Buenos Aires is a telephone call I received one afternoon. It was Renata Ropke, one of the twin daughters of Wilhelm Ropke. She was married to a French landowner, and I immediately invited them for dinner. We had last seen Renata in 1940 in Geneva before we left to flee for the United States. She was then about 14 years old. Now she had become a beautiful, tall, slim woman with a striking resemblance to Ingrid Bergman, especially when she laughed. Her husband, strong, healthy, sensual, seemed to be one of those men who enjoyed the presence of women more than that of men. One felt the electricity between these two young people. It was a charming evening. We had much to talk about, in French, for Pierre did not know a word of English. They had their own plane and came over from their ranch in about two hours. Since then I haven't seen Renate, and I often wish I could. One day, Benegas Lynch sent his chauffeur, his car, and his secretary, a young Viennese girl, to show us Buenos Aires. We saw the beautiful harbor, the Rio de la Plata, which is an enormous river, Uruguay on one side, Argentina on the other. The width of the stream makes it seem like an ocean. We saw also the districts where the poor lived, in shacks without water, wells in the street nearby. It was Sunday, and the people were clean and neatly dressed but I saw men washing themselves in the rain puddles of the road, using soap and small towels. Everywhere we noticed dumps with an indescribable smell. It certainly will be one of the main tasks of mankind to lessen the contrast between rich and poor. However, this should not be done by taking possession of the wealth of the rich and making them poor, but by giving productive work and income to the poor who are able to work. This will enable them to develop self-respect and give them self-confidence. We left Buenos Aires on June 16th, and on our way back spent three days in Caracas to be with my son Guido. Lou's last lecture trip out of the country was in 1964, on the invitation of Dr. Manuel Ayau and a group of his friends who share his views and principles. On November 16th, we went to Miami on our way to Costa Rica and Guatemala. As usual, we took a bus and crossed Miami at night. Early next morning, we met the Senholtzes at the airport, had breakfast, and flew with them to San Jose, Costa Rica, where we were honored with a big reception at the Grand Hotel. Our host in Costa Rica was the Asociación Nacional de Fomento Económico.
Dr. Ayayu had come over from Guatemala to introduce Lou and Hans Senholtz, who delivered his first lecture in Spanish, but wisely decided later to return to the more familiar English language. Each of them gave three lectures, and there were plenty of microphones, earphones, and translators for everyone. But at Lou's third lecture, the power system broke down, and the dean of the philosophy department, who was chairing the meeting, translated Lou's lecture, paragraph by paragraph, to the fanatic enthusiasm of the listeners. On November 20th, we left for Guatemala. Dr. Ayayu had done for Guatemala what Montes de Oca, Velasco, and Navarro had done for Mexico. In 1964, Lou and Senholtz lectured at a small conference in Guatemala City. Ayayu, a few years earlier, had started to introduce Lou's writings and those of other libertarians to the public. He printed and mailed leaflets and pamphlets, and the interest grew so strong that in 1971 he could establish, with the help of some friends, his own university. He named it the University Francisco Marroquin, after the 16th century teacher of free education. President Ayayu considers it his life's task to teach the country the economics of a free society, and he follows his goal with never-ceasing zeal and patience. The university library was named after Lou, and some of the professors were former students of his. As Henry Adams said, a teacher affects eternity, he can never tell where his influence stops. In April 1975, the University Francesco Marroquin celebrated its first commencement. Eight students were graduated. They gave the university a bronze bust of my husband, and I was invited to unveil it. Joaquin Reg, our good friend and Spanish translator of the anti-capitalist mentality and human action, was rewarded for his outstanding work and his love of freedom with an honorary doctorate. All of this was happening in a small state of Central America, in a city where there were already four other universities. A story I was told by Dr. Ayayu when I was in Guatemala comes to mind. Ayayu remembered that he, some time after we had been in Guatemala in 1964, had invited Gottfried Haberler for some lectures. Haberler asked for a fee of $1,000. How come, Ayayu answered, that you ask for $1,000 and Professor von Mises only asked for $600? If Mises did it for 600 Haberler answered, I will do it for the same price. Years ago, through Larry Fertig, we met Robert Morris, who was counsel for the Subcommittee on Internal Security of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Later, he went to Texas and settled there with his family. In 1964, he founded a college of liberal arts, the University of Plano, 20 miles north of downtown Dallas. Since the buildings had not been completed, the first semester was conducted in Dallas. Bob Morris asked Lou to come to Dallas for some guest lectures, which would mark the beginning of a course on economics, and which could then, on Lou's recommendation, be continued by Percy Greaves. The first year, 1965, Lou gave two lectures. I looked through the few little notes he had made. In the first lecture, he spoke about the origins of capitalism, the conflict between private and public ownership of the factors of production, and about underdeveloped countries. In the second lecture, he told the students how the system works, and what it means to have a capital shortage. He also spoke about the danger of inflation, and one of his notes reads, The croesus of the past is the common man today. As usual, this lecture was followed by a question period, and Lou kept the written questions of the young students. Some of them are interesting. How would the world be made safe for foreign investments in view of the socialist governments of most underdeveloped countries? 
Do you think that there is a possibility of economic collapse in this country as bad as the crash in 1929? How clearly Lou must have shown them in 1965 the dangers of inflation. We returned to Plano in 1966, 1967, and 1969. Sometimes Percy Greaves came with us, sometimes he arrived later, but he always continued the course. One day I called Lou's attention to a little story in a magazine, which reported that so many girls nowadays are college girls. It lifts their profession, my husband remarked, but it will degrade the colleges. Once Lou told me about a professor who, during his lectures, always looked at one and the same person. Asked why he did this, he answered, Before I start my lecture, I look for the face that seems to me the least intelligent. When I see a glimpse of understanding and interest in this face, I know I am presenting my subject in the right way. Over the years, Lou was recognized and honored in many ways. Austria, the country he had loved so deeply that he could never shrug off or forget the stabs and bruises he had received. Austria, the land of his birth, in 1956 sent him through the dean of the University of Vienna's Faculty of Law and Political Science, a parchment renewing his doctorate of 1906. This was, according to the dean's letter, a special honor, given only to the most meritorious of Austrian doctoral recipients. Dear colleague, as you probably know, the Austrian universities customarily honor their doctors who made significant contributions to scientific progress or public life. Fifty years after their commencement, they are honored through renewal of their doctorate. In your case, the necessary qualifications for this honor are signally met, for you belong to those scholars who, through their outstanding achievements, have helped to enhance the prestige of Austrian scholarship, especially abroad. Your publications in the field of economic epistemology, monetary theory, and policy have made your name universally known in international science. You furthermore will always be remembered for your successful activity with the Vienna Chamber of Commerce, which you served in a leading position for several decades. Therefore, the Faculty of Law and Political Science has instructed me to forward to you the renewal diploma of your doctorate with the best wishes for your personal well-being and for your future scientific work. The renewal of Lou's doctorate presented a fitting opportunity for his many friends to honor him, not only with a fifth shift titled On Freedom and Free Enterprise, published by the Institute for Humane Studies and edited by Mary Senholtz, with contributions from 19 of his most famous colleagues and friends, but also with a banquet arranged by Leonard Reed in the University Club. It was a grand evening in March 1956, with remarkable speeches by Reed, Machlup, and Hayek. Hayek had received advance information about the planned honoring of his former teacher, by the University of Vienna, and considered the party a good occasion to tell Lou and his guests about it. On June 8, 1957, Grove City College granted Lou an honorary Doctor of Law degree, LLD, at its 77th commencement. The college, founded and sustained by Howard Pugh, had arranged with the help of Mary and Hans Senholtz an exceptional celebration in honor of Lou, and we spent a few remarkable days in Grove City, surrounded by friends and well-wishers. In 1961, when Lou turned 80, the Wall Street Journal honored him with an extraordinary editorial by William Henry Chamberlain. Austrian-born Ludwig von Mises, long a resident of the United States, received a variety of tributes marking his 80th birthday. In these tributes, there was something more than an appreciation of a highly erudite economist and a teacher of remarkable brilliance and charm. For von Mises has been an evangel, a banner, 
a rallying point for all who believe in the superiority of the free market economy over state interventionism and collectivist planning. In an age when collectivism has pounded so many breaches in the walls of economic principle, there is something inspiring in the spectacle of a man who, on the basis of an almost unsurpassed knowledge of economic history and theory, puts his foot down and says no, to quit the sure automatic judgment of the free market, the free play of prices against the background of sound currency, is to leave a sure road for a morass. For every problem that state interference with the free market may seem to solve, two or three others, probably more serious, will come up. Here is the octogenarian economist, amazingly young and fresh in his attitude towards work and life, speaking for himself in excerpts from his addresses and books. The alternative is not plan or no plan. The question is, whose plan? Should each member of society plan for himself, or should a benevolent government alone plan for them all? Laissez-faire means let each individual choose how he individually wants to cooperate in the social division of labor. Let the consumer determine what the entrepreneur should produce. If control of production is shifted from the hands of the entrepreneurs daily re-elected by a plebiscite of the consumers into the hands of the supreme commander of the industrial armies, Marx and Engels, or in those of the armed workers, Lenin, neither representative government nor individual rights can survive. Wall Street, against which the self-styled idealists are battling, is merely a symbol but the walls of the Soviet prisons, within which all dissenters disappear forever, are a hard fact. Von Mises has been a very persuasive evangel of his cause, which would have been called liberalism in the 19th century, and might be more clearly described as conservatism in the 20th. He is one of the most influential members of the Mont Pelerin Society, an international association of economists, political scientists, historians, and journalists, set up in 1947 on principles emphasizing the integral nature of freedom, the inseparable connection between a free economy, a free society, and a free way of life. William Ropke, the noted German economist, now a resident of Switzerland, author of many books about the basis of a free economy and now president of the Mont Pelerin Society, said in congratulating von Mises on his 80th birthday, I would like to stress on this occasion how immense is my debt to Ludwig von Mises, for having rendered me immune at a very early date from the virus of socialism with which most of us came back from World War I. Austrian-born professor Gottfried Havelaar of Harvard describes the rare stimulation which he and other then-scholars derived from the seminar which Mises held in Vienna before the war. First, there would be hours of serious discussion. Then the participants would adjourn to a well-known Italian restaurant. There would be a final session in a famous Vienna cafe, lasting until 1 a.m., and the next day, fresh and fit, von Mises would appear at his office punctually at 9, and he shows just as much zest in presenting his views at New York University and other American forums as he did in his native Vienna so many years ago. Lou's friends honored him with an anniversary dinner, this time arranged by Larry Fertig in the New York University Club. Approximately 200 guests attended. Hayek was chairman, and Bettina Bien gave Lou, as a special present, a leather-bound copy of her bibliography of his work. The Mont Pelerin Society published a special quarterly journal, edited by Hunold, as a tribute to my husband, with contributions by Fertig, Havelaar, Hazlitt, Hunold, Felix Kaufman, and Ropke. The tokens of honor increased. 
1962, Austria awarded Lou another distinction. According to an Austrian information sheet of October 31, 1962, the Austrian ambassador to the United States, Mr. Wilfried Platzer, presented the Austrian Medal of Honor for Science and Arts, Österreichisches Ehrenzeichen für Wissenschaft und Kunst, to Ludwig von Mises on behalf of Austrian Federal President Adolf Scharf. The award expresses Austria's gratitude to her son for his distinguished activities as scholar and teacher and for his internationally recognized work in the fields of political science and economics. Ambassador Platzer invited us to a luncheon in Washington, and many friends and former students of my husband attended this party. The Medal of Honor is the highest decoration that Austria can bestow on one of her sons, such a distinction that it is only lent to the person so honored, for when he receives it, he gets at the same time a printed request to have it returned to Austria after his death. This I have done. In 1963, New York University awarded Lou an honorary doctorate of law, and the Wall Street Journal reported, Of all the academic honors bestowed this month, as tradition prescribes, one struck us as particularly noteworthy. It was presented by New York University to Ludwig von Mises, the Austrian-born economist, long since a U.S. citizen, now 81 years old. The citation is self-explanatory. Author of literally hundreds of books and articles, his major works are recognized as classics of economic thought. He has brought one of the most powerful minds of his age to bear on his subject, and has clarified it with philosophic conscience and a scientific integrity of a rare order. He is an eloquent scholar, a scholar-scholar, and the force of his ideas has been multiplied many-fold by the able economists he has trained and influenced. For his great scholarship, his exposition of the philosophy of a free market, and his advocacy of a free society, he is here presented with our doctorate of law. How much this award reveals about the current academic climate in America, we would not try to guess. But it is interesting, in an age of encroaching regimentation, that it was given specifically with reference to von Mises' philosophy. For one of his greatest contributions is his demonstration that socialism, or the planned economy by any other name, cannot provide a rational substitute for the functions of the free market. More than that, the free market and the free society are indissoluble. In this sense, von Mises is the champion not merely of an economic philosophy, but of the potential of man. In July 1964, we flew via London to Freiburg, Germany, where Hayek picked us up at the airport and took us to a small but excellent hotel. On July 27th, Lou received from Dean Rittner of Freiburg University the honorary degree of Doctor of Political Science. Lou made his reception speech that evening. It was a friendly and intimate celebration, and in the following days the Hayeks took us around and showed us the beautiful old city. Lou, as usual, took special interest in the library, which consisted of 28,000 volumes, guarded anxiously by a 93-year-old librarian who knew where to find every book without the help of a catalog. We went one evening with Edith Yukin, the widow of the well-known economist Walter Yukin, who had been a good friend of Lou's. Mrs. Yukin, a scholar in her own right, was once described by Lou as the Jacqueline Kennedy of the Mont Pelerin Society, not only because she talked eloquently and amusingly, but because she was always dressed with special good taste. Looking back, I don't remember any signs of excitement, joy, or satisfaction by my husband from receiving these various honors. When he was happy, it was only because I showed him that I was happy. I knew he deserved every honor he got, and I made no secret of my joy. 
1967, Lou was invited to go to Vienna for the 40th anniversary of the Austrian Institute of Business Cycle Research, as they now called the Institut für Konjunkturforschung, which Lou had founded in 1927. But Lou could not attend. Five of his former students were present at the celebration, Professors Hayek, Morgenstern, Habeler, Machlup, and Tintner. The present head of the Institute, Professor Dr. Franz Nemschak, sent Lou a little booklet, and with it he wrote, If you look at this book, I hope you will feel joy and satisfaction over what has become your child in the last thirty years. We feel most gratefully towards you, the founder of the Institute. You live on in your creation. On March 15, 1969, my husband received a letter from Dr. William Fellner, then president of the American Economic Association. Dear Professor Mises, I take great pleasure in informing you that the nominating committee of the American Economic Association nominates you for election as Distinguished Fellow. The committee met with the Executive Committee as an Electoral College of the Association and elected you on March 7th as recipient of this honorable award. The award of Distinguished Fellow was instituted by the Association in 1965, and it may be granted annually to not more than two economists of high distinction in the United States or Canada. This was accompanied by a citation praising Lou's work. I hugged and congratulated him, and asked how he felt about this great distinction. If it makes you happy, he answered, I am happy. Nine months after Lou had left me forever, I opened his desk and found among his scripts a stamped and signed envelope with an attached copy addressed to Professor William von Fellner, President of the American Economic Association, dated March 20, 1969. It read, Dear Professor Fellner, I heartily thank you and all the members of the Economic Association for the great honor of being elected Distinguished Fellow of the Association. With all good wishes for the future activities of the Association and its members. I have forwarded the letter with a few accompanying words to Professor Fellner, who very graciously thanked me with some kind words. I will always wonder why Lou forgot, or neglected, to mail that letter. Chapter 11, Our Last Years Together On May 29, 1969, Lou held his last seminar at New York University, but that did not mean he was ready to retire. Until 1972, he kept up his seminars at the Foundation for Economic Education, where the intellectual atmosphere was so much to his liking. At home he was constantly reading. Once he was asked, don't you have a hobby? Oh yes, he replied, reading. His studio was his sanctuary, his books his treasures. The last thing he did at night before retiring was to go to the bookshelves and, like a gourmet studying the menu in a good restaurant, carefully select a book to enrich his evening. One of the last books he read with great interest was Louis Rougier's The Genius of the West. He had already read it in the original French edition, and he considered it to be a great and valuable book. Despite his gallbladder and hernia operations of many years before, Lou had an excellent constitution. He was a healthy mind in a healthy body to the last year of his life. His eyesight was perfect and remained so to his last days. The only thing that depressed him was the deterioration of his hearing. He could not participate in a general conversation, being unable to hear clearly when more than one person talked at the same time. As a consequence of his poor hearing, he could no longer enjoy the theater. Nevertheless, we kept up the subscription to the Metropolitan Opera that I had given him years before. Thanks to our good seats, he could follow the performance as attentively as before. The opera was the highlight of his later years. Once in a while, he also listened to a chamber music concert on radio. 
When I tried to get him interested in a good television show, he said, it would take too much of my time, and he specially objected to listening to commentators. I can do my thinking alone with his reaction. An exception was Bill Buckley's firing line. Buckley's intelligence, his sharp and biting wit, his zeal and imminent productivity impressed Lou greatly. Lou was a steady reader of National Review, but often regretted that the magazine lacked sound economic articles, which he regarded as a mistake of Buckley's publishing policy. Lou's failing hearing was especially depressing to him in the discussion periods following his lectures, when he missed the questions that were put to him. In the last years of his seminars, I arranged that all questions be put to him in writing and, for the benefit of the students, be read aloud to him. Percy Greaves transmitted the questions to him. Percy had such a clear and penetrating voice that even Lou could hear him. This procedure proved satisfactory, and Lou's quick and brilliant answers always earned the admiration of the students. The only disadvantage of the written questions was the interruption in the direct flow of thoughts between student and professor. The deterioration of Lou's hearing, so natural at his age, made him feel lonely and isolated. To avoid this, I invited even more people to the house than before, but he needed my help more and more. I became sort of a public relations officer, the middleman between him and his students. When meeting people for the first time, Lou usually asked for their names in writing. He often told me the listeners at my lectures have a full hour or more to look at me, to hear me talk, while I see them for only a short moment after the lecture, when they are introduced to me. Later they are astonished or even offended when on another occasion I don't recognize them. In April 1969, we flew to California for a series of lectures in Los Angeles. It was a quick trip, and we were back to New York after a few days. After 1971, he began to cut down on his traveling. The happiest summer of Lou's later years was that of 1967, spent in Mittersill, a little village in New Hampshire. Mittersill is like a tiny Austrian village. It lies deep inside the woods, cool and shady, three miles from Franconia. That summer, we did not climb Mount Washington or any other mountain. In spite of this, we enjoyed a perfect summer. We could walk and be out of doors all day long. The house was roomy and charmingly furnished and had a well-equipped kitchen, so we could either eat at home or walk the few steps to the Austrian restaurant. The high point of our stay in Mittersill was the visit of our little granddaughter Mandy, whom Gidda, my daughter, had brought to stay with us. When Lou saw the child, his eyes lit up. She was a beautiful little girl, seven years old, slim, with blonde hair and huge blue eyes. As I mentioned before, Lou hardly ever worked during his vacation, but when he did, I would never disturb him. Mandy, however, did not recognize any rules. When she wanted to have a word with her grandpa, she went straight into his room, and he never reproached her. When she thought he looked too serious for her taste, she only needed to say, Grandpa, smile! and immediately his expression changed and a kind, warm smile brightened his face. One day we visited Franconia College. The students recognized Lou and gathered around our car to pepper him with questions, mostly about Ludwig Wittgenstein, the Austrian philosopher, who was in fashion with them at the time. Lou, as always, answered every question patiently, while Mandy looked at the boys and girls around us. It was a strange crowd their heads full of ideas and how to improve the world, their bodies scantily dressed. All were in bare feet, the girls with long flowing hair, and the boys had masses of beard framing their faces. After watching these youngsters, little Mandy said, If all the boys and girls in American colleges look like this, I'd rather go to school in England. Mandy at that time was a rather untidy little girl, 
and I tried my best to change her. One day I told her, Mandy, darling, each evening when I come into your room and find your toys put away and the room tidied and nice-looking, I'll give you five cents. After a while you will have saved enough to buy your mummy a nice present when she returns. When Lou heard this, he explained to me that it was a bad educational practice to bribe a child. But that very evening he went into Mandy's room to kiss her good night and told her, Mandy, how would you like it if I gave you ten cents every night when your room is tidy? Could anyone imagine that Mandy would not have liked it? As usual, we had guests that summer, Elo and George Kuttner, and Bettina and Percy Greaves. We also became very good friends with the Austrian ambassador to the United Nations, Baron von Heimer, and his wife, who had a little chalet very near to ours. A year later, Dr. Heimer became the Austrian ambassador to Russia. They wrote us from Moscow, but the cards were so carefully worded that the unwritten words were more eloquent than the written ones. In May 1970, Lou made his last extensive lecture trip. It had been arranged by Charles Heatherley, at the time director of the Southern Intercollegiate Studies Institute and later educational director of the National Federation of Independent Business in California. This trip took us from Seattle, where Lou gave an excellent lecture before a full house of some 600 people via Los Angeles to Tucson, Arizona. It was an exciting trip for us because it took place during the days of unrest on American campuses. Many students wearing red armbands, to show they were against participation in the Vietnam War, were boycotting classes and lectures. Others, frightened of being caught up in riots, simply stayed home. Charles Heatherly accompanied us on the flight to Tucson. At the airport, we were received by Dr. Luis Gasper, a six-foot, 26-year-old bachelor who was an assistant professor in the economics department at the University of Arizona. Several of his students had come along to meet Lou, and all of them accompanied us to the Pioneer Hotel, where they had taken quarters for us. That afternoon, a friend of Leonard Reed invited Dr. Gasper, four of his students, and ourselves to see his house, which was high up in the hills, and then to dinner at the country club. This gentleman had an impressive library, and he immediately asked my husband to write a few words in his copy of Human Action, which was open on the table. He insisted that Dr. Mises was the only author, besides Winston Churchill, whom he had ever asked to autograph a book. Being familiar with Lou's views about Churchill, I am afraid I did not accept this news with the expected enthusiasm. I would have liked to know, however, whether this so hospitable gentleman had really read all the books in his library and knew, as he stated, all their authors. After a glass of champagne, he took us in his Rolls Royce, driven by an elegant chauffeur, to the country club, where we had the best food we had eaten in a long, long time. Next morning, my husband preferred to stay in the hotel. The elegant chauffeur came with the rolls, and Mr. Heatherly went with me to the Desert Museum. This museum was a strange sight. Everything was in the open. We saw tigers, lizards, huge cockroaches, mountain bears next to caves, exotic plants, and strange-looking flowers. I could not see enough of everything, but I must confess I was not very happy in that Rolls-Royce and was glad when we were back in the hotel. There were only two Rolls-Royces in Tucson, and everyone, of course, knew the owners. I was afraid the young people, in their excitement, might eventually become destructive. Whenever there was time, I watched the riots on television and saw the mounting unrest among the students. Lou's lecture was in the evening. We had to cross the campus again to get to the auditorium, but this time we went in Dr. Gasper's car, so I felt no danger. 
Gaspar introduced Lou, reading the citation the American Economic Association had given him in 1969. Lou spoke about inflation. As always, his presentation was clear and convincing. Before and after his lecture, he got a standing ovation. It lasted so long it must have embarrassed him. Mr. Heedley had placed me in the first row. During the question period after the lecture, I sent a question up to Lou, printed to hide my handwriting and not giving my name. What should undergraduates do if they are forced by their professor to read socialist and leftist literature? By chance, Dr. Gasper took my piece of paper last, and it gave Lou an opportunity for a most impressive ending to the evening. My action startled me. Never before had I raised my voice or asked a question during one of the various lectures. I failed to note down Lou's answer to my question, maybe because I knew in advance what he would say. It was easy for Lou to answer my query. That must have been one of the reasons I sent it up. I knew that the lecture in the following half-hour of questioning put a terrible strain on him, and I wanted to give him some relief. As Lou's answer is more important than my question, I wrote to Dr. Gasper in February of 1975, Do you by any chance have the lecture given in Tucson on tape, or could you give me, out of your memory, a short outline of my husband's answer? Dr. Gasper answered, I wish that I could satisfy your request at once from my own memory. Regrettably, my position on the platform, the highest honor I have had, made me much the most nervous person there, and therefore did not permit me to take notes as ordinarily I would. With refreshing honesty, Dr. Gasper verified once more the bewilderment, adoration, and awe young people often felt when they first met my husband. Only later would they realize how humble and modest he really was. If I think about the answer my husband would have given to his question, I am sure he would have advised the students to read what their professor asked them to read. But read not only that, he must have said, read more. Read everything about the subject from every point of view, be it socialist, Marxist, liberal, libertarian. Read with an open mind. Learn to think. Only when you know your subject from all sides can you decide what is right and what is wrong. Only then are you ready for a discussion because you can answer all questions, even those your opponents will throw at you. Yes, I believe that would have been his answer. The next morning Lou and I visited the campus museum. When he became fatigued, we returned to the hotel. After lunch, the big rolls with the elegant chauffeur appeared again to take us through the campus to the auditorium, where my husband was to meet the faculty and then speak to the general public. The faculty meeting was rather disappointing. Only about 25 members came to meet Lou. Dr. Gasper explained, They are like jackals, but don't forget the atmosphere of this campus is leftist, and the excitement about Nixon in Cambodia is increasing. This was not very comforting, but in contrast to the faculty reception, the lecture for the general public was very crowded. Lou spoke about the trade cycle and about gold, and when Gasper asked some questions about the current economic situation, he gave his frank opinion in his forthright and honest way. The public responded enthusiastically, and again my husband got a long-standing ovation. On Saturday, May 9th, we returned to New York. That summer I rented a little house in Dorset, Vermont. It belonged to David Gilbert, former owner of the hardware store in the village. He was a self-made man who, when he retired, could not be without work and had taken up picture framing, which he did extremely well and with great taste. We occupied his original house a lovely old building with a beautiful shady garden. Next to it, David had built for himself a small modern cottage, where he lived with his wife Nora, a very efficient and kind woman. We soon became good friends. 
By then we had been in Dorset so often that Lou was known everywhere as the professor. Dorset is easily reached from New York, so we had frequent visitors. One day Percy Greaves appeared with four students who had just attended a seminar at FEE. We already had met two of these young boys in Seattle. They were most eager to see my husband again and to discuss various questions with him. Lou held a seminar that day in the garden, beneath a huge shady old chestnut tree. Afterward there was a lively discussion, with Percy transmitting the questions to Lou. In the neighboring garden sat our landlord David Gilbert, listening intently, making notes once in a while, determined to ask Lou later for explanation. That summer we also had a most cherished visit from Gustavo and Lupe Velasco and Elenita, their young daughter. Though Gustavo was an excellent driver, he had lost his way on the hilly backcountry roads. When they had not arrived by eleven at night, everyone was worried, even the owner of the Dorset Inn where I had rooms reserved for the Velascos. We went to bed without having seen them. Gustavo could not understand all the excitement. He was delighted to find a cold meal, cool drinks, and fruit in his room, for the Velascos had not eaten anything since lunch. They had hoped to arrive much earlier, but after eight o'clock it is very difficult to find a place in this part of Vermont where one can get a regular meal. Only three days later, when I asked Gustavo for my dishes, did he realize that it was not the hotel owner who had supplied the supper, but that it was our foresight that had enabled them to go to bed without being hungry. It was the middle of September when we returned from Dorset to New York. On October 21st, we flew to San Francisco for another week of lectures. Lou gave his first lecture the next day, a short talk about money. For the first time, I noticed that he was not as alert as usual. The trip and the change of climate and time must have affected him. To my great relief, he was much better during the question period. On Saturday, Percy Greaves, who was with us all the time, had a lecture of his own in Burlingame, where he spoke to a large audience for about three hours. Lou came in at the end and finished the session with a short talk, lasting only ten minutes. Then the questions poured in for Lou. Percy, helpful as always, read them aloud and my husband answered. But I noticed a change in his handling of the questions. He used too much time in answering. I sent him a note written in German, advising him to be very brief. Percy was rather humorous. When he gave Lou the note, he did not know what it contained. He said, Professor, here is a note in code, and everyone laughed. I was relieved that Lou understood. The audience responded well, giving him huge applause, but I could not lose my concern about the many lectures he had promised to deliver later that same year. I knew he needed rest and should not travel so much. Nevertheless, in November 1970, we went to Grove City College. Hans Senholtz took good care that Lou was comfortable and had enough rest. The audience, students taught under the guidance of Dr. Senholtz, were eager to hear the professor talk. The atmosphere was warm and friendly and the audience enthusiastic. On December 10th, Lou gave a lecture at Plano University, and the following day he delivered a final short address to the faculty and student body at the university, where some of Percy's students were graduating. These were the last lectures he gave outside New York City. His seminar in Irvington still went on, however, the last time he spoke from the platform was on March 26, 1971. He had always loved lecturing in Irvington, and he continued doing it as long as he felt able. It is fitting that the painting of Lou by George Augusta, the well-known portrait painter, has a place of honor on the landing of the beautiful staircase of the Foundation for Economic Education. This painting, initiated by Lawrence Fertig, was presented by the trustees of FEE to Leonard Reed, in honor of the Foundation's 25th anniversary. I believe it may be of interest for the reader to know how this portrait came to life. 
George Augusta practically lived with us from morning to night, from March 8th to March 10th, 1971, using these days for the basis of his work. Our living room became his atelier. He shared his meals. He talked with us. He watched Lou's every moment. He tried to keep Lou interested, all the time observing him and watching his reactions. A psychoanalyst listens. A painter or a sculptor watches. The result should be the same, insight into a man's soul. For me, it was fascinating to watch so closely an artist at work. All the time I had to sit next to Lou in a special location so that his eyes would rest on me constantly. I could not have done this painting without you, Augusta often said, and I agreed that my husband would not have wasted his time sitting quietly for three days without a book, looking at nothing. I love this painting, though in my opinion it does not show Lou as he was in 1971. He looked more alive at that time. The eyes in the painting have the distant look, the tired expression he showed only in his last year. But there is the tiny smile on his lips he always had for me, and which I love so much. For this smile I would have done more than sit still for three days. Augusta also made a little color sketch of me and offered it to me as a present. Knowing the value of his paintings, Larry Fertig had told me how much the trustees had to pay for Lou's portrait. I felt I could not accept the sketch. But when he showed it to my husband, who did not know about the price, and Lou was so honestly enthusiastic about it, he asked Lou whether he would accept it as a present. Lou, really happy, accepted it. Augusta said he would keep the sketch for a few days in order to finish it, show it to a few friends, and then send it to my husband. But he must have forgotten about it, for Lou never got it and was really quite disappointed. A few months after my book was first published, I received a very kind letter from George Augusta. He excused himself for not having sent the sketch. He somehow had mislaid it. He asked me to accept, as a small compensation, one of the sketches he had made of my husband. I was touched by this gesture and gladly accepted his gift. Though I could never forget Lou's age, I set great hopes on the summer and the rest he would get in the fresh, unspoiled air of Vermont. The Gilberts had rented their house year-round. Therefore, for three months in the summer of 1971, I had taken a little house in Manchester, Vermont, and I was lucky to have found that place. It belonged to a Long Island lawyer who used it only in winter for skiing. We lived in this house for the next two summers, and we loved this place more than we ever had loved a place before. It was located on a hill overlooking a beautiful green meadows. It was a quiet little house with an open porch on three sides, which we could use at all times of the day, for on one side at least there was, even in the greatest heat, a slight breeze moving. From the porch you could follow the road with your eyes far down into the village. Lou often said the view reminded him of Austria, and perhaps this was one of the reasons he loved the house so much. We still walked frequently during the day, but Lou could not cover great distances. We had friends living nearby, Professor Eric Hula with his wife Anne-Marie. They had a house in Weston, and it was a most beautiful drive to their place. They were the only people I ever knew who, having spent their summers in the country for almost thirty years, could manage without a car, and they could not bear television even though they were ardent music lovers. We also visited with the former Indiana congressman, Samuel B. Pettengill, who lived the year round in Grafton, Vermont. He is the author of The Charming Yankee Pioneers, which gives such a clear description and picture of the country and people of New Hampshire and Vermont. Lou still loved to have guests, even if he did not participate in the conversation as much as before. Percy and Bettina and Frank Dearson spent a week with us, and George and Elo Cutter 
spent a night with us, enthusiastic about the beauty of the place. One day Lou did not feel very well, so we went to see the local physician, Dr. Clifton Harwood, whose wife was a Vermont state senator. When the doctor heard Lou's name, he greeted him as an old acquaintance and as his most honored patient. He knew Lou's books, and he knew much about him from human events, which was the literature laid out on the table for his patients. Dr. Harwood was an unpretentious country doctor. His office was simple, with wooden chairs and a no-smoking sign on the wall. But when he had office hours, which he had daily with the exception of Thursday, every seat was taken. When a mother came in with a little baby and the child was crying, everyone had to wait. The child was treated first. Clad in a simple white shirt, his trousers held up by braces, he was a humanitarian in the real sense of the word. His profession was to help and to heal. Lou was very ill that summer with an infection, and I found Dr. Harwood to be a first-class diagnostician. He took excellent care of my husband, arranging for him to be brought immediately to the hospital in Bennington. When Lou was dismissed too early and had a relapse, Dr. Harwood came to the house whenever we needed him. When Lou had to re-enter a hospital and Bennington was overcrowded, Harwood arranged for me to take him to Williamstown in Massachusetts. My husband wanted to have me with him all day long, so I had to drive 50 miles daily while he was in Bennington, and 100 miles while he was in Williamstown. People suggested that I stay near the hospital, but I longed to go back to our little house at night to be there when the telephone calls poured in. One day Percy Greaves came from Terrytown to see Lou in the hospital in Williamstown, and I asked him to stay overnight at our house. I had just received permission to take Lou home the following day. Percy agreed, and when we left the hospital at 8 o'clock, he followed me in his car. Suddenly, a terrible thunderstorm developed. It was raining so hard when we drove through the lonely, mountainous parts of the country that we could not see ten yards ahead. There were no roadside turnouts nor any possibility for shelter. We simply had to drive on. Percy followed me, watching my car closely, ready to help if I should need him. We arrived at the house late and left early the next morning. We had the same drive part of the way. Percy was supposed to return to New York, so I described the place where our two cars would have to part. But when we came to that spot, I saw that Percy was still following me. I stopped, and he told me, You don't think I would let you bring the professor home alone? How could you manage? And he went all the way back with me to Williamstown, took care of the formalities, and helped Lou, who was very weak, to our car and made him comfortable. Then he went back with me to Manchester, and stayed until he was sure that I could manage alone. Lou recovered completely that summer, but he himself realized that he was no longer the same. He became very quiet, and I often wished he would tell me once again some of his war stories, which in former years he had told me so often. He once said, The worst is that I still have so much to give to the people, to the world, and I can't put it together anymore. It is tormenting. A few weeks after we returned to New York, Lou had his 90th birthday. Larry Fertig had arranged a small intimate party for about 20 good friends at the New York University Club. As a special present, Lou received a two-volume Festschrift from the Institute for Humane Studies in California. The Festschrift included 71 essays from scholars in 18 countries, former students and friends of Lou's from all over the world. The idea for the book, Towards Liberty, was conceived by Gustavo Velasco and enthusiastically embraced by the president of the Institute, our good friend Dr. Floyd A. Harper, and beautifully produced by Kenneth Templeton. I knew about this plan from the very beginning and had promised Dr. Harper not to tell Lou about it. 
but I could really not keep my promise, for Larry Furtick and Gustavo Velasco had sent their contributions in advance to Lou in Manchester. I would say it was wise of them to do so, for at that time he could still enjoy what he read. What Lawrence Furtick wrote in Towards Liberty seems to me almost prophetic. Economic historians of the 21st century will undoubtedly be puzzled by the reception accorded to economic theorists of the 20th century. They will particularly be puzzled by what occurred in the span of years between World War I and 1970. Great honors were showered on economists whose major accomplishments had been to promote a major inflation, which, by the end of the 20th century, was acknowledged to be the source of tremendous social unrest and economic crises. These were the fashionable economists who were sponsored by wealthy foundations, and indeed by most of the intellectuals of academia. But when economic historians of the future came to evaluate precisely who had made the most significant contributions to economic theory, to those broad and fundamental principles which explain human actions in the practical world people must live in, their puzzlement increased, for they could find only a meager record of economic honors or monetary prizes by leading Ivy League universities, accorded to one economist who had discovered and formulated some of the most brilliant economic theories of that century. His name was Ludwig von Mises. In the coming weeks, when Lou read all of the articles that were published about him in magazines and papers all over the world, he said to me, The only goods he loved to see most were Larry Furtig, Henry Hazlitt, and Percy and Bettina. To you, he often said, I would not want to live any more. I never believed the doctor when he told me in the last weeks of Lou's life that a patient does not know when his mind is slipping. My husband certainly knew it, and he saw no purpose for his living any longer. The last summer, 1973, I was too tired to keep house again, and we flew to Switzerland, to a health resort high above Lucerne, with the most beautiful view on the Fjordwaldstätersee and the surrounding snow-covered mountains. The place had a beautiful park, the owners were friendly and attentive, and Lou loved to walk in the park, but the medical attention was poor and insufficient. We left after a few weeks, and the very day after our return to New York, Lou had to enter the hospital and never left it again. He was not allowed any visitors, but when Percy and Bettina came to see him on his 92nd birthday, he asked me to let them enter. Bettina wished him a happy birthday, and he thanked her and kissed her hand. The Austrian gentleman had remembered the old Austrian custom. Bettina and Percy cried so hard that I led them out of the room. I did not want my husband to be disturbed. With the help of Valium, I managed to keep my smile for Lou all the time. His last and greatest joy was when I read him part of the article that Henry Hazlitt had published in Barron's for Lou's 92nd birthday. I read him only a short passage in which Hazlitt says, These 92 years of his life have been amazingly fruitful. In conferring the Distinguished Fellow Award in 1969, the American Economic Association credited Mises as the author of 19 volumes, if one only counts first editions, but of 46 if one counts all revised editions and foreign translations. In his last years, other honors have come to Mises, but such honors, even taken as a whole, seem scarcely proportionate to his achievements. If ever a man deserved the Nobel Prize in economics, it is Mises. I read it twice to Lou to be sure he understood, and he smiled, a sad, resigned little smile. This same sad little smile I remember only too well when, on December 4, 1969, Lou read an article by Winston Duke, published in the Harvest News, the Harvard University Business School community paper. 
It was called The Man Who Should Have Received the Nobel Prize in Economics. I would recommend Mises' book, The Anti-Capitalist Mentality, to each member of the HB School faculty as an exercise in introspection. And to the serious student of economics, Mises' monumental work, Human Action, the greatest piece of economic literature since the wealth of nations. Human action alone is justification for a Nobel Prize in economics. It is a poor comment upon the economic departments of so-called liberal and open-minded universities throughout this nation that this man's works are so systematically excluded from economic texts in classrooms. Likewise, it is a sickening comment upon the men who chose the recipients of the Nobel Prize in economics that Professor Mises was not even nominated for that honor. Lou's mind was especially clear the day before his death. He held my hand all day long, but he was very weak, and his voice was barely audible when he told me in the evening, You look so tired. You must go home now and get some rest. At 9 p.m., the doctor insisted on my leaving. Shortly afterward, Lou went into a coma and never woke up. He died at 8.30 in the morning of October 10, 1973. His doctor and three of the kindest young floor nurses were with him. At 9 o'clock a.m., the doctor called me to the phone. Gitta was at my side. When people get older, their needs change, their wishes decrease. Material things lose their importance. But even older people can dream. And sometimes these dreams become wishes more difficult to fulfill than material luxuries. If I myself could realize one such special dream, it would be that every President of the United States should get for his inauguration a complete set of loose books, destined for the Oval Office in the White House. These books should be marked for special recommended readings concerning government interference, socialism, and inflation. Perhaps they would help to preserve freedom in the United States. My second wish would be that every university or college where economics and political science are taught would, out of their own free will, add to their curriculum a course on freedom of the market. I can best sum up my husband's character in the very words that he himself used in writing about the distinguished economist Benjamin Anderson. His most eminent qualities were his inflexible honesty, his unhesitating sincerity, and his unflinching patriotism. He never yielded. He always freely enunciated what he considered to be true. If he had been prepared to suppress or only to soften his criticism of popular but obnoxious policies, the most influential positions and offices would have been offered to him. But he never compromised. This firmness marks him as one of the outstanding characters in this age.